Previously on Masks of Diablo Devil. You did that on purpose. <laughs> Recap. Augustus Larkin has arranged this trip and laid on a fancy meal for the important people. Everybody except Peter? Question mark. Samuel arrives first at Bar Cordona, the at the Hotel Marie. Except Jesse Hughes is already here, apparently. Whoever he is, some sort of note taker. Cat and Tommy arrive next, followed shortly by Spencer. Apparently, he's famous. Next up, Felix arrives. There is confusion about snogging. Felix is some sort of explorer, it's revealed. Sam is a botanist. <coughs> Liza arrives. There's some chatter and drinks. Matteo decides to turn up. Uh, Larkin is late now, I think. But his muscle, Mendoza, turns up. Oh no, there's Larkin after all. <laughs> the expedition will be leaving from the Hispania Hotel on Monday the 22nd. We're staying in the Marie Hotel. Apparently we haven't found the actual site yet, but it's up on the highlands near Lake Titicaca, uh, near Puno. We'll be travelling overland by truck. There's a trail, but it'll be rough. Apparently, some French people have drowned. (laughs) Everyone fishes for advice from NPCs to try and get more helpful equipment. It mostly fails. Dinner happens. It's rather extravagant. Booze also happens, but not too much. The ladies go to their rooms while the men go out to get rat arsed. Jesse and Liza head to their beds. Tomorrow, they and Felix are going to go do some research. Jesse doesn't completely trust Larkin. They are going to meet his friend, Dr. Sanchez, tomorrow, a leader in Peruvian artifacts. Larkin wants nothing to do with him for some reason. Matteo, Sam and Spencer are all a bit delicate the next morning, but everyone turns up for breakfast. Sam is planning to sightsee. Cat is going shopping. Felix, Liza and Jesse head to the university, but en route it is revealed that Jesse is Elias Jackson, famous occult researcher. Dun, dun, dun. Jackson Elias. Cat and Tommy check over gear and what's been ordered. Then they head across town to check the things that have been delivered to the Hotel Hispania. Sam goes out sightseeing. He's having a nice time indeed. Felix, Liza and Jackson arrive at the university and meet Dr. Sanchez, or Prof. Chan Sanchez, possibly. He seems nice. Drinks are served. Sam goes to the harbour. He has a nice time again. Spencer, Cat, Tommy and Matteo arrive at the Hispania. The receptionist is rather hostile. Cat makes it worse. Spencer attempts to fix things. They ignore him and ask Matteo what's going on instead. They get told to come back later. Spencer makes it worse. (laughs) They start to have a mob swarm after them. Matteo escapes! Cat and Spencer escape into the market while Tommy turns and stares down the mob. They disperse, but the party is split. Cat finds herself in a pottery shop. She gets a big mug. They manage to all meet up again in the pottery shop. Tommy punches Spencer. Tommy is not amused. Sam has a nice meal at a restaurant. He's having a wonderful time. 
Mattia also finds the guys again. Tommy asks if he'd help a bit more if things like that happen again. Cat, Spencer, Tommy and Matteo meet up with Sam and start to have a nice time. Meanwhile, at the university, Prof Sanchez tells of us of a document his assistant, Rizzo, is translating for him. He sends Liza to go get her. Felix asks the Prof about the pyramid. It's in the tributaries of Lake Titicaca. <laughs> he warns us it's a long way by land and asks for anything we can bring back. Liza sees a monster eating Rizzo. She shrieks and runs. Eventually, Felix hears and runs out, just as Liza runs up the corridor and into Prof Sanchez's office. Prof Sanchez also runs in there and locks the door. Luckily, Felix has his gun with him. Jackson grabs a light stand. Liza and the Prof grab some ancient spears. Felix tackles the monster out of a window. It falls two floors, but still manages to get back up. Liza and the prof exit to the corridor. Felix shoots at the monster as it starts to scale the outside of the building. He blows its head off. By the way, it was Mendoza. Liza and the prof head back to Rizzo. Felix follows. Rizzo has a wound in her chest and is pale and emaciated. Liza starts looking at papers while Felix goes out to see the body. The police have arrived. Prof Sanchez and Jackson provide Rizzo with first aid. They come back as Liza finds a book and artifact. They resolve to find Larkin and head back to the hotel. Meanwhile, at the market, the others are generally wandering around and catching up. Cat buys lots of alpaca and llama wool ponchos, five and eleven respectively. Craig is very happy about this. Liza has a proper look at the artifact when she meets up with the rest of the team back at the hotel. It's definitely Tiwanaku, a civilization that predates the Incan Empire. It's been prized off of a larger piece. <coughs> Jackson and Felix arrive at the Spania Hotel, where the old receptionist is still. Jackson finds out what room Larkin should be in. The room stinks of sweat and rotting meat. Larkin is in the bed. He is strapped in and has been dosed with heroin. On his chest is a tattoo of the god of a bloody tongue. Felix unties him and tries to revive him. It works eventually. He's high as balls. They get help for him. Or rather, Jackson goes for help. Felix starts turning over a room for clues. He collects all the papers, then checks Mendoza's room. There's a golden mask on his desk. Well, a face, not a mask, per se. Felix grabs it. He sees a bloody orgy vision in the artifact as he picks it up. This does not sit well with him. The others arrive at the Hotel Hispania and find paramedics while there for Larkin. Then they hear Felix scream. They see Larkin in the bed and the dazed Felix. He mutters about the sun and moon and blood. They all chatter about everything to try and make some sense of it all. Liza examines the expedition notes. They are exactly what they seem to be. Sam tries to calm Felix down a bit. Tommy finds more heroin. Is Larkin an addict then, we wonder? (coughs) Cat tries to apologise to the old receptionist lady for earlier and she asks Cat what is going on. 
cat gets a room. The others come downstairs. Now we all have rooms at Hispania. Felix heads back up to Larkin's room. He's looking for a heroin, but it is gone. It's getting dark by the time we finish changing hotel. Sam wants to talk to Jackson at the hospital, but doesn't tonight. Felix and Eliza return to their rooms. Everyone else starts checking the equipment <coughs> at Hispania's courtyard. We all go to bed. Liza is woken by a noise in the night. She grabs her shotgun and sits waiting. Felix wakes up to the big leech slipping a thing into his mouth from its mouth. Gross. He flings it off and spits out the thing. It's a giant leech-like maggot. He screams. Liza hears and runs upstairs, blowing his door open just in time to see the monster escape from the window. She blasts the maggot just as everyone else arrives. Some shenanigans ensue when everyone realises Spencer is missing. All evidence suggests he has <coughs> suffered the fate Felix nearly did. <coughs> the old receptionist lady makes him sick by making him drink salt water. A maggot leech comes out of him. Tommy kills it. She, the old woman, goes to a shrine she has and starts praying in Latin, putting rosaries on anyone who follows her. Eventually we go to bed this time in groups to stay safe from the evil lurking in the night. We all have breakfast. Everyone except Sam goes to the hospital to see Larkin. Sam has a nice time at at a church. The hospital team gets stonewalled, except Felix, who has been placed on his visitors list. Felix goes in to see him. Cat gets allowed through too. Larkin is looking better than he has since we've met him. He says the last couple of months are blurred. Mendoza has been drugging him for months, he says, and threatening him. (coughs) He still wants to go on the expedition to find out what Mendoza wants. Also, he's already shot Mendoza in the head twice, and he keeps coming back. Larkin has seen Mendoza put a maggot in someone before. It took over before a few days, or after a few days, rather. He also says it was Mendoza that didn't want Sanchez involved. He entrusts Felix with his heroin prescription. Sam arrives at the hospital as Cat and Felix come back from Larkin's ward. Felix tells the group about his conversation with Larkin. Matteo sneaks deeper into the hospital. Matteo sneaks around for Larkin. A nurse interrupts him and sends him back towards the reception. He gives up for now. Felix learns that Rizzo has died. Most of the fatty tissues under her skin had been drained, and there was simply nothing they could do. The group remember that Rizzo had found something in the book that linked it to an object. Matteo is looking for another way into the hospital when he sees Mendoza forcing a window. Mendoza leaves, and Matteo uses that window to talk to Larkin. They talk about money. He negotiates for double, then leaves as Larkin pulls the cord to ask for a room with no windows. He heads back to the party. Felix stays at the hospital to guard Larkin. The others head back to get the gold when they realise it's probably very important. Matteo and Spencer study the book all day. Wise and Cat head out into the town. Tommy was there too. They go up a hill, see some nice tourist ruins, and have fun time at a festival. 
Sam finds a park with plants so he can practice his botany. Felix stays with Larkin. Larkin wakes up and tells him of Mendoza's mirror, which Felix stole earlier. Apparently, anyone who touches it is cursed. Felix does not tell him of the fact he now has it. Spencer turns up to relieve Felix of his watch over Larkin. Apparently, Mendoza wanted certain people on this expedition specifically, question mark. Spencer does some singing for Larkin. On Felix's way out, he finds the one nurse who can speak English and asks her to make sure he, the orderlies keep an eye on Spencer and Larkin. Then Felix seduces her for good measure. They go on a date. Eventually, he heads home. Sam talks to Matteo a bit while he works on the book. Felix gets back about 11pm and tells Sam and Matteo of Mendoza's mirror. It's definitely another Tuanaku artefact. Felix gives it to Tommy. He sees a vision of being on top of an Incan pyramid as a great part. As a tentacle monstrosity shrugs it off, he drops it. Also, the girls arrive back at some time before that last bit happened. Sam picks it up. Meanwhile, Felix mentions it's how Mendoza contacts the Dark God. Sam sees himself on a train in Kenya. But then there's smoke and noise and screaming as villagers get slaughtered. He drops it. Then, as it's picked up again by Sam, the light scatters off it and hits multiple people. Liza, Matthew and Tommy see nothing, but everyone else sees a vision of the sky breaking open. The people who saw visions relate their visions. Felix and Sam get into a kerfuffle over a barricaded room in the mirror. Tommy goes into a barricaded room and everyone else also goes to their rooms to sleep. Spencer fails to stay awake. Breakfast happens. Cat gets told the trucks have arrived and uses no-goes to meet them. (coughs) There's three of them and they're very large. Cat checks and signs for them. Turns out... The drivers are not included. Larkin, you pillock. <laughs> Felix is going back to the hospital to check on Spencer and Larkin. Jackson turns up for breakfast too. He's feeling better. Also, he can drive too. It seems there may be a museum outing. Question mark. Felix gets to the hospital. Larkin is being released. Felix tries to gaslight Larkin into believing he gave him Mendoza's mirror. He fails. They get a taxi back to the hotel. Matteo does some more reading all day. In the museum, Cat, Liza, Sam and Tommy wander around. There's a, a <coughs> Tiwanaku exhibition. Sam sees an interesting thing talking of how they went extinct, fighting the father of maggots. Also, Liza realises gold isn't present here. It was used in only the most holy of relics. We all troop off to see Prof. Sanchez. Matteo is still reading and looking after both artefacts. In fact, he finishes it in this setting. Spencer is having a nap. When he wakes up, he feels pretty shit still. Jesse slash Jackson is there too. There is some banter. Matteo announces he's done with the book and Jackson gives him a bonus. Matteo writes out a summary of the book. 
The team at the university find that Sanchez has run off on holiday. Without credentials, the team would be unable to access material on the Tuanaku. They head back to ask if Jackson has research credentials with them, so the team decides to bribe the university, maybe? When it turns out that Jackson doesn't? At the hospital, Felix and Larkin are about to head back. Uh, Felix finally cashes his purloined heroin prescription in. They head back to the hotel. It turns out Larkin is a research fellow with the university and has already written the academics' letters of recommendation to the university. Felix, Liza and Sam head back to the university. Spencer considers going back to sleep, but waits to hear Matteo's notes about the book. At the university, we meet the curator again. We get access to the library, only to find that all the books on Tiwanaku are gone and we will have no access granted to Professor Sanchez's personal collection. We ask for a list of books that may be available in the town. Back at the hotel, they ask a hotel owner what she may know of the monster. She knows that stories of them have been around for centuries. They are always white men. Burning them may work? Question mark? Larkin turns up and says fire hasn't worked on Mendoza. He is getting itchy to leave. Worried the delay will mean the rainy season will catch us. He convinces everyone to start loading books. <coughs> the library team eventually finds a single copy of one of the books. It will cost $400. It's decided to go see if Cat can afford it. On returning, it's further decided to see what other options are available tomorrow. Liza stays with Jackson for a quiet night watching over the artefacts. Spence has an early night, and everyone else goes out for one last night on the town before we head into the heart of the Peruvian jungles. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. We woke up and had breakfast. We went into town to buy books about the Tuanaku. We got a taxi into a nearby town called Kalau to buy the books we needed and suddenly saw Mendoza. Some of us chased after him, but we were stopped by the police and arrested. The rest of the party met a friendly bookseller called Medal in a bazaar tent. Like a tent from a bazaar, not an unusual tent. Kat took her slaves back to the bookshop from yesterday, and they were much more helpful to her during the day. Tommy was told to look up Naira when they get to Puno, a local soothsayer, apparently. At the police station, we explained the situation, had tea and were released, and got back to the others with the bookseller. We, from our various sources, winnowed out a number of books important to the cause. Researching more, we found an image of Mendoza in the diary of a conquistador. Madal, the Arabic book tent owner, handed me a note as we left. Back at the hotel, some of us relaxed, some of us researched, and some of us went to the pub for dinner. Recap. We drove off, splitting ourselves across the three trucks, and after a few false starts, headed off down the coastal road. We stopped at the town of Pisco, where Pisco Sours were invented. I got lit in the bar, and then scared off some children who were robbing our trucks. Then we went into town to replace the produce that they'd pinched. In town, Cat found out that some local boats had been attacked by the Karishar, the fat-sucking vampire of legend. We also realised we need to maintain our weapons daily, they're covered in an odd amount of mildew. 
After we slept, we realised the tyres had been stolen off the trucks and laboriously went to get them back, an elaborate and tedious system of extortion. We drove off again, eventually. We had a break, where I did some drawing, and none of us had a fish swim up our pee holes. We drove throughout the afternoon rains, eventually establishing a camp in a clearing. We had a restful night's sleep, drove another day to the town of Kamana, where we stayed in a hotel and showered off all of our gross stink. I read a guide to Peru, and then obtained another guide to read on the indigenous people of Peru. Cat went out to obtain some light reading in the form of some Virginia Woolf novels, and Samuel read a small pamphlet and went mad. Recap. Samuel had gone mad, because it turns out the pamphlet is written by himself. We talked him back down off the ledge eventually. Cat insisted we go the long way to observe the views from a vista, and Lisa saw the Peruvian Death Adder. But she left it alone. We continued up the cliff, and then Spencer blew out both tyres and almost fell off a cliff, instead doing a flip. Everyone inside was lightly maimed, except for Lisa. Uh, Eventually, we flipped the truck back over, drove it to the top of the mountain, and set up camp. Suddenly, everyone started fainting. Altitude sickness! I caught Liza and her telescope like a hero. We drove them to safety at a lower altitude. I got the flare gun ready in case of distress. Meanwhile, at the top of the hill, an attack! Four Karishar attack, frenzying Spencer and grappling Mateo. At the bottom of the hill, gin and tonics. Spencer threw one off a cliff and Larkin blew up the fire, alerting us to the badness. Also, the falling vampire hit the road in front of us and that was kind of a big clue. Mateo got some fangs to the shoulder and a little non-consensual liposuction. Tommy got crunched by the fallen vampire. Spencer grabbed Larkin. Mateo saved Larkin. I shot one in the face with a flare gun. It was awesome. I'm basically amazing. We drove slowly up the cliff. First aid and rest were liberally applied. I cooked breakfast, and Liza and Samuel discovered a strange and unusual plant. We drove on and finally arrived in Puno. Recap. Oh, Christ. (laughs) We checked into a hotel, securing our possessions, some of us relaxing in the hotel spa. Spencer and I had a bath and discussed Larkin. Spencer had attacked him because he'd sensed evil. Larkin arrived at that point to join us, awkwardly abating our discussion. We noted his large chest tattoo of Nialathotep that we don't have enough Cthulhu mythos to identify. Sad face. Samuel went to wander around Puno, uh, realised he was being followed by a gang of mysterious tramps, tried to avoid them by dodging through someone's home, and ended up with a walk to the face. Unconscious. Kat, Tommy and Matteo went to buy hats and encountered the same group. Matteo approached one to warn them off and found a rotting undead nightmare. They fled and were accosted by a huge stack of chicken crates. Eventually they escaped back to the hotel. Back at the baths, we progressed to smoking excellent Czechoslovakian cigars, which aren't great cigars. Samuel woke up, stripped of valuables, and being interrogated by a priest who splashed him with holy water to prove he's not an abomination. He isn't now, apparently. He handed over the magic mirror and had a vision. He saw a map of the world and Nyarlathotep, the dark pharaoh, on his throne. 
He spoke to him, using his name, and said he'd give the doctor what he wanted, and touched him with his ank. Discontinuity. Everyone returned to the hotel, except Samuel. Tommy patrolled the hotel perimeter to keep an eye on things, while Cat and Liza went to relax in the baths. Spencer half-heartedly went to look for the missing Samuel. Meanwhile, Samuel had agreed to some sinister pact that we don't know the deets of, but will come back to haunt us later. Sad face. Samuel returned. We went to bed, and Liza went up to the roof to disprove magic by using the spell she had researched, except obviously she summoned some sort of sexy cat-eating tentacle beast that joined her in the bath for a Q&A session. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, it's here to eat life, though it won't kill her, the avatar of Nyarlathotep, or the avatar of Ithakwa. Super awesome, by the way, that there are two avatars of Elder Gods in the hotel, Kof Kof, Larkin, and Samuel. (laughs) Also, we should close the ward, and all of the children of the father of maggots will vanish. Samuel awoke and went to investigate the mysterious tendril beast, then chickened out at the last minute and went back to bed when it addressed him. (laughs) Running out of useful questions to ask... Liza tried to make awkward co-worker in an elevator small talk with the creature and it ended up singing the Song of Souls for her entertainment almost drawing in everyone in the building to be cast into the void forever. Larkin stopped me but Cat and Spencer left their rooms to investigate the heavenly singing. Cat got an eyeful of the creature which then moved off into the sky. Everyone eventually returned to bed but Liza and Cat had a little chat about the Void Beast. So Liza gave Cat the book of magic spells she'd read and helped her to read it. Of course she did. What has science done? (laughs) We woke up and went to get breakfast, but we didn't get any breakfast because a quarter of the city had died in their sleep. A third. (laughs) Get it right. Let's not quibble. (laughs) Liza fled back to her room screaming. We got into the trucks. Feeling that it was important to just abandon all the subplots here because all the locals involved are corpses now. We headed off towards the southeast to the pyramid. Nyathotep of masks previously. Recap. We surveyed the town that we had decimated from a distance and realised that we'd left important stuff behind. Llamas. We had to find replacements. We drove until we found a village. A farmer agreed to sell us some llamas at a ridiculous markup. Everyone went to buy llamas and stock up on the missing supplies while I petted a llama. (laughs) I now have a riding llama called Josephine. We transferred everything from truck to llama and secured the trucks. We stayed overnight learning to ride llamas. The girl stayed up late reading Forbidden Tomes. Liza freaked out a bit about her sudden reality lesson and did a shout before bed. I picked up some of her shouts and quizzed Samuel about it before sleeping. We rode up the mountain. We set up camp and Spencer ruined dinner and was wrapped up with a snake. We went to save him and ended up barbecuing the snake. It was only an anaconda, not a Peruvian death adder. After tending to Spencer's crush damage, we went to bed. Liza had a nightmare which told her the work has failed and congratulated her on her murder spree, and she woke up terrified. We swapped watches and were attacked. A man had eaten some of a llama, thankfully not Josephine. We checked the tents. 
Matteo nearly getting his head shot off, but all was well, and we settled down and slept again. We started off again, back up the mountain. We We went up a gully on the llamas, led by Matteo. It ends in a cliff. Matteo tried to go up the cliffside, but his llama fell and died. We managed to get up there eventually, but Cat almost fell to her death. Tommy saved her. We got to the top of the plateau. Wonderful views. We saw the ruins. A Tiwanaku pyramid, surrounded by walls. A fortification. We set up our tents on a hill overlooking the ruins. We got all our ducks in a row, and then we did some astronomy. Samuel snuck off and summoned some sort of horror, and made a sinister pact of some kind in exchange for sorcery. It made spooky fog appear, which ruined everyone's night, so we all went to bed. Liza got another congratulatory message from her new employer, the father of maggots. Uh, Samuel and Tommy, who were on watch, saw Larkin watching the dig site. The morning came, and we had breakfast, uh, made our plan, and headed down to the ruins. There are some scary faces on the gates, and everything. We pressed onwards inside, Tommy and Samuel investigating a pit in the ground, and me, Matteo, and Liza investigating the pyramid. The pit is full of stinking, putrescent corpses, some very fresh. Matteo clambered up the ziggurat. There's a crack on the roof. Flies are boiling out of it. Back at the camp, Mendoza walked into the tent with a shotgun, sedated Jesse with a word, and shot at Spencer. Spencer used his sword cane to escape the tent and find some formaldehyde to defend himself. Mendoza headed downwards towards the ruins. Jesse was woken, and they tried to signal us with a mirror. We decided to return from the dig site and reach the top, seemingly missing Mendoza on the way. We need to formulate a new plan. And quickly. Rika. We gathered our supplies and headed down the mountain, but not before Tommy discovered a firebomb in our fuel dump, which had also been sabotaged. We also found that the golden rod was missing. Halfway down, we saw Mendoza and Tukarishar on the pyramid roof, performing some sort of ritual. We took them down with rifle fire. Spencer, Samuel and Matteo moved to the top of the ziggurat and fought more Karishar before discovering that Mendoza is an imposter. It's a trap! Suddenly, Larkin handed me a stick of lit dynamite. I hurled it away, and a fell wind carried it to the bottom of the ziggurat. I turned to Larkin, and his eyes had gone black. I hit him in the face with my rifle butt, and he quipped at me. Liza realised who he was, and screamed. Giant maggots started appearing from the crack in the ziggurat. Sam kicked one into the air and shot it to bits. It was really cool. There was more dynamite. Flares. Maggots. Excitement. Nyalathotep, for that is whom Larkin truly is, was generally a prick to us. Cat saved the day by jumping down a hole and putting out the fuse on a stick of dynamite. Tommy killed Larkin with a heroin overdose. Nyalathotep made me understand, seeing visions of his many forms, driving me into a rage. Nyalathotep drove Larkin's corpse into the hole after the girls. We all followed him, me slipping and smacking him onto the floor. It all turned into a ludicrous slap fight. Liza ran into a room off the main corridor containing Mendoza's body and the stolen golden rod, which had been melted down in a forge. She started looking for a mould to reshape the golden stick. Me and Tommy desperately engaged Nyalathotep in a fist fight. Recap. We resumed our fist fight with Nyalathotep. He cheats too much. Tommy was driven mad and collapses. 
I need Nyan to step in the balls. And we did some verbal and physical sparring. Tommy ran past me, and Nyanthep implied that he had control of him. Liza and Kat finished the mould of the gold. Nyanthep turned me to stone, but I resisted somehow. The others arrived to help. There was a brief, who is the real evil person here, bit, but eventually Nyanthep just erased all of our short-term memories, so we were just like, but <laughs> while he went to accost Liza. He just missed Tommy, who ran past carrying a reluctant cat. She shouted at him to go back, and eventually he did. Nyathep got into a with Liza and tried to possess her. Spencer finally arrived. I eventually broke out of his control. I eventually broke out of his control and ran back to the forge. We all arrived. Nyathep was still fighting back, and eventually Samuel blew his head apart with a shotgun. The body dissolved into goo after warning us we'd meet again. We found the gap in the seal and refilled it with gold. We foiled his plans. On the way back, we pilfered like a ton of gold, and I said a tearful farewell to Josephine. We return to Lima, and henceforth, to our various destinations, we move on into the future. Recap. We all met up at Jackson's insistence at his hotel in New York, only to find him being attacked by cultists. He had been stabbed to death with a machete, a sigil carved in his forehead. We fought them off, chasing some to the fire escape where they were trying to flee with his briefcase. Nosy New Yorkers helped us subdue the cultists. The police arrive, and things get really formal. We discover that this isn't the first cult killing in New York. We scuttled to the Vanderbilt penthouse, met up with some of Cat and Liza's family. I brooded by the fire, and told the party a friend of mine had been killed in the same fashion, and I knew the cultist's name, the Cult of the Bloody Tongue, a name Samuel seemed to have heard before. Cat showed us a matchbook she had found in Jackson's room, from the Stumbling Tiger in Shanghai. I spoke about how I knew Jackson had gone to Shanghai for his research. Recap! Carlton Ramsey came to see us. He's Jackson's lawyer. Me and Liza are here, the executors of his will, and are to attend his funeral or will reading. We decided our plan. Liza, Sam, and Robin will go to Arkham and use the library to find out more information. Cat, me, and Tommy will go to the publishers and the police station. Me and Cat discussed what we'd done during our intervening five years. We reached out my publisher, Jonah Kensington, at Prospero House. He passed us Eli- Elias's notes. He thought some of the Carlisle expedition had survived. He provided us a mad note written by Elias to his publisher, including a weird chart and Roger Carlyle's psychological file. Carlyle has bad dreams. Dreams of Nyarthotep, which the psychologist encouraged him to talk to. Carlyle went to Egypt with his dodgy psychiatrist and an African priestess. Back in Arkham, Sam and Robin played chess on the train. They visited the library, discovered information about the cult in the Africa section. The cult were cannibals in the mountain of the Black Wind. They were held up returning when the train hit a snowbank. Recap! We went to try to get Jackson's briefcase from the 14th Precinct, but Captain Robson did not want to see us. He seems quite suspicious. He drives a very fancy car. 
Tommy suggested we speak to the lawyer about access to his effects. Fortunately, he's already secured them. We can have them at the will reading. We return to the Vanderbilt penthouse, nervously waiting for the others, until Liza called to explain the train delay. They arrived, and we discussed Black Wind Mountain in Africa, before Roger Vanderbilt told us our bedtime reading was morbid and sent us all to bed. Tommy dreamed of a plateau, a giant astride a black mountain. Then he pinched himself awake. We attended Jackson's funeral. It was sombre and apposite. Cat spoke some words, which made us all cry. When he was buried, we spoke to some of the mourners, including Rebecca Schosenberg, a reporter investigating the murders. We returned to the Vanderbilt penthouse, worried about what we'd gotten ourselves into. Robin returned to his shop to check in there. Rebecca Schosenberg arrived. She wants Robin to meet Millie Adams, Hilton Adams' wife, the man who's been incarcerated for the murders. They're going to meet at the Lafayette Theatre tomorrow, but he can only bring one witness. No Vanderbilts. Kat thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. In the Vanderbilt penthouse... In the Vanderbilt penthouse... Cat's daughters surprised us. I told them a story so that Liza could escape to her room. She practiced the flute, her new hobby. Cat spoke to me, reminding me we should speak to Erica Carlyle and Rebecca Schosenberg. Liza approached Tommy and asked him for self-defense training. Cat thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. We slept. The subsequent day, Robin asked me to talk to Millie with him. Roger and the kids decided to go to Canada to get out from underfoot. Me and Robin left to go to the Lafayette Theatre. Cat thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. We met Millie at the Lafayette Theatre. She wants us to help get him released. She tells us Hilton's story. When the murders started, he organised neighbourhood watches to keep the locals safe. The police got angry and blamed him. A local doctor, Mordecai Lemming, mentioned a death cult which Hilton researched. He mentioned a place, the Juju House, to Needham Johnson, a friend of his, and then he was arrested. He was framed by the police. His knife was found at the scene. Millie suggests we can maybe go to Teddy's, a local speakeasy, as long as we tell them that she sent us. Samuel went to see Kensington at Prospero House, and he passed on a cryptic note from Elias left before his death. The snow is falling. The crawling ones touch slumbers. But Professor Pennington's patron is waxing strong. They went out to lunch. Recap Craig. Carlton Ramsey brought us the will, including a recording from Jackson, asking us to help him one last time to investigate the Carlisle expedition. In his briefcase, a photo of a boat in Shanghai Harbour. It's a steam yacht. The first three letters of the sign are D-A-R. A business card from the Penhue Foundation in London. Edward Gavigan, the proprietor. A business card from Emerson Imports, with Silas Nkwame written on the back. A letter from Warren Bassant to Roger Carlyle is a person who can get him artefacts in Cairo. A letter from the Harvard University Library. There's a book not in the collection anymore. Miriam Artwright, the librarian, will be happy to help him look for it. There's a leaflet for a lecture. The Cult of Darkness in Polynesia and Southwest Africa. And finally, a matchbook from the Shanghai Stumbling Tiger. Will Vanderbilt told us that we were having a party tonight. Cat manipulated things to ensure Erica Carlyle would attend. She's becoming a true Vanderbilt. We recalled our current clues. 
Erica Carlisle, the bar named Teddy, Emerson Imports, the Juju House, the Australian Professor, who's giving the lecture on darkness in Polynesia, the Police Speakeasy, where the code word is onomatopoeia, the Harvard Librarian, the Shanghai Steam Yacht, the Penhu Foundation, Warren Bassant in Cairo, the Tiger Den in Shanghai, Lieutenant Poole, and Dr. Mordecai Lemming. Robin and I decided to investigate Teddy, Dr. Lemming, and the Juju House. Samuel was going to Emerson Shipping. The ladies decided to go get pretty for the party. They went uptown and arranged lovely outfits for this evening, having them dropped off at the Vanderbilt penthouse. Samuel, at Emerson Imports, discovered Jackson had been there last week, asking about their Mombasa importers. Curious about Aja Singh, a man importing curios to the Juju house. Silas Nkwame is the owner. He's discovered that me and Robin are in danger. Robin and I enter Teddy's, telling them that Millie sent us. It's too early in the day, so we just ask the proprietor about the Juju house. She thinks it's just a store and maybe a select nightclub. Liza and Kat went to an orphanage and bought it in a painfully metagamey attempt to boost their ailing sanity and luck and not from any sense of genuine altruism. Samuel went to stake out the Juju house to stop me and Robin before it's too late. He failed. It's too late. Robin and I went into the Juju house. It was full of African fetishes and tribal spears and shields. Robin determined that they were all legit, very high quality. It was run by a scrawny old black man, Silas Nkwame. I asked him about Jackson Elias. I recognised him as the man who'd come to Jackson's funeral with ill intent. He said Jackson had just been buying things from him. He invited us into his back room to see what Jackson had intended to purchase from him. An obsidian statue. Priceless. We left quickly, Nkwame asking what it was like to be in his presence. We then fled, but not before Nkwame received Robin's business card. We escaped into a cab, grabbing a wandering Samuel along the way. We ran back to the Vanderbilt penthouse, forgetting to return to Teddy's. Along the way, Robin asked to be clued into all the mysteries, but we said we'd get back to him. We arrived at the Vanderbilt penthouse in time to be fashionably late for the party. I was dressed up as a glam Arabian prince. Cat thought about Roger Carlyle's penis. We schmoozed at the party, particularly with Erica Carlyle. We discussed that we need to talk to her about her brother's expedition. She invites Samuel and Liza to her mansion tomorrow to discuss the matters over lunch. I schmoozed with her a little, and then Spencer arrived. Previously on Mars, <laughs> <laughs> no, forget it, just forget it. <laughs> Who got the word? Recap. Spencer arrived and handed out gifts like summer Santa. We all did the Charleston. Afterwards, we had a meeting to get Robin up to date. We told him all about our trip to Peru and I cast a magic spell to show him magic was real, which might not have been the best idea. Liza and Kat and me had a little oblique chat about their extracurricular activities, but we decided to talk more about that later. We all went to bed. Many of us slept well. The storm helped. But Tommy dreamt of the murder of his mother, 
with his own machine gun. And Spencer dreamt of sacrificing a child in a stage show in front of the director. Nyarlathotep. Cat thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. <laughs> we had breakfast and plotted. Cat, Liza and Tommy are going to see Erica Carlisle. Me, Spencer and Robin went to a gun shop to resupply and then on to see Dr. Lemming in Harlem. Dr. Lemming seemed reluctant to talk to us after we mentioned the cult of the bloody tongue. In fact, he got out a shotgun. But after lightly calming him, he told us basically what he told the police and that we have to go and talk to Hilton Adams. Recap. The Vandergals went upstate to the Carlisle estate. Erica seemed oddly reluctant until we showed her a letter from Jackson explaining he'd spoken to someone who'd seen Jack Brady after he allegedly died. She described the members of the expedition to us. Roger Carlyle, her brother. Hypatia Masters, a photographer. Dr. Robert Huston, a shifty psychiatrist. Sir Aubrey Penhew, an Egyptologist. Bounet, Roger's lover. Jack Brady, Roger's bodyguard and manservant. Roger got Jack off on a murder charge, so he's extremely loyal. She opened Roger's safe and gave us some books. Cat received the books. The Narcotic Manuscripts from the 15th century. Life as a God from the 18th century. The Selections from the Libre Divan, 13th century. And Amongst the Stones, 1918. She mentioned that the 1920s copy of Amongst the Stones is completely different. Apparently, Roger was obsessed with these books. Back in Harlem, we went to the Lafayette Theatre. Police have secured it. Millie has gone missing, and Captain Robson is there, framing people for the crime. We picked up Rebecca Schosenberg, the reporter investigating these murders, and drove to a local tea shop. We planned. She will arrange for me and Spencer to go to Sing Sing to see Hilton Adams, and we'll arrange a watch on the Juju House. The Vandergals fled the estate, and it turned out they were being followed. They shook off the tail and returned to the penthouse. Tommy gave Cat and Liza a self-defence lesson. Spencer, Robin and I went to go into the Vanderbilt building, and Robin and Spencer were not allowed. I called in and got Liza to add them to the list of people who, since security has been raised, can enter the building. And the receptionist asked her if the repairmen were done. Dun, dun, dun. Liza ran to her room. Cultists! Shotguns! I got the lift up, my own gun ready. There was an intense kerfuffle, and Tommy, Liza, and Kat killed the two cultists. Then it got all exciting with police and whatnot. We drove to the Vanderbilt compound to secure ourselves. Tommy was taken to hospital to repair his damaged hand. Recap. At the Vanderbilt compound, Liza and Kat were resting. We discussed the split of the books they'd received from the safe. Tommy woke up on a gurney. He's been imprisoned by the cult. Eventually, Millie and Rebecca, who are also imprisoned, free him. The girls are told not to panic and to rest. Me and the Vanderbarmy go to rescue him. Tommy meets the high priest of the cult, Makunga Madari, who says it's time to complete what he started four years ago. He comes out wearing a sacrificial garb and wearing masks. Tommy sees a screaming shape writhing with tendrils, surrounded by a ring of human forms twisted into a squirming mass of fluting instruments, playing an awful piping. His memory is erased. 
The Vandergals get a note from me explaining the sitch. Spencer comes with us while they decide to stay. We get our pick of the best Vanderguns. Back in the cage, the High Priest trolls Tommy, saying that he'd killed Kat and her children. He then showed them a nightmare beast in the basement pit, a snake with a thousand human heads, screaming. Kat and Liza are in the bedroom. Liza is being sent by William to Montreal tomorrow. With furious impotence, they read. We get to the rear of the Juju house eventually, and go to break in. There was a huge Barney. Cultists were killed. Vandagoons were killed. Makunga unleashed the Chakota. That's the weird snake. We shot it with a thousand million bullets. It died. It fell back into the pit and we put the lid back on it. The police arrived. We fled back to the Vanda mansion. We got some sand and luck back. We're amazing. Recap. We had breakfast in the V-Zone. Liza got a lovely note from Nyarlathotep, which made her storm off for a 9am booze up. Should I read it for the recording? Uh, sure, why not? My dearest queen, I... Cream? Have been... Queen. Queen. I have been informed you have thwarted my minions in the Big Apple. I'm thrilled that you are once again thrusting yourself into my business. I look forward to our next meeting... It shall be soon, except NXX. Professor Armitage and Erica Carlyle arrive for a brief chat. Cap thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. We discussed our potential expedition to chase down the survivor of the Carlyle expedition. We probably have to go to Shanghai. Shanghai. Professor Armitage helped us up with spells and occult analysis. Spencer and Cap went bonkers, but in different ways. Turns out we're going to Arkham, lads! Pre. V. Lee. On. Masks. Of. Nya. La. Tho. Death. Yay! <laughs> Great! Let's <laughs> 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 together. <laughs> Recap. We had spent some time in Arkham. We went to Liza's house. We're getting a train to New York and thence to Hong Kong. The plan is to go from Arkham to New York to San Francisco, then get on a boat to Honolulu, Yokohama, and thence to Hong Kong. We arranged to have a translator meet us in San Francisco. Cat and Robin get a train back to New York to go and see the police chief to read Africa's Dark Sects. The book has a nightmarish message on the seal on the cover, a message about opening the way for the crawling chaos. Cat stole it. Robin shut his store down. The rest went to Arkham University to see Professor Anthony Cowles from Sydney about his Cults of Darkness in Polynesia lecture. He spoke about a bat cult worshipping the father of bats. We noted the similarities with the cult we found in Peru. Spencer and Samuel went to a coffee shop to discuss his gift, a scroll telling how to find another being like Nyarlathotep. Liza went back home to read. I went to see Dr. Armitage in the library basement stacks. I borrowed a book about unknowable Kadath from him. Then we went for a lovely afternoon dinner date. Samuel summoned Ithakwa for a brief chat about the scroll he'd received, the Alazif, part four. It's a ritual to summon Yogg's Thoth. 
He brought in a blizzard which ruined our train home. We tried to drive back, skidded on black ice, hit a tree and ended up in a snowbank. We returned to the station, Liza getting a little frostbitten on the way. At the station we warmed ourselves, then bribed our way onto a plough train back to New York. We returned to the Vander building. We can. We got on the Vander train! It's a 30 carriage train with our car attached. We left New York. Spencer and Samuel discussed where his scroll came from. Madal, the bookseller, who's currently in Los Angeles. We all discussed our potential trip to Egypt. Life as a god suggests that there are other chambers in the Bent Pyramid which cults are very interested in. Samuel went off to perform a mysterious rite on the train carriage. Cat noticed, but couldn't quite see what he was up to. Liza and me had a chat about our findings. We showed each other our bare flesh to prove that we aren't avatars, and I asked her about the unspeakable promise. We thought about the avatar of Ithakwa, but we don't know anything relevant right now. Kat and Spencer went to the lounge and inadvertently arranged a seance for tonight. Samuel popped in to ask Liza for permission to ward her bedroom, to which she reluctantly agreed. We all went to lunch. Spencer told us we all had to come to his seance. Sam's ward tripped and he suspected Kat was the person who'd set it off. He confronted her, but she said she didn't know what it was. We went to the seance, and there was a weird moment when we saw Jackson Elias, who warned us we were following the path he went down. Recap. We found out that Samuel is the avatar of Ithaqua. He says that he's not. We all got naked to prove we aren't marked in the same way as Larkin was. It was not horny. We all went round in a circle and confessed what weird mythos crimes we've been up to lately, and decided to provisionally trust Sam. We all split up for various study sessions. We slept. Samuel spoke to Ithaqua again. He said that we're entering the heart of winter, and his room was filled with ice. So he switched to another one. Everyone else studied, Robin learning how to summon the star vampire. Cat thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. Everyone continued to study, except Spencer, who threw an impromptu rave. Samuel prepared to gain a boon from Ithaqua. Recap. He sounds like a ghost because reasons. <laughs> Samuel asked Ithaqua for the boon, which lets him banish any creature he comes into contact with. As he leaves, oh, as Ithaqua leaves, our train crashes in the snow, and many of us are injured. Liza was cut badly by glass. Eventually, we did some first aid on her, but she'll need surgery to remove the glass. A doctor on the train managed to save her life. Spencer was also damaged, but just to his pretty face. Or so we thought. It turns out he had a brain bleed and was dying. I asked Samuel to summon Ithaqua to try to help, and he ended up giving his life so that Spencer could live. I hid in my wardrobe until the following day. I explained to Spencer and Kat what had happened, then resumed my wardrobe. The doctor turned up to check if everyone was okay, and also to be surprised that Spencer was now somehow alive. Overall, it's not been a great day. Recap. We arrived in San Francisco. We checked into the Baywater Hotel. I was circumspect and withdrawn. We met Flinty's new character, Antoine Delamere, a French travel writer. Robin went antiquing. The Vandergals went studying. Then we all went to dinner with the new player character. Rika! We had breakfast. 
Tommy was puzzled about the disappearance of Samuel. I invited Antoine to travel with us. We met our translator, Kay Montague. She speaks many languages. The Vandergals went to see Madal. Me, Walter and Antoine reviewed the list of supplies for the expedition. Cat thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. William Foster Blackwood Mackenzie King turned up and handed out weird gifts like candy. Back at the hotel, we were met by Director Crab of the Black Star Line and Captain Murdoch. We schmoozed and he gave us a list of the first class passengers aboard, excluding ourselves. Professor Bragg, Wyndham Lewis, an author and painter, Lord and Lady Hardwick, occultists, Eric Worthy, the third Duke of Pyle, Lady Famish, a, uh, a horseman of the apocalypse, Prince Harvinder Man, uh, an Indian prince of the Raj. Back with Madal, Kat explained that she wants to write a spell book. Spencer had a freak out and had to be calmed down, and Kat purchased the Libra Divon. Then they all returned to the hotel. Burning eight. We're in the hotel, people studied. We slept and got a taxi to the boat. We boarded the boat, some of us smuggling weapons aboard. We settled into our cabins, and Kat and Liza consolidating themselves into one suite. We went to the observation deck to view the departure, and met a bunch of various toffs. We cruised out to sea. On the way, we met up to watch a film of Spencer's with sound. Antoine spent the trip trying to schmooze and relaxing. Kat schmoozed the Indian prince but remained faithful to her wedding vows. Kat thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. Spencer borrowed life as a god and but got distracted by a beautiful seductress. Liza did some dark evil sorcery. Robin and Antoine read a book. I did a mini lecturing tour, had sex with Lady Famish, spent time dining with the Hardwicks, who seemed to have some genuine knowledge of occultism, and a past encounter with a Thakwa. I studied the Book of Dream Law. On the last night, we noticed that the lady Spencer had been seducing the whole trip was Ithakwa, so we had a medium-intensity freakout. It turns out Ithakwa is a feminist. She left, huffily, revealing that her new body is Samuel's. Tommy has somehow gotten a mythos tome from Madal and summoned a cat called Saturn, which is now his master. We arrived in Honolulu. Me cat. We all relaxed in Honolulu. Liza and Tommy had another self-defense lesson. Liza knocking herself out on the only rock on the beach. We got back on the boat and all failed to see the weird navigation problem. Tommy made a charm, which moved him out of regular time and space. Weird. Liza had another self-defense lesson, then started learning Enochian. Spencer was sad he couldn't fuck Ithaqua, so he read history books in the library. Robin relaxed. Cat studied. Frenchie worked out. I assembled a silver key and tried dreaming. It didn't work? (laughs) The day after, we were hit by a storm, and Tommy and Liza got sick. Everyone started seeing weird shit. I saw some urchins dance into the sea. Tommy's vomit tried to get back into him, etc. Liza met a man dressed as a lemon who told us to stop the engines. (laughs) (laughs) That's not entirely accurate. (laughs) Liza met a man dressed in a lemon suit. (laughs) who told us to stop the engines everyone did a gross puke 
Everyone ended up on the promenade, and we ran towards the bridge. There was a shrill cry from the ship. Craig, do your best shrill cry. Uh, (laughs) Okay. The lights went out, and we all passed out. Spencer awoke and lit his lighter, which exploded. He woke the rest of us. Hardwick arrived, confused. Spencer went to sea over the edge of the ship and screamed, and in his panic, threw Antoine over the side of the boat. As he fell, Liza ran and cast suspension on him. Antoine was saved. Some of us went to the ballroom, and some of us went to engineering. On the path to engineering, I asked Liza to magic up some light. So she turned the staircase into glowing dust. Cat and Tommy went to the radio room to try to call for help. They only heard weird stuff. Tommy summoned Saturn, who turned up as a big tentacly cat monster, and told him we were in the interstice and he had to stop the ship. He freaked out and, ca- and critically failed. Cat uh, saw the cat and also freaked out, but slightly less. Tommy is now in a catatonic state. Antoine and everyone else met a Cthulhu spawn, which scampered away, and they found 200 second-class passengers who need rescuing... Here's the part where we insert the first 20 minutes of the recap that Ashley did for us. Summarise what happened in a haiku. Uh, there are fish people. Many are very, very scared. You already need two more syllables. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> well covered. <laughs> Please kill the fish boys. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so... Uh, from, from the beginning, what was that again? <laughs> to summarise... Yeah, it's it's on the recording. <laughs> uh, yeah. So to summarise, Cat uh, and Tommy found the cargo with the Vanderbilt cargo and collected all your guns. Yes. Um, well, not all the guns, but some of the guns. Yeah. They left all your guns behind, Felix. I'm very sorry. They didn't uh, spot the baggage. Well, I've got, I've got mine. Oh, yeah, you have yours. Fine. Yeah. Just uh, me. <laughs> you've, you've got a gun. It's fine. Um, I've not got my gun. Um, they then found a locked watertight bulkhead and went ah poop. And Cat stopped to check her geometry because she uses geometry, uh, not magic, yeah. maths. Yeah. But you're a warlock. No, you're you're a wizard, and Liza's a warlock. Yeah. But you also use maths. Right. Uh, then uh, you and Robin and Cat, not Cat. Liza were walking through the darkness with Wyndham. Mm. Liza fell over and smashed her glass vase full of magic dust, but managed not to inhale any of it. Then you found the stairs down. You bumped into some coal-shoveling guys, you know, from the engine deck. Nappies. They were were like, we're going up, we're not suicidal. And then they went through the door you came out of, and then um, locked it behind them, trapping you here in the bowels of the ship. Oh dear, jerks. No one wants to be trapped in the bells. Liza and Robin both agreed that they were jerks. Yep. Cool. Antoine and Spencer were attacked by deep ones, killing some of the men with them, so they went and hid in the ballroom. In cargo hold two, Tommy and Saturn opened a hatch to go down further into the all-op deck. They encountered more deep ones, which got sliced into sushi by Saturn. Liza, Felix and Robin went down into the engine room. It's full of water, but the engines are still on. We turned on the power to the rest of the ship. Cat, Tommy, and other cat in the boiler room searched for the device that's keeping the ship in the interstice. They tried to crank open a valve and let lots of bad water flood into the compartment. Saturn saved them by teleportation. And we ran away. 
There was a huge explosion. Fire came out of the chimney of the boat. Saturn cut a hole in a bulkhead for all of us to progress. Inside were a machine, fish dudes, and a baby Cthulhu. Robin ran up to it and kicked it. It was like, ow. I tried to shoot it. My gun squelched. It chatted to us a bit because it is secretly Director Crab. Everyone went up to punch it for some reason, despite the fact that it seemed fairly indifferent to being punched. The Starspawn grabbed Tommy's arm and started to turn him into a fish beast. Saturn showed him mercy and filleted him, making off with his soul. Liza... Liza stabbed the Starspawn with a gold dagger made from Tiwanaku gold. Gold from Nelfotep. So he appeared. He dismissed the Starspawn and said he accepted Liza's marriage offer, which he vigorously denied. We scuttled back up to Adek and the ship returned to the Pacific. Cat fainted at the news that Tommy was dead. Liza wanted me to shoot her with the shotgun so Nyarlathotep couldn't take her. I said I'd kill her, but only if there was no other choice, and then I'd kill myself. The yellow man arrived and formalised my promise. He said he'd give me a gift for looking after Liza. Hastur also popped in to visit Cat to tell her Tommy's soul was safe. We sent out a mayday and were towed to Papua New Guinea. Previously on Marks of Nyarlathotep. We arrived in Hong Kong. On the boat, Spencer saw Ithakwa, his bride. Hasta finalised my deal with him and said he'd be seeing us soon. Chow's new character, Dr. Charles Griffith, is waiting for us on the docks. Liza had been overcome by the heat and was ministered to by the doctor. The others went through customs, losing their handguns in the process. The ones not hidden in the luggage, anyway. We got taxis to the Grand Imperial Hotel. I arranged to meet Hugh Fezoon, my spymaster, to discuss the location of Nails Nelson. I went to chat with the doctor. We all went on a tourist trip of Hong Kong, taking in an opium den for a little relaxation. I did not partake. He replied via telegram, and me and Liza went to the Zen house at midnight where he'd captured and brought Bertrand Nails Nelson to meet us. Back at the hotel, a scream in the dark. Cat woke and went to investigate, tripped over a stool, and found herself surrounded by Chinese men. A fight ensued. Gangsters had their balls shattered like lychees tossed under a freight train, and their heads shot out with a shotgun. The police bought our story. (laughs) Spencer has been beaten unconscious. We hailed the doctor, and he carted Spencer off to the hospital. The doctor investigated a corpse which had fallen from Spencer's window, and discovered, mysteriously, that it had been pierced through on something that was no longer visible. Spoiler alert, probably something ethacual. Liza and I accidentally interrogated Nails Nelson. (laughs) We did, didn't we? Accidentally. In Nairobi, he spoke to Jackson Elias about the last time he saw Jack Brady. It was in Hong Kong about a year ago. He was acting suspiciously, didn't want to be seen, and said he had to go to the hospital to see Terence Bumpton in the asylum. We had him released. Spencer stayed in hospital overnight to check for brain swelling. Me and Liza got back, wasted drunk, and got put to bed. There was a shotgun slumber party. In the morning, we discussed our plan and went to see the doctor. We all went for a light doctoring Except me. Cat is pregnant, 
but none of us know this. Least of all, Roger Vanderbilt's penis. The rest revealed little to our new doctor. Cat, Antoine, Griffin and Robin went to the asylum to investigate the bum man, Terence Bumpton. Liza, Spencer and I went to a Shinto shrine to relax. I did an impromptu chat about Shintoism, then all the bells started to ring. Me and Spencer fled as it was far too loud, but Liza remained. She couldn't hear them. A priest got concerned that she couldn't hear them and said that she was possessed by a demon. She said she wasn't, and they chased us down 300 stairs waving quarterstaffs. Liza tripped and I caught her. Spencer tripped and I just let him roll. At the bottom, I stole a rickshaw and we took off. We realised we probably shouldn't have taken two people with packs with Haster and one with a Thakwa into a temple. At the hospital, the group negotiated with the administrator for access to Terence Bumpton. He's permanently incarcerated. Insane. They got him to agree to let one of them in. Cat went in, but Terence just said that Jack was a traitor and he was clearly Nyarlathotep maddened. He kept wanting to return to his queen. They left. Griffin asked the admin to identify a tattoo he'd seen on a deceased gangster. It's a symbol of the bloated woman. They tried to return, but traffic was oddly bad. They started to walk. We got back to the hotel in the stolen rickshaw, and I paid a boy to lose it. Then I retreated to the bath. Liza took a lesson in Mandarin so that she'd stop calling people big-breasted, and Spencer put ice on his shattered bones. The others arrived back. There's a riot in Hong Kong. Cat revealed that Bumpton is Roger Carlyle. It explains the madness. We discussed what to do. We indoctrinated the Doctor and Antoine. We accidentally indoctrinated Walter. He left. Whoops. He came back. He'd called Roger Vanderbilt. There was some frou-frou. Cat called Roger. Uh, Robin got promoted to bodyguard and told he'd make a million dollars if she survived and be broken if she didn't. Cat thought sadly about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. I showed the doctor the magic barrier spell. He took it well. Ish. Capri? Capri, son? The doctor and Antoine uh, read... The Doctor and Antoine got together to read the case notes. The rest of us gathered for breakfast. It's rainy. We decided to head to Shanghai today. Walter went to book as a boat. Everyone else studied from books. Spencer went to buy disguises. He managed successfully. Cat and Ant read the Livre Divon, because it's in French. I went with Walter to see Hugh to get him to supply our ship. The Doctor went to see Dr. Foster then gave Walter some therapy. We got on a steam yacht we'd hired and left for Shanghai. Antoine got very seasick. Liza got up to something weird with a person-sized crate in her bedroom. I discussed dreaming with the others. We called William Foster Blackwood Mackenzie King on his weird necklace to discuss it. My plan is to try and trap Nyalathotep there in Kadath, but I think I need to do more research. I went into Liza's bedchambers and she taught me something wonderful. Afterwards, we all discussed the dreamlands again. We think we're going to try going there. We all thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. We slept, and all ended up in the dreamlands. We all had forms similar to our usual ones, except Cat, who appeared as a princess, Liza, who's split down the middle, half of her is yellow, 
Spencer, who's an Ithaquan snow beast, and me, who's a sphinx. After some shenanigans involving a quick trip to Kedath and coming back, I revealed that my friend had been killed in Egypt by the cult of the Bloody Tongue, and I had been framed, hence the form. Suddenly, Enon, the keeper of the Steps of Slumber, arrived, and he decided to help us. Recap. We went down the 70 steps to the Cavern of Flame. Liza rode me. We were told Sagotha can hear us now. He's one of the Pillars of Creation, an enemy of Cthulhu who appears as a Pillar of Fire. We went to go to talk to Sagotha, and Liza fell off into the flame off my back, which I found inadvertently hilarious. Eventually, Sagotha clued us into how to temper the silver key, dream up a full moon, and I used it to return us to our beds. Liza instead woke up in the clock in New Orleans, in the parlour of Etienne Laurent de Marigny, with another man called Titus. They took her back into the clock and to a distant nightmare future, the literal end of the world. There was some excitement aboard the boat when we woke up. Hastur got summoned and said Liza was either lost in time and space or reduced to atoms. Great! Antoine was skulking around the boat when a weird clock turned up, disgorged Liza and Etienne, and then there was screaming and crying, so I snuck off to hide in my room. In the morning, we ate croissants with Etienne. I told my tragic backstory in more detail. Then he left, after dropping a few clues. The Eye of Light and Darkness, and the diary in relation to the dreamlands. Spencer freaked out and tried to grab a book from Cat, so she levitated him, and me and Ant punched him unconscious. I went to relax on the deck for the rest of the day. Spencer woke up later and stalked the ship, looking for books. Cat realised what she was dealing with, so she asked the doctor to help him, and he gave her a book. Previously on Horror... Oh no! Um, previously on Masks of Neathotep. Recap. Before arriving in Shanghai on the AS Fair Dinkum, Walter summons Dr. Griffin and absolutely scolds him for sending Cat to deal with an insane Spencer while he had a day off. <coughs> it was hugely embarrassing. He has also been banned from eating and socialising with Team Vanderbilt unless he has been summoned specifically. A reminder that he is an employee. He keeps his appointment with Spencer. Antoine continues making his staff. Liza's magical box turns to dust. Cat begins writing her spell book. And Robin studies his treasure hunting book. When pulling into port, Spencer sees a boat very similar to the one in Jackson Eliza's notes, leaving the port. Robin sees the name Dark Mistress, with a British flag flying above it. We are driven to the Palace Hotel, and we decide we need to speak to Anthony Chang, Felix's contact here in Shanghai, and a business and a businessman called Ho Fang, who has dealings with the occult. Cat finally allows Dr. Griffin to have a chat with her, and where he apologises, and they have a session together. Spencer, Walter and Felix go to the harbour master to inquire about the boat. Some bribery allows Spencer to photograph all the records on the Dark Mistress. Cat stayed at the hotel and thought about Roger Vanderbilt's penis. They learn the ship is owned by Alfred Penhurst, a private yacht due to return in approximately 10 to 14 days. 
The name is very similar to Penhu, who was on the Carlisle expedition and was presumed dead. Antoine and Robin visit the recreation ground park nearby to scout out for treasure. They find the gongs written in the book, but they don't know the order to strike them in. The conjunction of the western wind and the ocean. So they head to the library nearby. Spencer takes Dr Griffin to the Stumbling Tiger pub, a clue from the matchbox. When asking for directions, the concierge also recommends they go to the Asia girls nearby. It's highly recommended. Back at the library, our translator gives us some leads and we decide to visit Mr Lung, who owns an astronomy shop and has knowledge of local legends. Back at the hotel, Kat has a revelation that the deal Liza had, which she broke, has also been broken between Felix and Kat. This probably means a very unhappy and angry Hastur. They consider reforming the deal. Recap. Inside the Stumbling Tiger, the walls have lots of pictures of Spencer in his many movie roles. So much for being inconspicuous. His fans gather around him while Dr. Griffin speaks to the barman for information on Jack Brady in exchange for selling Spencer out for a private performance. They agree to talk the next morning. Meanwhile, Antoine and Robin visit the astronomist, Mr. Long. In order to befriend him, Antoine agrees to a reading, but is tricked and a demon trap is used on him. The real demon, an eight-foot Siamese cat, attacks the group, but is shielded back by wards and screens and is cornered into the demon trap. Ho Fang of the bloated woman had sent the demon, but Mr. Long thought we were the demons, to which he apologises. Spencer and Dr. Griffin, while in a taxi back to the hotel, are being followed. They can't lose them, so Spencer attempts to steal the taxi, which only gets him stabbed by the driver. They are kicked out of the taxi and are left to fight the thugs, but they are knocked unconscious and kidnapped. The Vander girls want to go to Hasser in person on all the Baron. This is absolutely a terrible idea, but they think it's better than waiting until they get to Greece to summon him. It's not. They want to brew space mead to bind a Bayaki to allow them to fly through space. I think this voids Liza's certificate from Arkham Asylum. <laughs> Back at the astronomy shop, Mr. Lung restores our souls from the demon trap by summoning a couple of ebony dragons, and they poofed in our faces. <coughs> He then identifies that the conjunction of the western wind is just a certain time of day, just before sunset. He also informs us Ho Fang is the leader of the cult here. His headquarters are in the docks, and he is hosting a gentleman called Carl Stanford, the leader of the Silver Twilight Lodge. They return to the hotel and have dinner with the Vander girls and give them an update. Spencer and Dr. Griffin wake up in a nicely decorated garden but surrounded by screen doors guarded by gentlemen in black suits. Spencer's stab wound has been patched up nicely while they were unconscious. They have a lovely tea ceremony and are taken to Lin Len Yu, an aristocrat with many Chinese artefacts, and she is a lovely host, offering dinner and apologises for the manhandling the two received. She seems to know all of our activity in Shanghai and is familiar with Jack Brady. He stole one of her scrolls, and the cult of the bloated woman are trying to get it. She simply wants it back, and she offers a friendly relationship to work together. Recap. As Liza goes to bed, she finds Miss Montague, our translator, resignation letter. She's had enough. In the night, Liza, Cat, Felix and Spencer are awoken by balls of flame breaking through the windows. Fire vampires are igniting everything. 
Spencer flees to a bathroom and falls unconscious in the bath. Dr. Griffin leaves via fire escape, as does Antoine, with the maids. Liza, Kat and Felix are battling the flames with water and sand, while Robin arrives to help. Kat summons a hound of the hunt with a spell to fend off the fire vampires and use it to escape. She considers going to Carcosa with it, but decides against it. For now. Antoine successfully guides the maids downstairs, but so impressed are they that they insist he go back for Kat and Liza. He begrudgingly agrees, but the hotel staff prevent him from entering. Instead, he finds Kat in a nearby alley. Liza is starting to catch a flame, Walter breaks the fire hose, and Robin trips over Walter. So overall, it's not going very well. Spencer finally wakes up in an icy version of his room, slightly aquary. Cat sends the Hound of the Hunt to rescue those still in the building. Robin finally makes it to Spencer in the bath, screaming his head off, and carries him out. Felix escorts Liza out too, but not before she looks for bubbles. The Hound arrives and whisks them all away via shadow walking. The Doctor injects Spencer with a sedative to shut him up. The fire has spread down to the twelfth floor, so we retreat back to the A.S. Fair Dinkum. When they are alone, the Vander girls want to take the Hound of the Hunt to Carcosa to meet with Hastur, but it won't be able to bring them back home. They gamble Hastur will send them back after they reforge the deal, or they can use a spell. This is worse than a terrible idea. When they arrive, they hear Hastur screaming in rage. This was definitely a terrible idea. Hastur removes his mask to reveal ungodly sights beyond human interpretation. The Vander girls are no more. Roger Vandervelt's penis is very sad. <laughs> <laughs> He's rich enough, he'll buy a new wife. <laughs> what a new penis! <laughs> Twice as big as the last! <laughs> Recap. The following morning, Dr. Griffin determines Spencer needs to be admitted to an asylum and Walter discovers the Vandergirls are missing, as are the two watchmen from the crew. Is this a kidnapping? A Vandernapping? The books and research are redistributed or locked in the ship's vault. Roger Vanderbilt places Robin Fisk in charge of finding his wife. The new playing characters, Faye Wong, Timothy and Riley Noble, all appear to be in Miss Lin Lin Yu's service. A Zen Buddhist monk, a bodyguard and an antiquarian. They will all meet us for a lunch meeting. Antoine remains on board to finish making his staff, while Dr Griffin and Robin visit Anthony Chang at the Chronicle newspaper to find information on Jack Brady and Ho Fang's warehouse, but also about the disappearance of the Vandergirls. Curiously, the Dark Mistress steamship came back to port overnight early, but has already left again. There was a small altercation at the warehouse last night, and one of Lin Yu's flower girl maidens was kidnapped but no direct activity near the port regarding the Vandergirls occurred. He shares information Felix had asked him to gather. Antoine meets up with the group to see Lin Lin Yu for lunch. We inform them of the missing Vandergirls, and that the cult of the bloated woman may be behind it, but we're unsure. Lin Yu thinks they may have shipped them to the Grey Dragon Island for ritual sacrifice at the next new moon. We agree to investigate the Vandernapping and Jack Brady's whereabouts, Cho Mei Ling is, Jack, is Jack's girlfriend, and Ho Fang kidnapped her recently. So, attacking the mansion may be a good lead. 
to recover Jack. After far too much deliberation, it was decided Timothy, Antoine and Dr Griffin will sneak into the mansion and the others into the warehouse at dawn. Back on the ship, Walter has had no luck finding the Vandergirls. Timothy and Faye acquire some cars for the getaway vehicles and Antoine practices fighting with his new staff, almost causing Timothy to fall unconscious. Everyone turns in for an early night, ready for tomorrow's double heist. Previously on Face Gloves of Scary Man. <laughs> Recap. I finished morning and went to speak to Walter about our future plans. I received Bubbles and Cat's notes. Then I went to speak to Robin. I let him know that the Vandergirls are dead, but we must act like they are still alive. He is unconvinced. I return to brooding. The rest of the team go to execute two largely discussed but ill-thought-out heists to rescue the girls. One at the Hofang Mansion and one at his warehouse. The house team snuck in successfully and were doing reasonably well until Dr. Griffin walked into a poison lab and snorted a line of poison. The warehouse team found paperwork showing that he's shipping stuff all over the world. A room full of cash and a map of Gay Dra- Grey Dragon Island a secret passage to a hidden storeroom with a further passage to the sea. Statues of the bloated woman. A weird ceremonial spoon. Artifacts from around the world. Some weird finger bones, which were discarded by Null. And notes on the possible location of the Vanderbilts? <laughs> Recap. Timmy and Antoine try to help the Doctor, but accidentally ended up making it worse. He's dead now. They take a moment to remember him, then smash his face in to prevent him being ID'd. They went into a room with a woman trapped in a sarcophagus under a box of rabid rats. The ceiling was booby-trapped and drew out their souls, but they managed to escape back into their own bodies. Antoine sucked magic from a weird statue into his staff. They got the woman free. They have discovered a cult torture room and stolen many important documents. I had a dream wherein I spoke to Etienne, and we discussed the plan to act like the Vandergirls are still alive. We should find Jack Brady, and I should talk to Carl Sanford. Back in the warehouse, the team found boxes of cursed artefacts going progressively more and more mad as they worked their way through them. They eventually returned to the boat, and we all caught up. I explained to Mr. Fisk that we should follow the leads, and I will explain how I knew that they were dead in time. Still don't get it. In time! <laughs> we read a scroll that talks about bad things that the cult had done in the past and that they are trying to do again now. This will happen during an eclipse, so we must find out when the next eclipse is. We found a letter and a map to Grey Dragon Island. The girls are likely there. Question mark. We sent for a doctor for Cho, and then eventually we all went to sleep. Recap! Elliot Carter from the British Consulate arrived to provide support. We met him and brought him up to speed. We decided to go and talk to Carl Stanford. Riley gave a very mediocre report to Miss Lin Yu and received a bit of a bollocking. Antoine checked on Cho, the flower girl. <coughs> She needs rest until tomorrow. So Antoine went to visit Mr. Lung, the astronomer, to inquire about the next solar eclipse. 
the 14th of January next year will be an exceptionally large full eclipse. Mr. Walker and Mr. Fisk discuss about the mask of Hayama, believed to be in Kenya. Timothy and Faye return the vans to Miss Lemieux and give a glowing report, including gifting her extremely rare scrolls we pilfered from Hofang's mansion. How dare Faye steal what we stole! Miss Lemieux realises Timothy desecrated a shrine in the mansion and makes him drink some tea to protect him, but insists that Antoine come and see her, given he touched the shrine statue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <You> forgot. <laughs> He's not seen you. No, no. Uh, Elliot and Robin take a look at the maps to get to Gay Dragon Island. He believes that the ship, the Dark Mistress, were incapacitated, then the ship he was stationed on while undercover will be used instead. This will be a chance for us to get to the island. Together with Riley, they plan to have Miss Lanew attack the ship so that we aren't associated. In exchange, Riley can loot the ship for artefacts for her mistress to get back in her good books. Antoine returns and speaks to Cho, who reveals Jack Brady is at Mr. Mew's house. Speak the orchids are blooming under the stars to identify as a friend. He's trying to translate the stolen scroll to prevent the cult from summoning their god. Felix, Robin and Timothy visit Carl Stanford, the other party who's interested in the scroll, to see if he knows about Jack's location. Carl does a sorcery to convince Felix to stay for a private chat to make him spill the beans. Robin resists, so Carl <coughs> pulls some muscle. Recap! Antoine came to explain they needed to go hunt down Jack based on info from Cho, and Walter put together that we were in danger with Carl Stanford. Carl extracts some information before Felix fights back. Carl enchants the door, so Felix dives through the window into the garden. Robin scales the gate, just in time for Timmy to drive the car through the gate. Robin takes out some thud before he is shot unconscious. Timmy runs into Carl's room and finds himself in Raleigh. <coughs> Felix crawls out of the deadly garden and makes his way to the gates. Riley and Faye arrive in a taxi. They make everything worse. <laughs> Faye blows up the escape vehicle and Riley applies first aid on Robin and murders him. <laughs> I didn't mean to kill him. Yes, technically that's a manslaughter. Back at Mr Mew's house, over a nice cup of tea... Antoine and Elliot meet Jack Brady. He tells them the whole story of the Carlisle expedition. Roger Carlisle and Aubrey Payne, who become more insane. Roger <coughs> broke a seal. The eye is closed. The way is open. In the end, Jack sedates Roger and takes him to an asylum in Hong Kong. He keeps the scroll, but we advise him he move to Mr. Long's house for his safety. Back at the mansion, Felix considers using the judgment of Crancross. Fuck it, he does. <laughs> Felix plunges his hands into Robin's corpse and chants, while uh, Faye flees, as does Riley. Carl poofs away, just as fucking volcano erupts from under everyone's feet. Crankos has arrived. All hail, Crankos. <laughs> Timmy is about to escape Raleigh when he sees the magma through the portal, but steps through and witnesses a cackling Felix on a pillar of rock. As this happens, Jack Brady teleports himself, Mr. Mew and Antoine to the ship for their safety, leaving Elliot behind to flee on foot. As they flee, Riley falls into a crevice and swims in lava. 
Faye and Timmy mm-hmm. avoid doing this and run to Miss Lemieux's house. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. Shanghai is burning. I'm in a hospital. Team currently allied bad guys retreat from Miss Lin Yu's house to another, a less on fire one. Antoine is lurking on the fair dinkum out at sea. Jack Brady is with him, resting. Timmy and Faye are summoned back to Miss Lin Yu. She is retreating back to Gulin with her staff. Uh, they go out to help people in a local hospital. Mateo is here. He's been training in Shanghai at a monastery. He investigates and discovers the epicentre of the volcano quake was Ho Fang's mansion. Jack Brady, Walter and Mei Sen, his scholar, talk to Antoine on the boat. Jack is sleeping. Mei and Antoine continue their research. I work in a hospital and was attended to by a nurse. A detective turned up and lightly chided us that we had left them out of the kidnap knowledge. They think we went to Ho Fang's mansion to retrieve Catanalyzer from the mob. He asked me to return to the station when I'm well to see the artefacts they found in his home. Timmy and Faye and Matteo all discover that I'm in the hospital and Matteo comes to visit. I suspect at first that he may be an avatar, but he proves that he isn't by getting naked. Antoine finds out where I am. Jack Brady talks to him and helps him translate the Livre Divon, a book which he happens to have read. Me, Matteo, Faye and Timmy had a fun chat with Detective Fleming who wanted to arrest Timmy the Fingers Facebreaker. Eventually I get them released into my custody and myself discharged. Uh, we went to Lynn and I purchased their contracts so that they are working for us now. Sien finishes his translation of a scroll which contains a spell which Jack stole from Lin Yen Yu. It makes the Eye of Light and Darkness which will seal Nyarlathotep away in a place. We all meet up on the boat and decide what to do now. We should check what tomes we have and plan an attack on Gay Dragon Island. Recap! Ant asks Faye if he will aid him with something. Fisk's treasure hunt? He's forgotten Faye can't part with Felix or be at risk of getting arrested. He wants to go to the gardens. Felix overhears this. Ant wants to take Timmy along too. Jack tells Felix about Elliot's idea to commandeer the Ivory Wind, or the Dark Mistress. The others arrive in town. They head to the gardens. They are very burnt. The temple in the middle is fine. Ant positions us to ring the gongs in order, and we do. The dragons on the gongs all come out and go through us. Timmy is flung out of the temple. It looks empty now to Timmy? The others can still see him? Felix comes back out for him. They cannot re-enter the temple because of towering green flames. The others continue in, down some stairs. They find a bust covered with ancient bling of Princess Yang Xin, her last jewels, lost jewels even. Ant claims them and tries to leave. There's a dragon looking at him. It asks him by what right he claims the jewels. He says something about solving the gong puzzle, and the dragon is just like, yeah, seems legit. Apparently, they all have powers. They appear back with Timmy and Felix. Faye is given a servant's room by Walter. Walter tells him about some of the books. Faye goes to meditate. It's nice. He has a look at a nice necklace bead that was supposedly from Buddha. The others get back to the boat. 
Felix heads back out to visit the police station. Matteo goes to get his stuff. Ant goes to ogle his jewels. He puts one of his bracelets on and invokes it. Nothing happens? He puts the other on and invokes it again. The bracelets lose their hinges and the dragon appears again. They chat. Timmy is instructed to read a book by Walter. He starts on Africa's Dark Sects. Felix and Matteo arrive at the mainland. Ben split. Matteo gets his stuff and tells the monks he's leaving. Felix arrives at the police station and is shown to Detective Fleming. Elliot Carter is here. He's currently working for the detective. They head downstairs, but not before claiming Elliot back from Fleming. There are two corpses. One is the doctor. He's a horrific sight. The other was a young girl of twelve. She's burned to death. Then there's also a big chunk of something. When he picks it up, he hears waves and smells brine and the angles go wrong. Then the world snaps back. Neither Elliot or Felix know what it is, but Felix knows what language is written on it and then realises what it is. He is not happy about this, screeches and then passes out. Matteo arrives back at the boat and settles in. Aunt Timmy and Faye are reading in the lounge. Jack introduces himself to Matteo. Moo and Faye read out how to make the Eye of Light and Darkness. It's fairly complicated and involves the blood of the innocent. Ant rips his door off. He suggests using his magic staff. More reading happens. Felix awakes in the police station's medical room with Elliot and Fleming. He takes the chunk of artefact from the police. They head back to the fair dinkum. On the launch, Elliot is affected by the artefact too. They arrive back. Felix explains to Walter what he was up to. Timmy starts reading his book again. Elliot lunges for the artefact Felix is carrying, but Timmy puts him to sleep. Felix names it. It's the relay disc. If all three parts are assembled, the world will end. The disc is able to release Cthulhu before his time. People keep having bad visions. Chaos reigns. Felix runs into a loo and screeches for Etienne. He appears in a mirror, sees a disc fragment, then promptly arrives in his clock. He takes the fragment from Felix, greets us all, then leaves again. Felix explains about both the disc and Etienne. Etienne walks back in and introduces himself to those who don't know him. He warns Ant not to put any more of the jewels on if he values his mortality. He leaves. Everyone has a few moments to recuperate. Ant asks Faye to have a meditation session. Matteo is in his quarters. Ant, Elliot, Faye are meditating together. Timmy returns and joins in, though it doesn't do much for him. Felix is trying to decide what five people to be telling something. Things seem quiet. Felix calls Etienne again. He asks him if this list of people looks wise. He says yes, it seems sensible. He warns Felix that Ant has a pact with the celestial dragon Brightwind. He warns Felix not to break causality, then hangs up. 
The others talk a bit more after meditating. People start heading to bed. Everyone sleeps. Everyone except Timmy dreams of Riley. They dream of Cthulhu's temple or tomb, then awake. Meanwhile, Timmy has a pleasant dream. Some of the others go back to sleep, but Faye meditates. He has a voice pull him back. He wakes up feeling good, then goes back to sleep too. Timmy wakes up first and turns up next. Eventually everyone is there. They're all creeped out and talking about their dreams. Breakfast is had. Plotting begins. Jack walks in late. He's concerned about the dreams. He wanders off. He comes back and gives everyone that dreamed of Riley a disgusting tea. More plotting happens. Jack thinks we should just hijack the Dark Mistress. Felix announces he needs to get Ant and Jack to go to the Harbour Master's office to get more information. They agree. Felix demands the presence of Walter, Timmy, Elliot, Faye and Matteo. Nobody else. He tells us Cat and Liza are dead. Etienne told him. However, he tells us of what they did. Travelled to Carcosa. Hasta consumed their souls. Hasta was extremely angry with them. Etienne, at the last possible second, saved them. But they can't be returned to normal time yet. There's a number of things that must be done. Having the disc helps. There are four other things we must get, which I think actually gets retconned by the list coming up. There are some other things we must get at the end. The disc was one. The other things were Bubbles, Liza's shotgun, Cat's book, her mythos time she had been writing, the disc or a part. These are things we all have. However, we also need the Lure of Yif, located in the city of the Great Race in Australia. The Mask of Hayama, the mask we did not get in New York, probably in Kenya now. The Ring of Ibon, the engagement ring between Annie Chandronier and Marcus Gavigon. This is in England. Gavigon is the head of the Penhew Foundation. We resolve to continue with the Grey Dragon Island plan, after which we will chase the cult and the required artefacts to save the girls. Timmy and Faye examine the weird tech we recovered that was sent to the cult from Australia. Timmy breaks it in a bit. But Faye realises from this that it's something to do with some kind of fuel. It has a maker's mark. Henson Manufacturing. Meanwhile, Jack and Ant talk to Lawrence, the harbour master. There is chatter. They learn most of the old China Navy has gone pirate. Apparently the Dark Mistress has an experimental engine? Oil? They head back. They think we should be able to overpower the Dark Mistress. It's only about as big as the Fair Dinkum. They go to the British mission to talk about shipping. He asks about maps. Grey Dragon Island is Penhurst, or Penhughes, private island. He gets a better map of the dangers around there in the sea. Ant is given the puzzle book Fisk had been working on. 
It was returned from the police. Elliot arrives and tries to arrange a meeting with Fleming. He tells them of our plan and is given a copy of the Dark Mistress's route. He also asks for information on Gavigan, as well as Nyarfatep and Rile. Ant gets back. He relays what information he has to Felix. Felix, Ant and Walter go to the captain to talk piracy. The captain is down. The fair dinkum should have no trouble keeping up, question mark? Question fucking mark. <laughs> Elliot returns and hands over the further details on Dark Mistress's route to the captain. They talk, then meditate. Timmy and Ant see Rilla again and panic. Ant goes to find Jack. Matteo comes back and gets more tea for himself and Timmy. They drink it. We are setting sail! This is the first time Faye has left Shanghai. It's peaceful night. We have dinner. Matteo and Timmy teach Elliot some hand-to-hand fighting. Faye has another very good meditation with Ant. Some mysterious voice totally roasts Ant, but also tells him he is on the path of heaven. Sleep happens, then the captain wakes us at 2am. The Dark Mistress is here and moving far too fast. We plan. Ant goes out to make mist to make the Dark Mistress slow down. Ant screws up. We're now on an iceberg and Ant is unconscious. Elliot invokes the amulet. If Aqua turns up, we're going to see a lot of shipwrecks. There's some banter, introductions, bargains. Elliot is going to release Ifakra after the solar eclipse next February. She sorts it out. We are off the iceberg and a dark mistress is on an iceberg. We go over to offer assistance. Ant comes around. He's acting like a pussy. We tell him what he's done. We approach the Dark Mistress under the guise of offering help, and we take out three sailors instantly. The bridge is overrun. The Dark Mistress is ours. If Akra turns up again and puts the Dark Mistress back in the water. Later on Radio 4, are raspberries really real? But now, Antoine is in a spot of bother. In Masks of Nyalfatet. Recap. Whilst interrogating the captain of the Dark Mistress, Antoine accidentally breaks his neck. The, the captain's neck, not his own neck. Outside, suddenly, a geezer erupts between the two ships. Timmy prevents Felix from falling overboard, but Elliot is not so lucky. The geezer is separating the ships and flowing over the deck. T- uh, Elliot manages to grab hold of a rope and not float away. Faye attempts to move the Dark Mistress, but causes a power outage instead. The water washes over and the Dark Mistress is in open water, alone, and separated from the fair dinkum. Down below, Aidan escapes his room and makes his way to the bridge, and is immediately throttled by the group. Jack Brady recognises him, so we don't kill him. Aidan is Brady's mole in the cult. We learn from the crew that they serve their master, Dagon. Before they begin chanting his name, Felix shoots the crewman. Matteo and Antoine explore the ship to find missing crew members and find a radio. 
and one finds the map room and lots of Cthulhu-esque paintings by an artist, P.V. There's a strange compass which doesn't point north, but instead to certain stars. Matteo finds the radio with strange technology attached to it. Once we power it on, we can use it. Aidan, Faye and Timmy make their way to the hold and a machinery workshop. Timmy develops, quote, a really small headache and sits down with some aspirin. Faye finds a door that says do not open in many languages, so they try a different door instead and find an electrical generator. The control panel has been smashed in and the tube funneling steam in has also retracted. Back up on deck, Matteo finds the captain's cabin with broken bottles of beer and a faint smell of ammonia. There are many drugs in here. The captain was a user. He finds some sedatives and pockets them. Antoine finds an office with lots of orders for iodine, radium and sedatives for the captain. But there's no orders for any fuel. The next two rooms have a vile stench which caused the pair to empty their stomachs. Back down below, Aiden charges some batteries to fix the steam conduit. The generator glows a strange green light, but appears to be working. But it looks like all the fuses in the breaker room are broken, so they can only power parts of the ships with the three spare fuses. Matteo and Antoine discover the smokestack is a ruse, and explore the luxurious lounge that have a drink. The next deck completely spooks out Matteo. He sees dead people. Antoine cannot... Which one of them is seeing the truth is not known. Matteo returns to the bridge and Antoine continues the exploration. Faye, Aiden and Timmy search the machine shop for anything useful. Aiden finds a lever possibly for the bridge and Timmy finds electrical gizmos but they are not recognisable. They proceed to the engine room also with a retracted conduit but there is a man sitting calmly in a chair and aims a shotgun at Faye. Aiden attempts to shoot him from under his coat but fails and gets shot himself instead. The crewman, a Deep One hybrid, gets in a fisticuff match with Faye and renders Faye unconscious with a wither spell. Aiden is scared by the Deep One, or is just incompetent, and falls unconscious as well. Recap. Timmy delivers the missing lever to Jack Brady and joins Antoine in exploring the ship while Matteo calms himself in the radio room. Before Timmy finds Antoine, he enters a shrine from the Alphatep. Antoine gets jumped by the Deep One hybrid and gets point-blank range shot, gunned while trying to cast a fog spell. But he hasn't bitten the dust just yet. Felix and Jack take care of the Deep One and take Antoine back to the bridge. Matteo is sent to find Timmy and Faye and Aiden. Timmy, meanwhile, is becoming a puppet for the Alphatep and is instructed to take a dark statue downstairs. Felix and Jack find Faye and Aiden, and they all regroup. Timmy dons a yellow cultist robe and is fooled into thinking Felix Walker is working for the Arthotep. He carries the statue to the boiler room. Meanwhile, Faye helps Matteo relax with some meditation so he has the courage to venture into the ship again. They experience one of Faye's visions in Shambhalaya and meet the Searing Llama. Jack and Aiden search for Timmy and find him as he enters the boiler room and about to set the statue on a green stone. They intercept and grab him, but lose all ability to do anything. The statue is placed on the pedestal before Timmy is shot by an SMG. Timmy is dead. But he was going to die from radiation poisoning, so... A massive green light explodes out and the boat beaches on an unknown land where there is no sea at all. Jack breaks the statue after the light went out and everyone left alive regroups on the bridge. Antoine is now fine again. 
They work out they are in the Sahara Desert. Aiden and Jack fix the distributor to power the bridge, engine and radio. Faye, Mateo and Felix experiment with getting the correct radio frequency and get some Glenn Miller. Antoine and Aiden explore the rest of the ship and find a key to open the swanky suite, although it turns out it wasn't the swanky suite. Uh, Aiden picks up a rune-encrusted emerald, a star stone of Manar, but immediately breaks it. In the observation room, Antoine opens the curtains to reveal not a desert, but a snowy landscape with large sphinxes guarding a valley to a castle. This is Kadath, ladies and gentlemen. He shoots the windows and the desert returns. Faye and Aiden continue searching downstairs while Antoine stays in the library. Recap! Faye and Aiden find a large vault in the lower deck, surrounded by green lights and water, but they cannot open it. They retreat and everyone sleeps in various quarters. The next morning, whilst riding her camel Nobunaga with her guide group, Chai discovers the Dark Mistress and approaches. Faye and Aiden attempt to open the large vault, but end up breaking and jamming the lock. Antoine manages to get in contact with a runway at Gibraltar Airport to get some help sent. Chai boards and meets everyone. Felix tries to convince her that we found the ship in the desert on our way to the very same temple that she was about to go to, so we team up as a way of rescue. She and Felix also have an attempt at the vault and undo the bod job Aiden made and discover nothing. It was empty all along, the reddest of herrings. Everyone leaves while Jack and Aiden permanently disable the ship with some dynamite and we all ride by camel to the nearby temple. When we arrive, everyone but Matteo comes down with a mild case of radiation sickness. Chai has a quick go at raiding the temple, but it's mostly empty courtesy of Felix from his visit six years earlier, save for two bronze daggers. We travel the desert for two weeks to Villa Cisnaro on the Atlantic coast. We can. Felix wires some appropriate currency to the group while the rest have a bath. Walker and the Fair Dinkum are docked in Hong Kong, 40 days away. We decide to have a nice dinner to thank Chai for helping guide us back to civilization. During the next morning, when deciding what to do next, Chai foolishly decides to join us and is brought up to speed. She demonstrates her expert Japanese jiu-jitsu by making Antoine empty his bowels. All of them. We discuss going to London to pick up the investigation such as checking the Penhue Foundation, and also checking in with the newspaper Jackson Elias was in contact with, The Scoop. We could also investigate the ship, the Ivory Wind, that was in Shanghai region ferrying artefacts around. There's also Inspector Barrington of Scotland Yard to talk to, and Henson Manufacturing is another lead. Felix has also been in contact with Etienne, so he could get our books and equipment from the Fair Dinkum. We hire a boat to take us to Casablanca in order to fly out to Lisbon and then on to London, checking into the hotel near Felix's home. Previamente en mascaras de Nealfeta. Mr. Butterworth brings Felix his breakfast at the club before meeting us at the Marylebone Hotel. We discover Jack Brady is returning to Shanghai to deal with the cult over there, but we need to deal with London, Egypt and Kenya before January 1926 before they complete their rituals. Antoine and Felix shouldn't meet the scoop since they are high profile and could get published, so they go clothes shopping since all of their personal clothes are still in Shanghai. 
Before this, Elliot gets carted away by the special operations services to see his boss's boss's boss and gets a bollocking for seemingly abandoning the rescue of the Vanderbilts. They check him into the crazy house since they don't believe his story. Antoine, Felix and Faye meet Mr. Form, Elliot's boss's boss's boss, while Aidan, Achai and Matteo go to the scoop to meet Mr. Mahoney. He shares three stories with them. Uh, deaths by a wolf-like beast which was shot but still considered alive. The second story regarding the Egyptian murderer who kills ritualistically over a three-year period. Inspector Barrington leads the case. There is a large cash reward for catching the killer. The final story is about an artist who paints nightmarish content by Mr. Shipley. He isn't an artist by training, and it is peculiar how good he is, and it's hard to believe the contents are purely from his imagination. Mr. Mahoney can get us access to certain archives for more research. Felix, meanwhile, convinces Mr. Form to release Elliot into our custody after one night in the asylum. While there, though, the Duke of Carlisle visits and insists Elliot be locked down. The amulet of Ithaqua is cursing him. And worse, we may see Reginald Buckingham any time soon. Felix takes Faye and Antoine to his gentleman's club. While Antoine schmoozes with the librarian, Felix and Faye check for clues for leads. Felix also looks for secret plots and steals a book. Antoine inquires about Dover Castle for some reason. Recap. As soon as Felix enters his room, he is shot by a dart by an assassin, but does not get poisoned, and the assassin flees. Those in the hotel check their rooms for interlopers, but all is okay. Elliot, however, is strapped to a large stone slab in the asylum. A ritual is about to be performed on him. The amulet of Athaqua is rising from his chest, and the chain breaks from Elliot's neck. He now realises Ithaqua was super evil now that he had been cut off from her. During sleep, Antoine dreams of Jules Verne, the author. It turns out, subconsciously, Antoine has worn all of the Chinese jewels that he collected and they have integrated into his body as some kind of neural computer interface. Brightwind the Dragon was simply an avatar of the system who now chooses to appear as Jules Verne. He is slowly upgrading Antoine. Back at the asylum, Elliot has been cured. He believes the journey back from Shanghai was normal and he had sunstroke, which caused some confusion with his timeline. Once rested, he will use his contacts to look into the Penhew Foundation. But later, he is soon and surprisingly retired from service. Perhaps the Special Operations Service has been infiltrated by the cult. Aidan and Matteo meet Inspector Barrington who reveals 19 Egyptian nationals have been killed in the last three years. Mr Gaviskin of the Penhu Foundation was consulted to confirm any occult activity. There is also the Blue Pyramid Club that the Egyptian nationalists visited that could be investigated, and a Zara Shafiq is a spice dealer who frequents the club, is someone we can talk to. But the Penhu Foundation insisted there was no modern-day version of the cult, this is clearly untrue, but was this intentional? Antoine goes on a brave adventure to Dover to distract any cultists from the London group. He tours the castle and conducts some private research before continuing his tour of the White Cliffs of Dover. Back at the hotel, we decide to prioritise leads that are not to do with the Penhew Foundation, as that has a good chance of being linked to the cult. The Blue Pyramid and the Spy Shop are in London. The Artist is also in London. The Wolf Beast is in the Midlands, but the Henson Manufacturing 
company could be in Cardiff, Derby or Sheffield. So hopefully it's in the latter two and can be tied up with one of the other leads. For now we are focusing on the Blue Pyramid. Aidan asks about the power of crystals in his book. Faye feels confident in their knowledge and meditates to speak with the Searing Lama, who confirms it is nonsense. But the experience utterly breaks Aidan's mind and he has a fit. Antoine runs to the rescue and applies first aid until a doctor arrives and recommends bed rest until the morning. Chai stays behind to look after him while the rest of us head on out for a night full of clubbing. Recap. Our disguises allow us into the Blue Pyramid without suspicion. We mingle in the hope of gaining trust and information. Back at the hotel, Chai teaches a poorly Aiden the chant of the Vorvados to help banish dimensional beings. In the club, Elliot tries to get information from the owners about the private club nights, and Antoine seems to get a date with the waitress Yatissa outside at midnight down the street. She reveals the club is owned by the spice shop and performs rituals once a month and are behind the murders. However, Antoine, in his panic, accidentally drops Felix's name and was overheard by the bouncers. In the club, Felix is drugged and soon after, no one can find him. Antoine decides to mega-punch the bouncer so he and Faye can get back in, but this alerts the people all around and the police raid in. Antoine undisguises so as not to be recognised. Everyone is escorted outside and the group decide to raid the spice shop to rescue Felix. The owner of the spice shop, Zara, wakes Felix up to reveal her plan to become the new high priestess of the cult of the bloody tongue by disposing of Edward Gavigan, the current uh, high priest. Since we were after him anyway, she blackmails Felix into cooperating with the plan and frees him, but not without taking a sample of Felix's blood for protection. He can no longer do harm to her. The next ritual is at Gavigan's house at Miser House in ten days. As he steps out and angrily pisses on the door of the spice shop, the others pick him up and they all return to the hotel. Antoine meets Jules Verne again at night, and he is not impressed that Antoine endangered Felix's life and almost killed a man, but still sees potential for him to serve the Thelorians and gifts Antoine the full content of the book he was reading as incentive to do better. In the morning, Elliot goes to his safe drop to meet his boss for clues on our leads, but finds his corpse instead just as the police raid him. Elliot has been set up again. Inspector Barrington interviews him in his cell formally but leaves the key to the cell and a note thanking him for the leads on the murders and encourages him to disappear immediately. He escapes into the sewers and emerges from Hyde Park and checks into a different hotel to hide out. He plans to meet us at the artist's house. Antoine, Aidan and Matteo will go there while Felix works on some bullshittery plan with Faye. Recap! Felix's bullshittery plan is to go to his most favourite place, the Dreamlands. Dreamlands. Faye and Chai are to stay behind to protect his corporeal body in case it is left behind. Felix dreams himself to the Dreamlands, as well as Faye and Chai. What a great start. Oh yeah, and Felix is a giant sphinx again. But they don't appear to be surprised. At the artist's house, Miles' mother lets us in and shows us the art. Miles is too shy around people. One Sorry, one the... moment. 
the paintings is of the Dark Pharaoh, which is too much for Aiden, who leaves the house and appears confused why he's not in the Sahara. He's having memory problems. Descending the steps into the dreamlands, they find the green flame of Sagotha. No one falls in this time, but it was very close. Whilst descending further, Chai encounters her nightmare, and in trying to avoid it, gives Felix telepathic abilities. Back in Chelsea, the mother keeps showing off horrific artwork, but Antoine manages to sneak away to find Miles. Miles is very eager to paint Antoine and capture his very essence. He half finishes a sketch before we scarper and genuinely consider burning the house down because the mother can manipulate Miles' dreams to influence his inspiration. The dreaming team fully descend into the dreamlands, and Felix enacts the second part of his plan by summoning Nodens and asking to learn the language Latin so that he can translate the Necronomicon in time for our attempts to shut down the cult of the bloody tongue in England. Nodens seems underwhelmed by the request, and suggests instead he could bring back Cat and Liza Vanderbilt. Felix, in exchange for all of the above, offers the piece of the Disc of Raleigh. Etienne is summoned, who accidentally spoils that Chai will be Empress of Japan, and hands it over. This deal will, however, allow Nodens to return, along with Lady Bast, but they seem to be not evil. Despite being so careful with their request, however, Felix, Chai and Faye now all speak Latin, but also think it as their native language. Thankfully, they still speak English, which is useful because when they wake up, they have to a lot of explaining to do to Liza Cat and an even younger Etienne. Team Arstis decide not to burn the house down, but instead to host a gallery showing off all of Miles' paintings, just so they can get them out of the house so that Matteo can sneak in and discover anything that is useful. A meeting will take place tomorrow to allow this to happen. Elliot will travel up to Lesser Idale tonight to begin researching the wolf beast and Aidan will join him tomorrow. On returning to the hotel there is a wonderful reunion with the Vandergals and shortly after Roger Vanderbilt and declares the girls are going to Canada. No ifs, no buts. But maybe not. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. After an awkward breakfast, Felix brings Liza and Cat Vanderbilt up to speed and convinces Roger Vanderbilt it is safer the girls stay with us on the journey, as the cult won't expect them to do that. The newspapers have reported the girls' rescue and have identified all of us. Exactly what we wanted. Roger coordinates with Walter to throw distraction techniques to throw off the cult as much as possible. Antoine sets off to arrange the art exhibition in order to allow Matteo to investigate their house, Felix and the Vandergirls arrange a press conference. Uh, Matteo shops for lockpicking equipment and Aiden prepares for his journey to Lesser Edale to meet up with Elliot to begin investigations there. Antoine arranges for the art show at the Dale Gallery in Richmond for the following day. Hopefully Felix or the Vandergirls can attend to boost the profile of the art show. Miles was not present as he was finishing Antoine's self-portrait. Aiden travels to Lesser Edale to meet Elliot. He has a pub lunch while waiting and talks to the pub landlord about the strange beast. He recommends speaking to Constable Tumwell, investigating the murders of George Osgood and Lydia Perkins three months ago. Harold Short was also attacked, but he survived. And since then, the beast howls at every night with a full moon. He's also told to speak to Lord Vane at the nearby castle and also the local reverend. 
Back in London, Matteo procures his lockpicking equipment whilst avoiding some keen journalists and spends the day practising. Felix and the Vandergals plant fake journalists into the press conference and arrange it so that only they ask questions so that they can control the story. They claim the girls were kidnapped and drugged by Chinese opium gang and were only rescued by Boke just this week. Felix then asks Liza to read the seven cryptical books of Hassan so that some more people know how to create the Eye of Light and Darkness, which we need to sever the cult from communing with Nyarvatep. Kat begins rewriting her spell book, but the process reminds her of the harrowing experiences that led to her kidnapping and is overcome and rests for the day. Not even Roger Vanderbilt's penis can console her. Antoine returns and convinces Felix and Liza to come to the art show and ask Liza to translate his Latin transcription. Felix is then informed his mumsy has arrived at the hotel. Recap! Aidan checks in via telephone with the London group, having not found Elliot yet. He fails to use his cover name and the whole pub knows who he is now. Liza translates the Latin clue for Antoine. Look in the Roman vault in Canciasi. As thanks, Antoine gives her the Cathat Aquadingham to study. He then tries to visit Felix to update him about Aidan while he's having tea with his mother, but is forced out by Felix. He later apologises and gets the update and calls Aidan. Aidan then spots Constable Tumwell in the pub and is approached. Tumwell dismisses the case as a nonsense and claims to have shot the beast and anything else about it is utter nonsense. In the night, Lady Bast thanks Felix for letting her return to Earth and offers her blessing. Also in the night, Antoine is warned by his brain AI, Jules Verne, that the artist's mother is an unusual entity. He also reveals Felix as an expert at Latin to help him in his research. He reveals that Canciasi is indeed Canterbury. The following morning... The following morning, Aidan is plastered on the front page of the Times and his location is broadcast to the world. He is a terrible spy. Felix reminds us we need to deal with Miser House in the next eight days and goes to the British Museum to research anything on it, such as floor plans. Back in Lesser Edale, Aidan is approached by Lord Vane's son and is asked to join him at the castle. Recap. During the art show, Matteo successfully enters the Shipley house and explores the basement and finds a fake wall amongst the junk. Within is the smell of serpents, a strange workstation and a water butt. He takes one of the jars of liquid and makes a copy of some of the runes at the workstation. Aidan meets Lord Vane and the local reverend Jeremy Stratton, who asks him about his investigation into the beast. They reveal that witches in the 17th century who worshipped Mordigan were hanged, but cursed the daughters of the Vane family. The women of the family transform into evil beasts, which soon becomes permanent. Lord Vane ignored it as his mother and grandmother weren't affected, but his daughter has been affected and is responsible for the recent murders. Back at the art gallery, everyone is browsing the harrowing images when Felix bumps into Edward Gavigan from the Penhu Foundation and arranges a lunch meeting. As he leaves, he goes pale in the face at a man in a suit and bolts out of the room. This is very much an avatar of Nyarlathotep. Cat and Roger bump into Ven. Cat and Roger bump into Vendenev, a Thakwa's human form, browsing the art for her boy toy Spencer. The man they sp- that spooked Gavigan is Lord Romana and approaches Felix and Liza. 
This is Hastur, and he is not happy with them. He informs Lysa that by breaking the unbreakable promise, he has informed Azathoth of her deeds, then disappears. Matteo continues to explore the house, finding a syringe of green fluid used regularly in Miles' room. He siphons some off and explores the studio, finding one painting of a swamp with snakes. He slams the door and makes his exit from the house. Back in Lesser Edel, Aidan tries to understand the situation, but all the books and notes are in Greek. Instead, the Vanes decide to drug the daughter during dinner, lock her in a dungeon and observe what happens in the hope of learning something new. Lois informs... Lois transforms into a horrifying creature and Aiden is told he can't leave until Felix comes to the castle to aid in the investigation. At the art gallery, Mickey Mahoney from The Scoop wants to talk to Kat after she has seen a picture called A Modern Murder. This is a picture of Jackson Elias's death scene, but Felix is portrayed as the murderer holding the gun. There are so many paintings in so much detail that depict many of our adventures. Mahoney is disturbed of Miles taking a real murder and distastefully turning it into art. The avatar of Nyarlathotep arrives, boasting how good the artwork is. He tries to take Liza to one of the paintings, but Felix and Kat prevent this. But a strange feeling prevents them from leaving. It isn't the end of the exhibition yet. Kat, however, manages to overcome this feeling, and the three of them leave. Miles reveals the final painting, Antoine's glorious self-portrait. It contains an elder cipher which Antoine's AI allows him to read, declaring him as master of the Elder Empire. The painting will be in the gallery until the end of the exhibition, then it is Antoine's to take home. Recap. Having left the house, Matteo feels he can't not deal with the contents of the house. He re-enters and attempts to burn the whole house down. He commits an arson and runs out of the house when all of a sudden a torrent of mud, water, algae and leaves crashes down from the upstairs and sweeps Matteo away, but he manages not to drown. He has destroyed the neighbouring houses, however. Liza calls Aiden in Lesser Edel and he requests for her help translating the Greek uh, book to help fix Lord Vane's daughter. Felix sends a message to the Dale Gallery instructing Antoine and Roger to leave because the avatars are in the crowds, but they just happen to stroll in safely anyway. The group feel they need to meet up with Aiden to help with his investigation, but also find Elliot before they deal with Miser House. But first, a night on the town. As we leave for Edale, Roger has procured some bodyguards and maids and servants to accompany us. As we travelled on the train, a portal suddenly appears in our carriage and we appear in a dark grey place with a purple sky. Limbo, according to Liza, as she learned a spell and used it at the same time. She recasts the spell, opens a portal and we reappear on the tracks instead of on the train and we are in the middle of nowhere. After a lengthy delay, we arrive at Plum Castle and Cat is able to tell it is not a wolf but is in fact a ghoul. Liza then remembers a way to cure the girl. Ingredients include bone fragments from her deceased mother and blood from her father. The ritual will take place tonight. The men, minus Roger Vanderbilt, head to the mausoleum to retrieve the bones of Lady Vane. Once we retrieve the bones, the door to the mausoleum has mysteriously vanished. The knot door begins dissolving into a multicoloured bubbling ooze. While this is happening, Liza has translated the Greek book, but it has yielded no new information to help us. 
The gooey, bubbling wall in the mausoleum then speaks to us. We have transgressed into limbo without abiding with the proper customs, and we are being costed now by this ethereal being. Previously on Mars of Nyarlathotep. I did that was me that time. <laughs> <laughs> Recap. After literally everyone stopped playing Animal Crossing, we discover Elliot had to go into hiding when he arrived in Lesser Edel, hence why Aiden couldn't locate him. In the Plum Castle crypt, the slime entity has informed us that Liza Vanderbilt has transgressed his realm and she must offer penance as an altar or he will come in person. While we recover in the castle, Elliot begins sneaking in and makes it to Aiden's room, who in turn forms Felix of his arrival. Felix delicately informs Lord Vane it is Elliot, given he is a seriously wanted criminal. But Lord Vane seems oblivious to this fact. They begin inscribing an elder sign in the attic in preparation for the ritual to save Lord Vane's daughter, and Liza and Felix teach us the necessary chant. As the ritual begins, she begins to gruesomely transform, which Matteo cannot bear to watch, and leaves to go to the castle grounds. The Reverend instead joins us, and we perform the perfect exorcism, which cures the, the young lady. We are thanked by Lord Vane, and an enormous slap-up meal is in order. While partying, Antoine charms Lady Vane, and Aidan tries to get information on Gavigan from Lord Vane. They went to Eton together. He confirms that the Penhue Foundation is dodgy, and suggests we break in and get lucky. How very aristocratic of him. However, he does suggest contacting the Home Secretary to clear Elliot's name. Elliot is concerned the infiltration into the Secret Service may be too high to accomplish this. But Lord Vane does manage to arrange a meeting at the Prime Minister's retreat at Chequers for Felix and Elliot. Recap. Before we depart Plum Castle, we decide to split up to maximise efficiency. Felix and Elliot will see the Home Secretary... Liza, Cat, and Aiden will investigate Miser House and backups to the Eye of Light and Darkness, and Antoine and Matteo will follow up with the Shipley artist, as they are homeless now and we haven't concluded just what his mother is yet. At Checkers, Felix and Elliot meet instead Lord Tenenwright II! Woo! While Elliot explains his innocence, Tenenwright reminds him that he removed Ithaqua from him while he was in custody. Despite that, he agrees to start pulling strings to clear Elliot's name and pensioned off from the intelligence service. When they reveal Gavigan is the high priest of uh, the cult of the bloody tongue, Tenenwright leads them into another room, which happens to be a portal to the Admiralty building in London in Tower Hill, and he agrees to offer some assistance. Ada, Liza and Kat venture down Charing Cross Road in search of books, but also in the hope of finding Madal, which they do. He's very impressed we found the ritual for the Eye of Light and Darkness. He tells us Lord Nodens is nearby and they could ask him for help on locating the cult's temple at Miser House. Cat wisely asks about the realm of Limbo since Liza transgressed there and Madal reveals that it is Yogg-Sothoth's kingdom and also tells us how to appease him. Liza asks for a way to summon a book she owns elsewhere which Madal can help with that later that evening. Madal reads the ritual and says the ritual can be altered slightly to be tailored for the location it will be used at. This will be critical to not only perform the ritual, but also to make sure it's not too difficult to cast. Antoine and Matteo visit the Shipley artist, who is well, just shaken by his destroyed house. 
His mother, on the other hand, is dying, but it turns out she is a snake priestess of Yig. She dies, and Yig says the last of his people are now dead, and so the seals against the crawling chaos are severely weakened. An entity called the Crawling Mist will break free from Mount Rosa in 28 days. Yig teaches Mateo a phrase to open the doorway into the temple so we can prevent the entity from arriving on Earth. Recap. Catlizer and Aiden arrive at the London Library to research folklore in the Walton on the Naze for the forthcoming ritual. Their research reveals there is a history of witchcraft in the area. When they meet up with Matteo and Antoine, they work out that Mount Rosa is in Switzerland. The Vanderbilts have a skiing lodge nearby. After a night out, Liza meets Madal to recover her book, Still on the Fair Dinkum. To complete the ritual, she must share the story and experience of her almost demise on Carcosa and the time-travelling rescuer who made the whole event not happen. The Keepers of Knowledge accept her payment and present her the book she needed. Lord Tellenwright finishes the bureaucracy of clearing Elliot's name, including a letter from the king, and they and Felix have dinner and return to the hotel. Kat has continued writing her spellbook and she and Felix have a catch-up. When they sleep, Felix dreams and meets Etienne drinking Atlantean red wine and joins him. Next morning, Felix realises they could use tales and legends of the sea to help them use the ritual in Walton on the Naze. Felix, Cass and Aidan and Elliot head to Walton on the Naze, while Liza, Antoine and Matteo make a detour to Canterbury on Antoine's request. Recap. After Felix stopped performing his perfect Tom Nook impression, Roger reveals that he has bought a house in Walton on the Naze so we can set up camp in comfort. It even comes with a telephone. They send a message to Liza's team to bring engraving equipment for the ritual. Meanwhile, they begin scouting the area to find the temple and find alternatives to the moon to power the ritual. In Canterbury, Antoine has a terrible memory lapse and can't remember where the Roman vault is. Did he even research this? After a moment, he recalls it is beneath a school. The janitor recognises us from the papers and needs little convincing to let us in. After a short kerfuffle that broke the ladder and the lantern, they find another breadcrumb in the trail. Those who follow the path of the planets, Ventacasa, we raised a home for love. It stood atop hills eternal so all might know her loving embrace. Liza re- realises this is the Venus Temple in modern-day Norfolk. In Walton on the Naze, Roger Vanderbilt and Elliot head to the local pub to get information on folklore on the witches of the past. Aidan, Cat, and Felix have to wait until morning for their investigation, so they just have fish and chips on the seafront. In the morning, they go to the local records office in order to get an idea of where the rituals are and any land that uh, the cult may own in the area. They also visit Miser Tower while Liza, Antoine and Matteo travel to Walton on the Naze via car. The weather has gotten utterly atrocious and raining, but they make it to the tower. It's an old lighthouse. It is locked, so Aidan lockpicks it. So they climb the tower, but nothing is visible in this weather and there is nothing of interest to be found. It may be an ideal place to put the Eye of Light and Darkness if no one visits this location. They next decide to try and visit Witch's Island by paying a local fisherman to use their boat, but it's too stormy, so Roger prevents Cat from going on the journey. There is evidence of recent activity with a fire pit and a circle of rocks on the island. It's possible this is a location the cult use, but further investigation suggests it's just locals camping. They head back to the house just as Liza, Matteo and Antoine arrive. 
Still without an idea where the ritual is, it seems like someone needs to infiltrate Miser House to confirm if it is in there. So Aidan, Elliot and Felix will perform this task while the others can investigate Oak Island, the Drowning Lakes, and source the necessary blood for the ritual. Due to concern for who will perform the ritual, potentially a sacrifice, Felix contacts Lord Tenenwright for assistance. He can send 20 individuals who can share the burden of the ritual. He also drops a hint that the blood needs to be fresh and not from a blood bank, which affects our plan. Tenenwright will send his top man to meet us, Reginald. We all fear it may be Lord Buckingham. Previously on Horror on the... Previously <laughs> on Masks of Nialath Hotep. Recap. We need to investigate Drowning Lake and Oak Island. Given the terrible weather, Roger declares his pregnant wife will not go outside. So Kat, Liza and Aiden will remain in the house while the rest uh, investigate the two places. They hire a boat to sail round the coast towards Oak Island and drop Antoine and Elliot off on the way. But not before Felix pukes his guts out from seasickness. The girls back in the house, meanwhile, read their spell books. After a small wade through the marsh, Antoine and Elliot make it to the lake and begin investigating, finding huge non-humanoid clawed footprints which belong to creatures known as Shantanks, giant guardian beasts dedicated to the Great Ones to guard their holy places. On Oak Island, the group discover a tree with lots of inscriptions on it, couples carving their initials in declaration of love. No one has been here for some time. It doesn't look like this is the place we need. But Felix senses something nearby, but doesn't think it is a threat. To pass some time before meeting back up with Antoine and Elliot, they partake in some fishing. Meanwhile at the house, Liza shares with Aidan some of her notes on Egypt now that he has been in the group for a while and needs more context with what we are dealing with. Kat, meanwhile, practices her levitation spells on cups of tea, distracting them from Aiden's surprise transformation into a black jackal after reading Liza's notes. Turns out Liza forgot to amend her notes to prevent that from happening. He manages to reverse the spell, but not before the maids walk in to see him virtually naked. Liza improvises by pretending to be sketching him. Kat also learns the jackal spell without actually casting it by mistake. Meanwhile, Antoine decides to commune with Jules Verne in his head, and this enables him to identify an Egyptian obelisk in the distance. As they reach the top of the hill, they spot the ritual site with torches and an altar, and two full-grown shantanks. Thankfully, they aren't spotted, and they crawl away to safety and return to the rendezvous point. The party return to the country house, and Antoine and Elliot clean up from all the mud they crawled through and everyone decides to spend the rest of the afternoon relaxing at the local pub. Antoine and Elliot catch up later and bump into Reginald Buckingham, who has been sent by Lord Tenenwright to assist us. He now informs us that Elliot works for him as part of the Order of Merlin. After lunch and drinks, we return to the house to update Lord Buckingham on all we have discovered. Recap. Lord Buckingham reveals that backup and provisions are on hand, ready to be called upon. We think Oak Island will be a suitable location for the ritual, but we should scout it one more time, given the presence that Felix felt earlier. The girls remain at the house with Aidan again. A second boat with all our reinforcements arrive alongside us and help set up equipment and tents to keep the site dry. 
Antoine is advised by his AI to use telepathy with the tree to commune with the spirit inside. The tree is old and knows of the rituals that are happening at the cult of the bloody tongue and is happy for us to enact the war to protect it and the surrounding land. Felix is charged with carving the sigil into the stone. Back at the house, the girls receive a visit from Reginald's wife, Anya, and her pet ferret, Zobel, who quickly perceives all the dark energy around them given all the incursions with Hasta, Ithaqua, and Yalthotep. Then Etienne also materialises in the room. It's turning into quite a party. He is here to help Liza not bring the wrath of Yogsatoth on her when she transgressed his realm. Kat has located a temple nearby in Rendisham Forest, and uh, Anya has offered to take them there. Back on the island, a magical barrier is erected around the island by the Order of Merlin to provide protection and prevent the rain from interfering, while they are also taught the chant required for the ritual. Back at the house, Anya decides to check in with Reggie and casts a spell to communicate and wishes him good luck with the ritual and promises pancakes for them next morning. Fifteen Order of Merlin, Roger, Felix, Elliot, Antoine and Matteo form a circle, holding hands and begin chanting. One Order of Merlin offers blood on the stone carving every hour. Samar, Samar, Teo, Samar. A rush of energy is released at the dawn and we all collapse as the ritual is completed. Hopefully it will have been successful, but we will not know until the next moonrise. While the ritual was taking place, Anya was driving uh, the girls and Aiden, Etienne and Zobel to the Yogsatoth temple in the forest. Zobel reveals they are in the area because the Thalorian Archive Repository has recently been activated, courtesy of Antoine, and they were going to use it to make Aiden more competent and useful to aid the party. Anya and Zobel don't know who activated the archive, however. While in the car, Zobel ponders how the protective charms on Kat's baby are five years old, which is super strange given she's only five months pregnant. The spell must have been on Kat cast on Kat back in Peru, and her other two children are born normally. We don't know if this new baby will be affected. Despite these concerns, Aiden accepts Zobel's offer of upgrading his capabilities, which involves injecting him with technology. Zobel leaps at him, and the pair vanish in the blink of an eye. Recap! Reginald and company return to the house and catch up on our sleep. However, Reginald dreams us all into Illic Vlad in the Dreamlands for a nice jolly, without our consent. Upon arriving, Antoine is grumpy about being back in the Dreamlands, but then Reginald notes he is not human, but Thalorian, instead, and sends him back to regular sleep. It appears only Reggie could see this, however, but explains it to the others. Reggie introduces Elliot to the Dreamlands via the 77 Steps of Slumber, and then everyone decides to play around and fly. When they awaken, they return to Oak Island to check the ritual for the Eye of Light and Darkness has worked. At moonrise, the eye opens and looks towards Miser House, and the two Shantanks screech and disintegrate. Fearing this may alert the cult, will suspect something, we get back on the boat and return to Walton on the Nays. On the way back, Reginald tries to offer teaching Elliot about the Silver Key and encourage him to acquire the book. Reggie also asks Antoine why he may have appeared differently in the Dreamlands, to which he explains there is an intelligence in his head which is assisting him. Reggie is a little concerned and suggests introducing Antoine to his wife. Meanwhile, 
Aiden awakens with Zobal, who has successfully integrated the new abilities into him. They meet up with Liza, Kat, Anya, and Etienne, revealing Aiden is bigger, taller, and stronger. Kat informs Liza she needs to offer up something to sacrifice to Yogg-Sothoth in order to appease it. She chooses her childhood teddy bear, which Etienne has because timey-wimey wibbly-wobbly stuff. Kat activates the spell, and Mr. Teddy'sworth floats up into the air. A humanoid form of Yogg-Sothoth approaches and removes Liza's ability to open portals to Limbo. In doing so, she accidentally lays eyes on Yogg-Sothoth's true form. Kat asks Yogg-Sothoth about the enchantments on her and Liza. They were placed on them when Liza summoned the Star Vampire back in Peru, and when she did so, she asked for protection from its hunt. All women in the building were protected, so Kat's children and her unborn child are safe from harm. Yogg-Sothoth leaves, and Liza is left very shaken, so Anya casts Dominate and orders her to forget seeing Yogg-Sothoth's true form, which seems to fix her up. They return to the house just as Roger Vanderbilt and company return from checking on the Eye of Light and Darkness. Zobel immediately sees Antoine as a Thelonian, and Anya reveals the AI in his head is removing his humanity rather than improving him. They discuss some solutions, such as building him a new body, but Antoine uh, votes to have a ritual in the Dreamlands with the flame of Sargotha. They, as well as Elliot, Felix, Aidan and Matteo, agree to join them. Reggie locates a gate on Witch Island. That island, called Witch Island. Just as they leave, Faye arrives, but was late for the ritual, but will accompany us to Witch Island. Inside the house, Liza finds a bouquet of flowers and a card congratulating the success of the Ritual of Light and Darkness, signed by Nyarlathotep. Reggie leads us to the gate into the Dreamlands and takes us to the Temple of Sagotha. Reggie begins dreaming up a made-up ritual to cleanse Antoine, but no one knows he's winging it. He positions everyone and reminds us to envision the new form for Antoine. As they begin, because Reggie arranged for someone to act as a symbolic guard, the dream conjure up some attackers. Adam and Matteo hold them back, however, and Felix, in Sphinx form, takes position to catch Antoine as he emerges from the flames. Aidan cannot thrust Antoine into the fires as he's busy fending off the attackers, so Antoine must throw himself in. He just about overcomes his cowardly inhibitions, and the fire erupts. It flares, glows, and sparkles, and a figure steps into Felix's wings. Antoine emerges and is wearing some odd jewellery, the same that gave him the Thelonian AI. The fire requires Antoine to return later to ask for final payment and to explain his new form and person. Returning to which island, Antoine removes the jewellery and Aiden collects them to take them to Zobel for proper disposal, by eating them. Anya and Reggie take their leave from the group and take Elliot with them, as he is now one of the Order of Merlin. Recap. The following morning, a police officer arrives to inform us Scotland Yard would like our help to assist in investigating some Penhew Foundation locations, including Miser House, after they raided and arrested Gavigan. Antoine would still like to investigate the Venus Temple at some point and asks Liza to accompany him when the time allows after they visit Miser House. Roger and Kat will head to the Penhew Foundation with Aidan, and Matteo and Faye will go to Derby. Felix, Antoine and Liza meet Officer Digby and are taken to Miser House. 
Inside the Great Hall, they find a secret door to a nice study with an ensuite jail with rotting corpses inside. In the study, Antoine finds an old book, The Song of the Jinn, amongst other occult folklore books. Felix flicks through a gruesome medical book outlining all their medical practices. Liza finds an unfinished letter to the Pale Viper, an alias of Aubrey Penhew, and an invoice list of some shipments sent to other Penhew institutes in China, Derby, Egypt, Kenya, and Australia, and the names of the people who received them. Meanwhile in London, Roger, Kat, and Aidan meet Inspector Barrington at Scotland Yard. They have subdued Gavigan after a kerfuffle, and invite the group into the Penhew Foundation to inspect some of the strange objects they've found. A telegram confirms a dig site is being carried out in Mycerinus in Egypt by a Dr. H. Clive. In the basement of the foundation, they explore and cast their eyes on some familiar paintings of horrifying content. One stirs a voice in Aidan's head, which Zobel quickly removes. Cat finds evidence a custom-built walk-in safe was delivered and fitted in Derby. This may have later been installed into the Dark Mistress. In some crates, Aidan finds some very odd and wibbly statues, which Cat seems to put in her bag without realising. Aidan finds a statue of the bloated woman and immediately closes the box. It is full of nope. On a bookshelf, Cat finds several mythos stones, which Inspector Barrington is happy for us to take, including some old scrolls. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. In Miser House, Felix, Liza and Antoine continue exploring, not falling foul of the power of the cult's chapel, thanks to the Eye of Light and Darkness. Liza discovers some papers from Omar Shakti, suggesting something called The Bust should be moved and as a token of good faith between the allies of the cult. Liza finds a headrest dedicated to the Black Pharaoh on a mannequin and puts it in her pocket. She also notices a painting where a pharaoh had just vanished from sight. More effects of the Eye of Light and Darkness nullifying the evil effects of the mansion. Faye and Matteo, meditating in the car, arrive in Derby to investigate Henson Manufacturing and meet Inspector Teddington. They find a large safe, but it is too well built to pick open the lock. Matteo keeps trying while Faye searches the rest of the factory, discovering some complicated blueprints. Many tools and equipment on the factory floor are all well beyond our understanding. After several hours, the safe is finally cracked, and yields some strange components similar to the ones seen in the warehouse in China, and also a shipping manifest for a warehouse in Limehouse. There's too many houses in this sentence. This is where the ivory wind boat, which was shipping uh, stuff to China, is docked. Inspector Teddington will arrange for it to be locked down. Faye attempts to meditate in order to get insight into the blueprints, but is only advised to find a local expert. In London, Aidan, Kat and Roger have finished investigating the Penhew Foundation and return to the Marlebone Hotel to investigate the scrolls they found. There are very few in modern English. Some contain spells and others poems dedicated to Nialathotep, which thankfully Kat is unable to translate given they are in Arabic, Greek and Latin. Aidan is reading his book out loud and invokes a spell because he is dumb. Did he not learn anything from yesterday when he turned into a jackal? A dark purple thing with appendages emerges from the book. 
Roger scoops up Cat and bolts out the door. It is an unknown avatar from the Void, and it is displeased to not be identified correctly. Aiden contacts Zobel in his head, but can't identify it, and recommends consulting with it politely. Aiden asks what the book is about, and is told it contains secrets he is not privileged to know, and slams into Aiden, draining his energy, but he is not dead. Roger confiscates the book. Recap! The Miser House Party prepare to leave and retrieve the Egyptian scepters in Gavigan's basement study. Felix and Liza each pick one up, and nothing happens. Liza grabs both and crosses them across her chest. Antoine rushes upstairs as Liza feels tingly and feels empowered and protected by them, and is reluctant to release them. As they leave, Antoine stalls the car and Felix tampers with the engine, so we have to have the police uh, take us to the railway station. Felix makes a phone call to Cat at the hotel and learns of Aidan's misfortune with the spellbook. He informs Cat of Liza's actions with the scepters, fearing she might be cursed, so Cat can do some research to see if Liza is any danger. There are several train changes, and they arrive in Venta Ikenom in Norfolk, where the Venus Temple is located. Faye and Matea return to London, where Faye receives a message from Felix to return to his spy operations. Matteo shares the blueprints with everyone else, but no one understands them. Inspector Barrington arrives, having locked down the Limehouse warehouse, which was sh- shipping components to Hofang in China. They have also found ritual daggers, strange bat creatures, paintings by the Shipley artists, and other ritual artefacts being shipped to other places such as Australia. The inspector invites the group to investigate them when the rest of the party returns to London. In the meantime, they may look into the Egyptian scepters Liza has and locating an engineer expert to identify the mechanical parts and blueprints. But not before having a nice fancy dinner. Team Antoine arrive in Norwich and have a relaxing evening as well at an Italian restaurant. Felix insists on taking a scepter from Liza, who relents only because she knows that when they are separated, they are useless. Felix decides to return it, feeling comforted she is being genuine and is not cursed. As they talk, they realise they haven't checked if Aiden or Matteo are avatars by making them strip naked to check for tattoos. Antoine also asks when it is convenient for Felix to take him to the Dreamlands to make final payment to the Flame of Sagotha for the ritual performed. The next morning in London, Aiden tries reading an easier book, but still struggles with it. Matteo meditates and Kat writes her spell book while they await the return of the others. Whilst eating breakfast, Liza and Antoine learn of a murder in the area. Felix and Liza are nervous about continuing Antoine's treasure hunt, but Antoine convinces them to stay if they hire a car, as it will be harder to be followed if they are being tracked. Felix phones London to update them on the slight change of plan, and that he believes Liza is not cursed. They drive to the temple, and Liza and Antoine enter. They discover a Latin inscription, which Liza copies for Felix to read as he is fluent. The fourth clue in this treasure hunt reads, Luna has always been jealous of Venus, watching envious from her gleam. We hid Luna's wrath in the pool of reflection. Liza and Antoine deduce that Gleevem is in fact in Gloucester. Recap! Oh. (laughs) 
Aiden gets reminded he can do things by himself and books Eliza and the party into a spa on her request for when they return. After they arrive and have a spot of dinner, Antoine, Felix and Eliza return to the suite to meet up with the rest of the party. Inspector Barrington has dropped off the artefacts that we requested and start, and we start looking at the scrolls from the Penhew Foundation. Antoine calmly burns one scroll once reading its contents because it is written in his handwriting. Felix attempts to retrieve it, but Antoine pokes him with his draining cane, causing a fight. He reveals the scroll, describes himself worshipping the crawling chaos. Felix concedes, but Liza grabs it and locks herself in her room. Roger picks up the jar containing powder of Ibangazi, which can make invisible things visible. He attempts to enter Liza's room to hopefully retrieve the scroll. She relents, but still tries reading one, and only then does she believe the party. Antoine despairs at the lack of trust. We divvy up the remaining scrolls and books and go to sleep, appointing a watch over the artifacts overnight. Felix uses his silver key to give Aiden a very restful sleep. The next day, we have a spa day to rest, and Felix checks out Aiden and Matteo if they have avatar tattoos. They do not. We turn our attention to the crates and open the largest box to find a seven-foot-tall statue of the Dark Pharaoh with tentacles for a face. It has animated and begins attacking us. It begins by ripping open another box to reveal the Sand Bat, a giant eyeball with wings. This is an avatar of Nialathotep. They don't have any tattoos, though. There is a buttload of Sansi loss and Aiden grabs one of the small boxes and pockets it. Antoine declares the sandbat is the avatar and casts with a limb, but it is useless on a statue. Roger grabs Cat and takes her away. Cat creates a mist behind her to obscure her, and Antoine dodges a swipe from the bat while the pharaoh follows Cat and Roger. Aiden keeps grabbing more boxes. Antoine flees over the bridge, and Roger leads Cat down the emergency stairs before the pharaoh catches up to them. Liza has retrieved her gun and begins to load it. Matteo dodges the bat but is cut off while Aiden is still kleptomancying anything that looks shiny. Matteo jabs at the bat but has the poker wrenched from his hands. Felix has gotten to his room and grabbed a small chiseling hammer. Liza peeks out the door to her room and can't see through the mist so she tries to barricade the door but the pharaoh barges in. Aiden regains his senses and punches the bat while Matteo attempts to wriggle free from the but the bat's wings keep a tight grip on him. Antoine begins chanting while demanding everybody get out, while Felix runs back in. Recap. Felix bonks the sand bat with his hammer, whilst Liza decides she is done with this world and flings herself out the window in a series of comedic errors. The bat lashes at Felix, enraged by its wing being chopped off, but Felix skillfully dodges. Aiden attempts to pry the bat wing with his now improved strength, allowing Matteo to wriggle free as the mists of Raleigh continue to spread into the lounge. As she plummets to her death, Liza casts suspension and floats her way to the ground more slowly. The bat launches into Aiden and stabs a tentacle into his inner ear. Liza then suddenly has her spell negated by the Dark Pharaoh. Matteo leaps at the bat and removes the tentacle from Aiden's ear. Felix has fled down a fire escape and Liza desperately pulls out Mendoza's mirror and yelps for Etienne's help, whose time machine appears below her and catches her. Cat and Roger have reached the lobby and demand the police be called at the utmost urgency. 
Matteo is struggling to keep the tendril from entering Aiden again, but Aiden manages to drag them out of the bat's clutches and flee out of the room. Finally, Antoine releases an almighty force field, launching the bat out the window. Aiden is caught, but resists the barrier. A Harry Potter-Voldemort Expelliarmus duel ensues, and the barrier crumbles. All the walls and ceiling have crumbled to dust. The pharaoh has also launched himself out the window after Liza, but the time machine disappears. Both Avatar statues have smashed into the ground. In the lobby, everyone except Liza are met by Inspector Barrington as they confirm the statues are destroyed. Antoine fears he may have launched Liza out of the penthouse with his barrier. Felix inquires if Zara Shafiq of the spice shop is still at large, trying to fob the penthouse debacle onto her. Meanwhile in Paris, Liza and Etienne emerge from the time machine and enjoy a lovely evening, and is kind enough to send a telegram to us to let us know that she is safe. The police end up moving us to the Tower of London for our safety and protection. Some of our possessions have been recovered, but some of Matteo's components from Derby have been destroyed. Previously on Masks of Nyalfotep. Recap. In our new hotel, the Tower of London, only Matteo, Aidan and Antoine are at the breakfast table, wondering where Felix, Cat, and Roger have gone. Antoine receives a telegram that they are on a train arriving at Charing Cross. How did they get there? Liza, Cat, and Felix step off the train with Walter. Oh, how we've missed him. But we see that Cat is no longer pregnant. We have coffee in the Savoy, and it's revealed that time shenanigans meant the trio spent five months in Switzerland, where Cat gave birth to Etienne Vanderbilt, and Felix also dealt with the crawling mist in the mountain temple. Before the party leave the UK, Cat wants to publish her book, Matteo to investigate the strange components being manufactured and shipped to China, and Antoine to finish his treasure hunt in Gloucester. Cat, Matteo and Aidan arrange to meet Professor Scott in Cambridge to look over the components and blueprints and make their way by train, while Antoine, Cat and Felix hire a car to Gloucester. Speaking to the Dean at the Cathedral, they learn the Temple of Luna is underneath the Cathedral and is currently being used as a crypt. They head inside. In Cambridge, the team meet Professor Scott and share the components and blueprints. He identifies that they have been reverse-engineered from the original that was retrieved from a place called The City. He believes it is designed for a flying contraption, some kind of gyroscope or an engine. Cat decides to pay the professor to reproduce the device from the blueprints. Back in Gloucester, the team trek through the crypt and Liza finds a depression in the wall, which leads to an old Roman bath with the tomb of the first abbot of the abbey inside. The tomb is blocking a transcription, so Antoine levitates it out of the way. The following phrase is discovered. Luna brings war and strife. Mars guides warriors who lead the way. The oldest fort is where this clue dwells. Antoine figures Oxford is the best place to ask a specialist on Roman Britain, so they drive there. The Cambridge crew return to London, and Inspector Barrington meets them, grumpy that we didn't tell him that we were travelling, and arranges for police to accompany us from now on. They also send some to meet us in Oxford. Cat, Matteo and Aidan are escorted to St James's Palace for security and luxury. The following day, Cat catches up with Walter for the book publishing and funding Cambridge for the engineering project. 
It also turns into a shopping trip for Matteo and Aiden with Walter. He will not allow them to be dressed incorrectly in the presence of Liza and Kat Vanderbilt. Otherwise, the group are at a loose end, waiting for the Oxford group to return. Apart from Matteo, who plays cat and mouse with the police to find a place to meditate. Lady Bast arrives to speak with him, offering to help assist in the fight against Nyarthotep. She tells him to meet her in Hyde Park at sunset. Recap! Cat is searching for Madal to help publish and sell her book. He is elusive, but Cat finds his shop, though the interior is the same as his tent. Madal is concerned Cat is publishing dark esoteric knowledge, as previous authors did not have kind fates bestowed upon them. Cat has donned the name Jester Eo in place of Nyarlathotep, although it appears this is now also canon. Madal reminds Cat of the spice shop owner Zara Shafiq. As she leaves, her police escorts outside have lost their faces, just blank flesh in place of eyes, nose and mouth. Madal sends Cat out the back door to avoid the jester who is on his way. However, the police drones are blocking them. Madal locks the door and Cat calls Inspector Barrington, who dispatches an escort. In Oxford, Antoine, Liza and Felix head to the university library. They find out that the fort of Verulamian is what they're searching for in St Albans, but the Royal Air Force bulldozed it during the war. Professor Holmian's notes, however, may help us. Uh, the notes reveal that the Temple of Mars was located there, and two transcriptions are discovered, pointing to an old fort at Hadrian's Wall, and we are instructed to seek Saturn, for this is the key. Thanks to Felix deciphering the damaged notes, we work out we have to go to Hadrian's Wall. Uh, we decide to return to London and pick up the rest of the group uh, so that we can all travel to Scotland together. Back in London, Matteo is in Hyde Park and bumps into a faceless police officer. He manages to lose them in the crowd and lays low for the remainder of the day. The crowds don't seem to notice their faceless demeanour. In Matteo's shop, a immaculately dressed man walks through the door. Nyarlathotep in his guise of King of Dreams. He compliments Cat's book and achievements at Miser House. Having revealed his jester Eo alias, Cat has inconvenienced him, so he taunts her that one of the party will perish and be removed from the playing board before they leave England. He vanishes just as Inspector Barrington arrives to return her to St. James's Palace, where Aidan has spent the time reading Africa's Dark Sects. Walter gives Cat a derringer which she puts in her handbag and learns how to cast her shape-shifting spell. In the evening, Matteo returns to Hyde Park to meet Lady Bast, who warns him he is being hunted and leads him to Trafalgar Square via teleportation. She offers him a ring with a ruby embedded which will allow him to communicate with Cat, who can relay messages to Bast herself. They return to St. James's Palace just as Antoine, Liza and Felix return from Oxford. Cat tells everybody of her encounter with Nyarlathotep and his warning. We decide to go over our notes to determine our next destination outside England after we go to Hadrian's Wall and investigate uh, Zara Shefik. Recap. It is decided that we will venture to Australia next and meet with the occult expert Professor Cowles in Sydney to try and learn about the types of occult items that may be coming out of Australia via the Randolph shipping in Darwin. Walter has arranged transport on the cargo ship US Yotanza for us, yet publicly we have bought tickets to Egypt to throw off the cultists tracking us. It's also a little bit faster to travel on the cargo ship. 
As a backup, Felix will also install a ward on the cargo ship to prevent them from scrying our location. Until then, we will first keep tabs on Zara Shafiq and inform Inspector Barrington we will be investigating the spice shop. We spend the evening reading books and learning spells. In the morning, Inspector Barrington gives us the key to the spice shop, although it hasn't had the most thorough search by the police yet. Felix remains at the hotel to work on the ward he is going to set up, while the rest of us head to the spice shop. Most of it is just a regular shop, though the Egyptian-themed bedroom is rather lavish. Antoine reveals a hidden locked door in the basement, which Matteo unlocks. Liza finds a hidden compartment in a desk in the lounge to find occult robes, scrolls, and some scepters. Aidan has found some statuettes, and he asks Liza to check, given our recent bad encounter with statues. In the locked room downstairs, there are chains, clamps, blood, and a small black statue set on a shrine. Matteo is drawn towards it. Nyarthotep, in his mind, tells him to deliver a party member to him. But Matteo successfully resists. He leaves the room. Antoine and Kat decide to consult Liza before they desecrate the blood-stained shrine and bloody candles. Upstairs, Liza studies the statues as she begins to walk downstairs with Antoine and Kat. She hears Egyptian hieroglyphs being whispered. Something or someone has focus on her. It's Aiden under the influence of the statuettes. Liza brings the ankh scepters across her chest to protect herself, but experiences a horrifying vision and flees the building. Kat follows her. Antoine is bemused, unaware of Aiden in the other room, and is convinced it's the statue in the basement and storms downstairs. He smashes the statue with some chains and it cracks open in half, and thick black ooze erupts from it. He ducks out the room and slams the door shut. Aiden is still whispering incantations upstairs, and Liza soon receives major wounds to her arms as she shrieks in pain. Kat senses a dark energy is now inside the building and drags Matteo outside. The dark aura drains his energy as he crosses the threshold. The black ooze creeps under the door and Antoine flees out of the basement and through the back door. His energy is also drained and he collapses in the garden. The police call for backup and rescue Aiden and Antoine and the injured are taken to hospital. Recap. At the hospital, Inspector Barrington drops by and Kat feeds him a story of poisonous spices and traps at the spice shop that incapacitated us. Felix comes by and takes Kat back to the spice shop to dismantle the statue, not knowing Antoine already has done this. They look around the house once more and Felix discovers the Mirror of Gal, which can spy and attack somebody at a great distance. They remove the mirror and take it back to the palace. In the morning, everyone at the hospital awakens, and Liza has received flowers from Etienne, but will have to remain in the hospital for a while. Antoine, Aidan, and Matteo return to the palace. Kat offers to stay in London to keep an eye on Liza so everyone else can accompany Antoine to Scotland. He arranges a plane to take them there. Walter also arranges for Dr. Lansing to be assigned to the party for long-term care for Liza. He also manages to have Liza taken back to the palace. The rest of the party board a plane to fly to Newcastle and take a train to get to Hadrian's Wall. Without an archaeologist present, it is very hard to locate the vault. But as Aidan trips into a ditch, Matteo locates a symbol of Saturn in an old tower ruins further along the wall. Everything is overgrown and mossy and it's hard to see anything, but Aidan finds another 
symbol of Saturn in a flagstone. Antoine levitates the stones out of the way to reveal a stairway to the vault. Inside, a figure of Kronos projects itself before the party. He says that his children have fallen to the unknowable Kadath, and he has stashed the treasures of Olympus in this vault. Matteo and Felix are mysteriously expelled from the vault, having been deemed not worthy, leaving only Aidan and Antoine to explore. At the altar, the symbols of Kronos and Saturn and three objects are found. A sword with a silver handle, a crystal scepter with the moon carved into it, and a large golden tetrahedron crystal wrapped in a red metal. Antoine lays his hand on the scepter, it glows a silver light, and he vanishes out of the vault. Aidan is left all alone, but manages to remain calm. He holds the crystal, which pricks his finger, and he then also vanishes out of the vault. Felix and Antoine come to an agreement not to return the found relics to a museum until the journey is over. Aidan gifts the tetrahedron to Antoine for safekeeping, which also pricks his finger too, until they know how to use the artifacts properly. Meanwhile, Liza and Kat take it easy and talk to remain calm and regain some sanity. Kat also finally learns how to use her new spell. Everybody reconvenes back in London. The tetrahedron crystal has mysteriously bent out of shape since it left the vault. We agree to look into it while we're on the boat to Australia. We spend a couple of days packing and gathering any supplies. In Southampton, we are seen to board the passenger ship to Egypt, then secretly are shuttled onto the Yartanza cargo ship heading for Australia. On the last episode of Masks of Nyarlathotep, Recap. After sneaking into the Yutanza cargo ship, we settle into our non-luxurious suites and cook our own breakfast. Liza reports her Necronomicon is missing. Antoine and Felix check their possessions are all in order. Some of Kat's books are also missing. As far as we know, only the girls and the maids have access to their room. We report to Captain Hollister, who arranges First Officer Mills to begin searching the crew quarters. Liza calms herself by playing her ocarina on the main deck. Antoine begins researching his lunar scepter, and Felix sees Kat for some calming psychoanalysis. All of a sudden, while Liza plays her music, she summons an almighty storm, and the crew move to all-hands-on-deck mode. Antoine has the worst seasickness, and is taken to the infirmary and sedated. When things have calmed a little, the captain invites the conscious members of the party to dinner, and schmoozes a little with Liza. Kat informs the maids of the missing books, who will help try to find them. Matteo begins searching through the hold decks and finds nothing untoward, but is discovered by a sailor and is escorted out to the front of the tween deck, somewhere safe Matteo can stroll about indoors. While Antoine is unconscious, Felix uses the opportunity to dream him to Illic Vlad in the dreamlands. But of course, Felix is a sphinx, and Antoine stumbles over an edge and plummets over a cliff. Once he is caught and calmed down, they enjoy flying over the city and realise they are very far from Sagotha. Back in the real world, Aidan reads his tomes. Matteo attempts to meditate, but the noises of the storm are too distracting. So he explores a little more and finds a locked door he cannot unlock. In the dreamlands, Felix takes a wrong turn and ends up on a basalt pillar on the western edge of the dreamlands, as far as possible away from where we need to be. Felix eventually gets us to the Enchanted Forest, and Sir Gotha entrusts a statue of himself to 
Antoine to take back to the real world and simply just own it and let it exist in his honour. Recap. As we sail into the Mediterranean, we leave the storm behind and have a calm four days of reading books and learning spells. Felix instead decides to summon a house cat to help search for the lost books in exchange for some river trout when we reach Australia. Our cook we are bribing to prepare food, Mitch, makes breakfast. Matteo has a read of a book for Felix and gives him a summary and says he doesn't want to read anymore because it is scary. Liza overhears and reminds Felix she can read Mandarin and can help finish the book. Aidan spends time with Kat to calm his mind and regain some sanity. Matteo spends some time with the house cat on board and the captain offers to put us in individual cabins rather than sharing as a way of apology of the lost books. Aidan goes to see his new friend Mitch to cook uh, and prepare a celebratory meal for leaving Europe and the pair go into the hold to pick ingredients though Mitch is clearly only going to use the best food if he's paid well. On deck, Walter grasses up Aidan, trying to bribe the cook, wondering if he's trying to swindle him of any money. They decide to interrogate him and search his room. Liza determines in the end, though, that they just need to follow this up with Mitch, and since Walter has struck up a deal with him already to prepare food, they decide to talk with him over a cup of tea. Antoine learns to send messages telepathically and talks to Kat. She is impressed and asks for his assistance in learning spells from the Lever Divon, which he obliges. Felix goes to speak with Mitch ahead of Liza and Aiden and asks him to access the hold since he has permission to enter there. Mitch swindles him for more money and agrees to search for the books in the hold. Before he can leave, Walter arrives and invites him to discuss the special dinner to prepare. Felix heads to the bridge to speak to the captain. When we pass through the Suez Canal, there will be a customs check, so he arranges for the party to be stowed away out of sight while they perform the search. At night, Antoine practices a new spell and successfully performs a ritual which erupts a light into the void, opening a gate and summoning what Antoine thought was a sultan to answer any question for him. It was, in fact, Azathoth. He is unable to stop the spell and screams for any angel to help him. All except Mitch and Matteo hear this and come up on deck. They are startled. Felix thinks killing Antoine will fix this. Cat quickly stops him as it will only make it worse. Felix goes into a fit of laughter as he realises what to do. He makes everyone hold hand and chants as many Cthulhu mythos and god names as possible. And suddenly a beautiful chorus of sound bellows out of the darkness and the portal snaps shut and Nodens is seen on the waves, visibly relieved. He demands to know why Antoine did this, but no one in the party knows why. He cannot cleanse Antoine's soul as it is touched by the Court of Songs, and says he can try killing him or removing the knowledge from Antoine's mind. Felix chooses the latter. Nodens touches his trident to Antoine's head, but blinks in confusion then screams as the air behind him splits open, revealing unknowable Kadath, and Nialthotep yanks Nodens and Antoine through the portal, and it closes. Recap. The group explain Antoine's disappearance by saying he fell overboard. When they arrive at the Suez Canal, Felix purposefully does not inform the group of the custom search for some reason, possibly distraught over the loss of his travelling partner. 
The captain manages to escort the group to the hidey hole. Felix does not appear to be himself, and Cat determines he needs assistance when the customs check is over. During which, Felix claims half the small room for himself in his unstable mental state. During the search, Father Eduardo Veduccia boards having arranged passage to Melbourne. He recognises absolutely no one. After burning some food and blaming the priest, Felix storms off to his room. Cat follows in the hopes of assisting whatever is troubling him and gives him a five-hour counselling session, which does go some way to dealing with his narcissistic mannerisms. Eduardo begins to talk with Liza and explain his journey and is surprised that she knows so much about the cult of the Sandbat in Australia. Eduardo admits he has knowledge and some members of the party suspect he might be a member of the cult. Later, Felix meets Mitch to apologise for his behaviour in the galley and Mitch remains very bitter towards him. Felix then approaches Eduardo and Liza to apologise to them as well, but also to inform Liza that Antoine's journal has now gone missing as well. The concern is great enough that they consider stopping the boat and make a thorough investigation. Matteo goes searching for the cat on board to check if he has had any luck finding the books and if he thinks the father is suspicious, to which on both accounts he answers no. They also talk about the locked room again and Matteo feels that he needs to find out if there is anything in there. He tries to convince the cat to go in but is reluctant to until it receives a fishy bribe. Meanwhile, Cat asks how Aiden is getting on reading her new book, and even offers Eduardo a copy. At dinner, Eduardo accidentally guilts Felix into saying a few words as a memorial gesture to Antoine. Liza meets Mitch after dinner to see if he has had any luck in finding their lost property, and offers him a substantial reward if he does so. Liza then holds a meeting with the group to discuss how to find their books and determine if the father can be trusted. They think about encouraging the captain to take a slower route to Australia to allow more time to hunt for their possessions. Before bed, Felix decides to summon the ship's cat to see how it's getting on, only to learn he is basically doing the same job for Matteo, and it hurries off to try and gain access to the locked room. Liza easily convinces the captain to take a longer time to reach Australia, and we have a restful five days of sailing into the Indian Ocean. Recap. Felix and Matteo wonder where their feline friend has disappeared to. Matteo knows there's a way in via the ballast, but is not certain of the route. They enrope Mitch once again with even more money to take them into the locked hold. They decide not to send everyone down below, so Liza and Walter mingle with the father to keep up appearances, but also to determine his intentions. In the ship, Mitch leads the others into the locked hold. They find in the centre the crates have been assembled into an amphitheatre stage. The books that have been stolen are arranged with lit candles assorted around them and the whole crew welcomes them to the Temple of the Scion and that he approaches. Then Aiden appears on stage with a tattoo on his bare chest speaking as Neolithotep, thanking them for delivering Nodens to him. Aiden has slowly been assimilating the crew, hence why they gave us individual cabins, so he could sneak about at night without our group noticing. Aiden casts a shield around himself, thanking Cat for lending him her book, 
the loss of sanity was enough to send Aiden over the edge. Matteo frustratingly launches himself at the nearest cultist and punches his face while another swings a blade at Felix, who sidesteps out of the way. Mitch joins in with the punching of the cultist while Cat flees the hold, but is not able to fire off a telepathic message to Liza. She's clearly too distressed seeing her friend now as an avatar. The cultists begin to swarm Matteo and begin pummeling him, while another sacrifices itself and crumples into ash, its power absorbed by the avatar, Aiden. Aiden tries to interrupt Felix's spell charge, but is unable to. The high priest also attempts to target Cat with a spell, but she too resists. Matteo fends off the punches and flees as Mitch dodges a knife attack as Felix casts Oblong Barrier before him. This sends Mitch into a panic state who bludgeons the first mate unconscious. On deck, where things are much calmer, Walter asks Liza to sign for Aiden's telegram expenditures. This confuses her as we aren't supposed to be making contact with anyone outside the boat, and so she requests for the telegrams. Back down below, Mitch shakes off his insanity rage and flees, while Kat successfully sends a telepathic message to Liza warning of the Avatar down below. Liza screeches in shock about an Avatar of Nialthotep, but the father seems to recognise the name and joins Liza to reach the hold. Kat tries to leave the hold, but some invisible barrier blocks her path. More cultists continue to sacrifice themselves to the Avatar of Nialthotep. Aiden fires a spell at Matteo, and it's going to hit him squarely in the chest until it bounces off the oblong barrier, which in turn collapses. Matteo desperately searches for the ballast and spots a manhole cover and begins lifting it, which Felix hoists up and launches it at another cultist to reveal a dank tunnel that extends down the length of the boat. Mitch leaps into the tunnel and makes his way towards the other hold, and Cat follows him. Before he can follow, Aiden tries again to attack Felix, who once again rebuffs it right into another cultist. This allows Felix and Matteo to escape into the tunnels. Everyone has successfully fled the area with their lives, but an active avatar of Nialthotep is still loose on the ship with a makeshift temple and cult at his bidding. Previously on Masks of Nialthotep. Recap. The HMS Yatanza is now the acting shrine of the Scion, embodied in the form of Aiden. Everyone but Father Eduardo and Liza are escaping from the lower deck hold to the tween deck. Kat declares that the ritual must be stopped because she absolutely definitely recognised that ritual without failing a Cthulhu mythos. Avatar Aiden casts a spell to fill the tween deck they are escaping into with thick grey fog. Mateo leads the group to a ladder at the prow of the ship. Eduardo and Liza are about to enter the superstructure and fog billows out to meet them. Uh, So they run to the open deck. Below deck, Mitch decides to split up from the group and dashes through the fog. He can hear the drums and chanting from below. Cat casts a silver light illuminating inside the fog. They clamber out onto the main deck, fog still billowing out and not burning off in the sun, just as Eduardo and Liza reach the front deck to try to meet them. But the fog is so thick now, they can't see them. But the silver light is helping somewhat. As they move forward, Liza crashes through a canvas hatch cover as Eduardo also falls but bounces on another canvas. Meanwhile, Mitch has fumbled his way to the bridge and is met by the quartermaster and boson. They are also cultists. He grabs a fire axe and begins flailing it at them. 
Liza uses suspension to float back up on deck with an angelic glow surrounding her. The father recognises this is a blasphemous spell, but needs must when an evil cult and avatar are on board. We then hear Mitch fighting on the bridge. Stepping out of the fog is the darkness covered with eyes. Aiden has been twisted into a ten-foot-tall horrifying monster due to the tattoo branded on his chest. It creeps out some of us, but not Matteo, who flings his fist at Aiden's face. Father Eduardo tries to find in his book just what this is, when he feels incredibly faint as Liza casts the light of Sakur, draining his life force to charge the spell. He at least falls to his knees, avoiding Cat's lightning spell, which strikes Aiden. Shaken, Eduardo fires his gun whilst praying. Liza steps forward and erupts a magnificent, brilliant ball of bright light on Aiden. He shrieks and screams. Nyarlathotep flees his body and Aiden shreds into ashes and they float on the wind. Mitch has successfully taken back control of the bridge and the fog finally lifts to reveal an enormous maelstrom on the horizon cast by the cultists below deck and it is slowly drawing the ship in. We aren't out of the shit fest yet. Recap! The ship lurches to the side as the maelstrom pulls the HMS Yatanza towards it, everybody stumbling on deck. Somehow, the stolen spellbooks emerge from the ashes of Aiden, and Matteo leans over to grab them before they fall into the ocean. On the bridge, Mitch spins the wheel and tries to steer the ship away. However, someone needs to be in engineering to change the engine speed. On deck, rain is hammering down, lashing at everyone. So we all take shelter on the bridge, except for Felix, who makes his way to engineering. He somehow miraculously manages to switch the engines into reverse. Father Eduardo leads a prayer to calm the maids, while Kat and Liza rush to their rooms to grab some of their belongings. The ship begins to tip over the edge of the swirling waters, the engines just giving enough power, and Mitch's steering keeps it from plunging any deeper. Liza returns with some sheet music she and Mitch try to play to try and calm the storm. Matteo has been meditating and declares, The cyclone is a portal! But to where, we don't know. As they play their instruments, Liza collapses, too weak after banishing Nialathotep. But Mitch successfully plays the song, and the inclement weather calms. But the twister only grows in strength as the ship begins to lurch in again. While Felix tries to adapt his spell to determine the portal destination, Eduardo spots a science vessel not previously noticed before and is also inside the maelstrom. There is nothing we can do and we plunge through the portal. The ship slams into something. It grinds and cracks, renders and buckles, water gushing into the engine room and then silence. We appear to be scattered on the shore of an unknown island and the water has stopped pouring into the ship. The ship has broken into three pieces, and those on the bridge help Liza regain consciousness and make our way off the wreck as Felix and Walter crawl out of the engine room. We rescue some supplies, set up a small campfire, and make some food and try to explain just what happened to Mitch. Liza tries casting a spell. Eduardo tries to explain it as an act against God. It just confuses him even more. On the science vessel, Wallace Sharp is trying to make sense where the terrible storm came from. He was following some kind of signal, but it has now vanished. His equipment broke during the storm, but the ship is at least afloat near the strange island. He spends the night trying to recover his wet and sodden notes. 
In the morning, Liza sees on the cliff top a statue. It looks like Aden, but it was built many centuries ago. We all spot the boat offshore further off the coast and wonder if they are friendly. Liza, Kat and Eduardo remain at the campsite and try to cover as many belongings and supplies as possible. As Matteo, Felix and Mitch venture up the beach to the boat, they see more statues of Aiden on the cliffside. They remain hidden and check out the boat with some binoculars. On board the ship, the crew have spotted the Yatanza wreckage and gather a group to row to shore, including Wallace, to meet Matteo, Felix and Mitch. He only recognises the famous adventurer Felix Walker. The first officer offers to ferry the rest of us onto their ship, the Soundwave. From there, we can see the island is littered with even more statues, and in the centre of the island is a dark, monolithic tower. We should probably get out of here. Recap. After 24 hours and having the Doctor on board look us over, we are mostly recovered. Wallace is almost finished repairing the radio, some messages can be sent out about the rescue of the Vanderbilts. Liza requests that the family name not be mentioned so as to keep the cult in the dark as to our survival and location. The captain agrees to this request, but also appears to believe Felix and Liza are engaged. This is news to Felix. Wallace attempts to send the messages, but his radio detects a strange signal from the island. He tries to triangulate its position. Liza asks Kat to help calm her mind given all the things that have happened to them. But as she describes and explains them, Kat starts to truly understand just how grave their encounters have been and excuses herself, not in a stable mental capacity to help Liza. Back in the radio room, Wallace triangulates the signal, but then a spark erupts out the radio through the vacuum components, not because he didn't want to spend any luck on the roll, and a crackling noise and electricity spreads throughout the ship. Felix, on the other hand, hears something in the sparkling radio waves and slumps unconscious. Mitch enters the radio room to help Wallace put out the fire. Once it's back under control, Mitch begins to rant about how crazy stuff only happened when the Vanderbilt party came on board. He advises Wallace not to trust the group. It's so nice to see we're all getting along so well. Mitch even suspects the group wanted to get to this island. Wallace reports this concern to the captain, but he dismisses it as eccentric aristocracy, but will keep an eye on the group. Wallace begins preparing a launch back to the island as he wants to investigate the signal source. Meanwhile, Matteo discovers an unconscious Felix and after failing to administer first aid, gets the doctor who helps into his room. Matteo decides to get everyone together to inform them. He's only able to find Eduardo and Liza, but they are okay. Then Mitch bumps into them, explaining what happened in the radio room, which caused the electric pulse. The trio then go into the mess hall to have some food. Meanwhile, Felix is in the dreamlands at the bottom of a spiral staircase, surrounded by a field of black monoliths. He is unable to dream himself away, so he reluctantly starts climbing the stairs, up, 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 into the cavern ceiling, blocked by a stone slab. He emerges into an enchanted forest and closes the slab to nightmare. He pays his respects to Sagotha and eventually wakes back up, but his egomaniacal personality has returned. He learns from the Doctor we are not leaving the island yet. He attempts to storm off to either Wallace or the Captain, but is sedated by the Doctor. Wallace enters the mess hall and asks if the group would come on land with him, but no one is up for it. Cat awakens and joins the conversation and tries to bribe Wallace to leave the island now. But he isn't moved. He is a man driven by science, not money. 
Cat tries the same trick with the captain, but his hands are tied because Wallace owns the boat. It looks like we aren't leaving anytime soon. Felix returns to the dreamlands in Nightmare and remembers his sphinx form has wings. So he flies up to the enchanted forest and waits until he awakens. Wallace and Mitch continue to make their case to return to the island and Eduardo and Matteo relent. Liza forms some kind of scheme with Cat to try and scare everyone back off the island. The group bundle into the launch with their equipment and head back to the island. As the boat lowers, Cat creates a wall of fog. But this doesn't deter the launch crew, since we're so close to the island anyway. Liza stares at Cat with a disappointing scowl as she disappears over the horizon to the island. Felix barges out onto deck and yells, they mustn't go to the island, just as he sees the boat leaving. He declares to Cat, the cults know we defeated the Scion. They are unlocking the throne. He runs to the captain, thinking another boat full of cultists are approaching, but it's just the other salvage team. Now he just looks crazy. So much for not going back to the island. We cat. Felix informs Cat that when the radio went crazy, he heard the message being broadcast. The ritual going on on the island is in response to the Scion's death and will unleash terrible suffering. The Doctor brings him some dinner and Felix dumps it all out the window, suspicious of it being drugged. Cat manages to telepathically warn Liza of the dangers awaiting them. Everybody on the beach follows Wallace up the path to the cliff. When Liza receives her mind message and sits down, not feeling very well. Mateo and Eduardo want to take her back to the ship. Wallace, on the clifftop, sets up his radio, and it starts reciting, Scion, 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 and he witnesses the tower give off a green glow. Eduardo goes up to meet him to give him an update on Liza's condition. Back on the ship, Felix sees the green light from former dome around the island, but the ship remains outside. On the beach, Liza and Matteo are waiting for the launch to return when Matteo suddenly loses track of it. Liza realises what happened and curses. On the cliff, Wallace is still playing with his radio when Eduardo arrives. Seeing the green light, he argues to have the party leave, but it's a classic science versus religion argument. Mitch is starting to have doubts about being here. On the ship, everyone is staring at the island. The launch boats have seemingly vanished. Even the captain has noticed the green light, but suspects it's Wallace's radio experiments. As they discuss a rescue party, the waters around the dome are frothing and are approaching the ship. The captain orders the ship move further back away from the dome. On the beach, Liza and Mateo contemplate about the vanishing launch, which struck the magical barrier, and figure they have no choice but to deal with the ritual and the cultists further inland. On the cliff, Wallace successfully gets the message to play through his radio. A green wave erupts out of the radio and smacks into Eduardo, Mitch and Wallace and two other sailors. The latter ooze and boil in their own flesh. The spectacle sends Wallace into a panic and he runs aimlessly inland as Liza and Matteo catch up and explain the existence of the barrier and that they need to dispel it. On the boat, Cat and Felix think about creating a gate to pass through the barrier. Felix grabs Antoine's old magic staff to power the spell and some paint to inscribe the pattern, while Cat takes them to the spare room and begins the spell. It's going to take a while to cast, but Cat will try to make it pass through time and space in order to make sure it is of use to us. 
Before they go through, they have Walter bring their guns and give instructions for the crew to help it if they do not return in a few hours. Captain Felix then steps through into the past. Back on the island, Father Eduardo successfully manages to bring Wallace to his senses and Liza takes charge. They arrive at the Temple of the Scion and Liza reads an inscription to determine the temple is a giant machine. Liza and Matteo light their torches and lead the way inside. Meanwhile, Cat and Felix have emerged in a room where cultists have recently sacrificed themselves somewhere in the temple. The pair of them slowly explore using Cat's moonlight torch. They find a mural of the wonders from beyond and stare into it. Back at the entrance, we approach another mural of the Nordic invader depicting Mendoza from Peru attacking someone. Possibly Felix? As everyone shuffles through the temple, we can start to hear each other from each other's groups. We reunite and venture further in to find a green light emanating down a corridor being focused via statues and reflected up into the ceiling. Then, from the darkness, a voice. Ah, the murderers of the Sion. Please, come into my throne room. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. As we explore the Temple of the Scion, Wallace and Eduardo head back outside to gather some of their supplies. Matteo discovers a mural depicting a timeline of the Scion, Aiden, from birth to his destiny, yet we have interrupted the final events. Outside, Wallace and Eduardo discover the landscape is barren and covered in fungus and sulphur in the air. Felix and Liza inspect a crystal known as the Heart of Cthugna, also known as the Oracle of Delphi. Felix inspects some murals, the servants guarding the way, and the resurrection. And a giant model of a solar system mysteriously suspended in the room, with many arches around the walls and a pile of fresh human corpses in the centre. He backs away. Liza finds a beautiful statue, the Queen Mitokrish of the Dark Pharaoh. Back at the front door, Wallace inspects the portal and is suddenly pulled through and is now standing on a hill and the sulphur rips through his lungs once more. The father escorts him back to the main chamber, but they discover a strange black wall blocks their path. Wallace foolishly touches it and black blood oozes over his hand and it spooks the pair, startling the father into a temporary bout of amnesia. The rest of the group have met back up and will not separate one anymore. Concern for Wallace and Eduardo. They, however, discover another mural depicting Felix fighting cultists on the New York fire escape from when Jackson Elias was murdered, except the mural is far older than when the event occurred. Eduardo, meanwhile, is confused with no memory of the day and and is slowly escorted by Wallace to another part of the temple. They discover another mural, which Eduardo believes depicts an evil cultist that Liza vanquished. The image brings his memories back, and he collapses in confusion. Back at the others, Felix is also having memory problems, though he seems to be taking it badly and demanding to know why they aren't on the boat and where his breakfast is. Liza utters Nyarlathotep's name, and the darkness slowly closes in around them, their torches not reaching very far into the darkness. Fortunately, the noise alerts Eduardo and Wallace, and we all reunite. Cat takes Felix to one side and calms him down once again. Something moves in the shadows that Matteo and Wallace quickly glance at. The father looks down the hall and mistakes Felix and Cat for demons. Wallace suggests he is still hallucinating as he realises his mistake. 
In the next room, we discover more corpses that have removed their eyeballs and placed them in some bowls on some altars. Felix ties rope around himself and ventures into the room, instructing others to pull him and Matteo back if they see something that makes them want to take their own eyes out. What they find is actually Nathialathotep on his throne with pet monsters behind him. The rope then suddenly goes slack, and each person at the other end of the rope look into the darkness with grave concern. Recap! Outside the eyeball room down the hall, Liza, Eduardo and Kat await the rest of the party, but they see eyeballs in the darkness and bolt down the hallway. The girls hear strange things that spur them deeper into the temple, until we enter a room where an old man called Alanar is sitting writing a tale of our story and is trying to enact some kind of ritual due to our thwarting of the scion to aid, to end the world of life. He reveals whomsoever removes the crystal powering the ritual will break the spell, but will kill them in the process. He also gives a scroll to Eduardo, revealing the location of his lord, Yahweh. As we leave, a burst of green light emulates the room, leaving behind a single book. Back in the eyeball room, Mitch and Wallace pull the rope and see it has been cut. They decide to run back to get help and leave uh, Felix and Matteo in the throne room with Nialthotep. The Dark Lord laments with Felix how he has successfully thwarted the scion, then threatens to reveal Felix's other name to Matteo. He gestures to the walls and tempts the pair to leave his little game of ending the world. He also teases the only way to stop him once and for all is to end the universe. Matteo at least extracts information that the ritual of Eye of Light and Darkness is in strategic locations will achieve our goal. With that, Nyarthotep unleashes the shank tanks on Felix and Matteo. Meanwhile, Mitch and Wallace bump into Liza Cat and Eduardo. The trio steal themselves and run towards the eyeball room, only to bump into Felix and Matteo fleeing the shank tanks. We all turn tail, but Felix trips on some steps. In a moment of panic, he dominates a shank tank. And it works. He commands it to attack the other shank tank. Liza chants and glows and commands a force to yoink Felix down the corridor towards her and they collapse in a heap. Mitch helps them back to their feet while the shank tanks plough into each other. Meanwhile, Matteo has fled out of the building into a plain of black grass and a great eyeball hangs in the sky. He steps back inside again. Eduardo, Mitch, Liza, Felix and Kat make their way up towards the crystal while the father continues to chant a spell. Wallace has fled into the main chamber with the crystal and suggests we shoot it. As she flees into the crystal chamber, Liza blasts a shantake with her shotgun, Bubbles. It retaliates and launches itself at Liza and Eduardo, but stumbles past them. Felix gestures another dominate spell to the shantake, demanding it jostle the crystal for him, just as Eduardo moves away. Wallace ventures into a room and overlooks a balcony to see a sea of dead corpses and proceeds to vomit all over them. Meanwhile, Eduardo casts his barrier spell, hoping to launch the Shantake into the crystal, but the spell is far too powerful, and walls, pillars, and the ceiling starts being repelled, break, and collapse. The barrier protects the father from falling debris, but the crystal has slipped, and it's firing its energy beam in different directions. Everyone attempts to avoid the falling rocks. Under Felix's command, the Shantank touches the crystal and it boils alive, shutting down the energy beam. Wallace has become trapped in the room with the corpses and attempts to make his way to safety. 
he approaches a skull on a pedestal and foolishly touches it. The space behind him reveals a doorway to an underwater city. He steps back away from it. Eduardo is also trapped inside the barrier, trying to find something in the book to help him while everyone else flees to Captain Liza's portal. Wallace is floundering from crystal to crystal skull, trying to find a way out. Eventually, he steps through a portal and finds himself in a labyrinth with many twists and turns. Eduardo cannot figure out how to uh, control the barrier, and he leans his head on it in despair, only to slip right through it. He flees after everyone else with all of his six luck in his pocket. Recap. Felix and co. make it to Liza's portal and drag Mitch through it and arrive on board the Soundwave. The cat is at the bottom of a Mitch and Matteo pile. Eduardo is fleeing the collapsing temple and approaches the front door. Taking a deep breath, he steps through and he doesn't walk through a portal. He quickly heads for the beach and makes his way onto the boat. Several hours later, due to the twisting of time and space, he discovers Felix and co. in the bedroom from the portal that was there. But they realise Wallace is not there with them. In the labyrinth, Wallace stumbles, lost and alone, and sees in the darkness a skittering eyehort, a giant globular white spider creature. With an army of smaller spiders, it whisks Wallace away. It asks him if he wants to live. Wallace says yes and a tendril forces its way into his throat and pumps something into him. Wallace is now blessed and is a carrier of the brood. He is escorted to a portal back to his cabin on the sound wave and is instructed not to fail in serving the Ihort's will. He appears on the ship and finally we are all reunited. Wallace informs us of the interaction with the Ihort and a book called The Revelations of Glarky that he should read. Liza recognises the name as some kind of cult and that the book is lost to mankind and is very rare to find. After Mitch serves us some home-cooked crumpets, Felix redraws the maps he saw in the Arthotep's throne room, revealing three points of interest on the coasts of Africa, Australia and China, and a streak uh, drawn between them indicating the path of the solar eclipse due in the new year. We agree to continue to Australia specifically uh, to the dig site in Darwin, and contact Professor Cowles of Sydney University from there. The captain insists on going to Perth first to restock on supplies and replace the lost sailors. Felix then takes Wallace to one side to explain what Ihort did to him. Wallace has become implanted with spider babies and will incubate them until they are ready to emerge and the host will die. There is a spell that can expel the spiders, however, but it is in the Revelations of Glarkey. Felix suggests Madal could assist in finding the book. The news, and the whiskey that he's drinking, knocks out Wallace. Mitch decides to prepare himself for the journey ahead, and catches up with Liza and acquires notes from her and Kat. Matteo takes some time to rest, relax, and meditate. Eduardo reads the scroll he received at the temple and discovers Yahweh, God of the Covenant, is locked in Nyarlathotep's castle in unknowable Kadath, and every prayer to him empowers Nyarlathotep. Felix regales the Wallace problem to Cat and Liza to try and find a way to cure him of his spider brood, though Liza considers not helping and pumping him for Cthulhu Mythos knowledge the spider will grant him. Liza is pragmatic, not evil? Question mark? The trio search their books to see if there are any spells or clues that can help. Cat recalls the spell 
that will expel the brood, but she didn't document it down in her own spell book because she couldn't work it out. Recap! In the night, Wallace has some strange dreams of candles. In the morning, we have eggs for breakfast. We spend the morning relaxing or researching spells or working out. Wallace goes to the radio room to put the radio on high range in order to alert any ships to pass messages on to Australia. Felix, Liza and Kat work together on their notes and together all learn the necessary spell to expunge the spider spawn from Wallace. After a most delightful dinner cooked by Mitch, Felix, Kat and Liza inform Wallace they can help him with his Eyehort infestation, but it may result in the spider coming after us. We contemplate waiting until we are on land to cast the spell, but we decide the sooner the better. Eduardo and Mitch are taught the spell to increase the chances of success, while Wallace and Mateo clear a space in the cargo hold. At night, Wallace continues to dream strangeness. He is the arbiter of the storms. Cat also does not sleep well, wandering a street towards a temple of the dead. Something seems to disturb Felix, too, but he cannot see anything in his room. He goes into the hallway and notices a green light coming from Cat's room. He fetches Liza and they grab their guns and knock on Cat's door. She awakens and as she gets up, she suddenly realises she is in possession of a statue of Cthulhu she unknowingly took from the Penhew Foundation back in England. Liza realises what it is and informs Cat the statue will join her with the ranks of the sleepers. Felix is very concerned he and Liza are now ensnared by the statue too. Liza feels she has read the ritual, but doesn't know the spell exactly on how to sever the connection with the statue. In the meantime, they advise Kat to throw the statue overboard in the hope it doesn't come back. The following morning, the three of them are as full of life as a withering flower, and they drown themselves in coffee. The captain demands to know why the cargo bay has been moved as it has slowed the ship down, but Wallace convinces him to leave it that way for the day, and he'll help move it back as soon as possible. We make our way down to the cargo hold to perform bulk brood and remove Ihort's babies from Wallace. Previously on Yoksafath is the key of the gate. Recap. In the cargo hold on board the Soundwave, everyone prepares to cast bulk brood to expel the spider babies from Wallace, though Matteo just stands by not wanting to take part. Cat chants the dark incantations. The walls seem to shudder as Wallace begins to vomit from every orifice, a goo full of skittering embryos pouring out of him. We put Wallace to bed and clean up the mess. With the remaining five days to Perth, Liza reads the Necronomicon, then considers booking herself into an asylum. Matteo meditates and practices his Kung Fu, while Mitch receives some training on self-defence. Father Eduardo and Felix consult Cat for some wise words and calm any moral dilemmas and make a call to Perth to contact the mental asylum to book them all in. They also search Cat's room just to make sure the Cthulhu statue has been disposed of. Once arrival in Perth, ambulances are waiting to take us to the asylum on Burstwood Island, but it's basically a luxury hotel spa for a two week stay. Matteo and Eduardo are released early, as they are sane, and decide to board a plane to Sydney after checking the cult haven't infiltrated it, and in order to talk to Professor Cowles about the cult of the sand bat and the monoliths in the desert, and if there are any dig sites related to the cult. 
Meanwhile, at the spa, Liza has a visit from Bastian Silva, though she or Wilter don't recall making the appointment, though he is supposedly a doctor. He is familiar with her investigations and hands her a scroll to aid in the journey. It becomes clear he is not a doctor, but is an ally against Nialathotep. Felix recalls he is known as the Wizard of Perth and is known for his divinations. Mitch, during his relaxation, is called to a civic court-martial, a normal procedure when a shipwreck occurs. Walter arranges for a lawyer to accompany him and advises that none of the Vanderbilt party were on board in order to, co- to corroborate their being in Egypt story. Recap. After a week at the asylum, Wallace receives a visit from Cecil Mortimer Clark, a member of the Theological Society, the lighters of the hidden lamp of wisdom. He is fascinated by Wallace's research with radio waves, but Wallace is of the opinion that they were crackheads. Their research is detecting radio wave sources from outer space, and Wallace recalls his research also had similar results. The society is interested in a collaboration and hiring Wallace's boat to investigate the planets. Felix, Cat, and Liza enjoy a nice sauna in the steam room. They recount the different groups and cults in Australia, and if any could be of any use to us, and also how we will get assistance for casting the Eye of Light and Darkness again. They start to discuss acquiring orphans as part of the ritual. It definitely doesn't sound like the start of a cult. In Sydney, Eduardo and Mateo make an appointment with Professor Cal's assistant, Dr. David Dodge, for the following day. In the meantime, they visit the library and find a journal by Ludwig Leichhardt from 1848 describing a city beneath the western sands of Australia, full of crystals. Maybe the cultist dig sites are associated with this. They also visit the University Museum and discover some Aboriginal symbols of the creator and also the sand bat. They buy a book from the gift shop so that they can show it to Liza later. Back at the asylum, the group meet Etienne, who gives flowers to Liza and takes her out on another date, while everyone else dines on kangaroo steak and koala balls. Eduardo and Matteo meet Dr. Dodge, and they discuss Professor Cal's research on the cult of the sandbat. It supposedly died out in the 1700s during colonialisation of Australia, but a father Solero abandoned the church and seemed to resurrect it in the very early 1900s until his disappearance but the cult has since seen a resurgence since 1921 in the Argyle Flats and the Kimberley region of northwest Australia. He also shares with us Arthur McGuire's diary, who discovered the monoliths in the desert and contains coordinates to the location of a city in the sands. In the asylum, Mitch is getting cabin fever and wants to do something to help the investigation, so Liza gives him some books and some sheet music for his harmonica, the music lyrics are in Italian, so they need Eduardo to translate what these songs actually are. Recap. Dr. Dodge recommends speaking to Robert McKenzie in Port Hedland, not too far from Darwin in northwest Australia, regarding the city in the sands. Eduardo sends a telegram to the group in Perth that they are due back in a few days. Eduardo reads Kat's book while Matteo does a bit of sightseeing in the Technological Museum. After a slight delay, they arrive in Perth and inform the group all they have learned in Sydney. During the last few days of Cat, Liza and Felix and Wallace's treatment, Eduardo checks with the captain of the Soundwave and he is ready to leave when Wallace gives him the word. Wallace buys some gun permits for us, Liza some desert clothing for the group. Then, with the 
captain, we decide to plot a course to Port Headland. We will talk to Robert McKenzie and decide on the appropriate next actions regarding the monoliths in the desert. The captain wonders if Wallace can perform his radio experiments on the way rather than have to make a special trip into the middle of the ocean, which would cost about a week of time. Felix then checks if this is possible. Wallace decides to perform tests each evening to assess if he can do this. On the journey, Mitch investigates the songs he is learning with Liza, and she makes some recommendations based entirely on the song titles. Liza reads her scroll from Bastion Silver, and after sounding like a dolphin for an hour, she learns the spell. Kat also practices and learns some of her spells and prepares some magical incantations. Wallace spends time in the radio room and sets up the equipment. Matteo practices his kung fu. Eduardo finishes skim reading Kat's book. And Felix spends some time sketching the coastline and begins writing for his new book. Wallace successfully aligns the radio to Jupiter with Liza's help, but the experiment fails and jolts electricity into Mitch Matteo, and then squarely into Eduardo, which knocks him unconscious as the lights fail throughout the ship. Felix comes to investigate and tries some first aid. Then Wallace tries. Then finally, Cat applies the proper technique and aids in Eduardo's recovery. The crew get their doctor and confirm that the ship is now adrift with no power. While they wait, Felix tells us gripping tales of their time in Peru with some creative licenses. Eduardo dreams himself on a strange starlit plane. A voice warns him not to listen to the voices in space, especially while the great plan is being prepared. Mitch attempts to assist the crew in recovering the generator, but there is a lot of damage to fix. Recap. Whilst some rest up before reaching Port Headland, Wallace cannot fix his equipment and the ship's crew are grumpy with him, so they aren't in a hurry to help. Mitch gets more gun training from the crew, but fumbles and drops the gun overboard. Felix continues to write his notes for his book, while Eduardo recovers from his shock the day before. The following days after, Felix reads one of his Arabic scrolls, but there are dire consequences to his sanity. Wallace manages to remove the broken spark gap generator, but it is very badly damaged and he has no spares. Mitch isn't doing very well with his handgun training and decides to check in on Felix and ask if he can be useful to the team. So Felix gives him a copy of the Iron Light and Darkness to learn. At dinner, Wallace updates us on his broken equipment. Mitch is too grumpy with him to help, but Matteo and Kat offer to help, but they just don't have the knowledge. As we approach Port Headland, Liza sees a lighthouse, which also acts as a radio station. Kat spots the local train station, and Mitch spots a local enthusiast's plane runway. Liza notices Felix was not at breakfast and checks on him, but the door is locked and he isn't answering. Kat suspects he's barricading himself in. She grabs Wallace, Kat and Mitch, and a master key. Wallace unlocks the door, and they see the furniture is all torn up. There are concentric circles of red blood drawn all over the room and Felix, naked and also covered in his own blood, attempts to grab Wallace, but stumbles and falls into the corridor, muttering in Latin. Mitch punches Felix to try and send him to Sleepy Land and knocks him unconscious. Wallace peeks into the room and notices all the circles are drawn in Felix's blood and Cat is unable to administer first aid, so Wallace calls to the captain to signal for a doctor from the mainland. Liza happens to spot a papyrus scroll in the room and it whispers to her and the unconscious Felix. Liza picks up the scroll following its commands. 
The gate is here. All it needs is the key. As Cat tends to Felix, his eyes jolt open and and they glow a white starlight. He stands up and re-enters the room. Mitch, from the other end of the deck, hears the commotion and comes over to see Liza's eyes are also glowing a starlight. Cat hears the chanting and flees the scene past Mitch. On the bridge, Wallace notices from the lighthouse that the radio waves almost seem visible and ozone and sparks are surrounding the ship. And he dashes along the bridge past Matteo, who follows him mostly from curiosity. Eduardo seems oblivious to the growing panic and keeps staring ahead at Port Headland. Felix, the gate, and Liza, the key, finalise their ritual, and she erupts in a blaze of light as he dissolves into round worms and thick black ooze, and the combination rips the aft of the ship completely open. Mitch and Cat find themselves in the sea, clinging to one another, watching the stern sink. As the bow flounders, Matteo and Wallace cling to the rails and watch the back of the ship sink into the waters. Wallace looks into the waters and sees a white light and cries, All my stuff! and runs down the ship towards it, whilst Matteo runs back to the stern past Eduardo and leaps overboard, grabbing the father in the process. In the aftermath, Eduardo, Matteo, Mitch and Cat are all swimming away from the wreck. Wallace throws himself into the bubbling light and dissolves. Rescue boats pick up the survivors and watch the stern sink. There is calm once again in the harbour, and Yogzatoth has taken Felix Walker and Liza Vandabout into himself, ascending them to godhood. Merry Christmas, everyone. Last time on Mask of the Arthodep. Recap. A few days after the inexplicable sinking of the sound wave, the survivors are staying at the harbour masters while an investigation takes place. With the wreck in the bay, the port has been forced to close. In the afternoon, the group will scour the beach for any lost belongings. Until then, Father Eduardo will meet a pilot for further transport, and the others will meet Robert Mackenzie, who is the expert in the archaeological ruins in the desert. Eduardo meets Hugo Dawson at the aerodrome near the pilot's enthusiast's runway to arrange passage to Darwin in the next few days. Meanwhile, Mitch and Matteo meet Robert McKenzie as they arrive. But as they arrive, Matteo spots Chai T, our intrepid friend from the Sahara Desert. She is very happy to see us. She also wants to see Mackenzie, but he won't see her since she lacks an appointment. So Matteo invites her in. Cat takes some time for some TLC and visits the hotel for a meal and a drink, but also to meet Jack Cady, who seems to know far more than he should, like that Cat is a wizard and that the Vanderbilts were not on the boat to Egypt. It turns out he used to be part of the cult of the bloody tongue. Cue the Helvetica scenario. But he wants out and wants to fight against them. She and Walter are nervous to trust him, understandably so. Back at Mackenzie's house, they learn the exact location of the ruins and monoliths, and also the peculiarity that the ancient civilization of Australia was stuck in the Stone Age and showed no technological advances, uh, unlike other parts of the world. The ancient city, however, that was discovered appears to predate this society. We all reconvene back at the Harbour Masters to pass on what we've learnt, and we are all very concerned by the cultists who approached Cat. We agree to lightly interrogate him tomorrow. 
For now, we will explore the beach for any lost belongings. Recapture! Chai, Mitch and Matteo head to the beach to search for any lost belongings. Mitch finds a shotgun with a ceremonial gold headdress wrapped around it. Chai finds a clay jar full of dust and a picture of Cat's children. And Matteo discovers Felix's and Antoine's magic cane. They also find Eduardo's wet, sodden clothes, Felix's writing case and research notes, and the scrying stained glass mirror. At the hotel, Hugo is at the bar and spots Father Eduardo and Cat. He puts two and two together and now knows who he's actually working for uh, to take to Darwin. We ask him if he can get a plane to take us to the desert for the expedition, which will need some arrangement, but he can do this for us. Eduardo and Cat head up to Jack's room, who attempts to convince them he is not part of the cult anymore. Cat is not buying it, but Eduardo suggests he reveals some of his knowledge to help trust him. He says the Clive expedition, led by the Penhew Foundation, succeeded in their goal in Egypt, and now all the cult's pieces of the puzzles are in place, and that going to Egypt is critical to stopping the cult. We trust in Jack and invite him to join us for his protection. While this was going on, Hugo has organised a cargo plane to be ready for him in Darwin so he can fly it back when he takes us there in a few days. Cat invites Hugo to meet the rest of the team at the beach. Eduardo introduces them without hinting too heavily they are an ex-cultist or that they are researching a deadly gang trying to kill us. Eduardo leaves to finish a memorial service while everyone continues to search the beach, finding Felix's sickle and ankh and Antoine's lunar scepter and the cultist Maleficarum and life as a god. Mitch discovers a locked metal box, the safe with many valuables and weapons and also Liza's crook and ankh. Matteo finds the Cathat Aquadingham and Cat places it in her bag with the Necronomicon in it. Hugo discovers another book and pockets it without thinking. When he, we head to the harbour master, Jack sees the headdress Mitch found and Jack shrieks and warns us not to put it on. Once he calms down, we arrange for Matteo and Chai to go to Darwin while the rest of us make plans for the desert expedition. We all have an early night and go to sleep except for Hugo, who begins to read the book he withheld from us. And Katz looks at the Cathat Aquadingham and wonders how it got here, given that Hastur stole it from Liza in London. She decides not to read it. Recap! After a very disappointing breakfast, Kat announces that she needs to return home. She is too distraught, stressed, and has seen too much and feels she is a risk to the party and has arranged for a replacement. She will leave Walter with us and continue to fund our operation. She leaves some books and tomes with Matteo to distribute as he sees fit and helps decipher a few of the songs for Mitch. Everyone then attends the memorial for the departed from the boat explosion in the harbour, except for Jack, who thinks it might be disrespectful if he did, but Kat convinces him it will be okay. Father Eduardo leads a memorial for their friends and those lost at sea. It is a good sermon and allows people to say goodbye to their loved ones. Before she leaves, Kat gives Chai a set of anks and crooks. She then steps through her wardrobe and vanishes. At night, Hugo continues reading his new book, and Chai starts on the cultist Maleficarum. In the morning, we wake to a miserable wet day and Rebecca Corley, a reporter who has been trying to follow us and report stories about what we've been doing. 
Walter has invited her to join us because he felt it was one of those keep your enemies closer scenarios. She is aware of our goal to shut down bad groups of people and her skills as an investigator will surely come in handy. We send Hugo, Chai and Matteo on their way to Darwin and the rest of us begin planning our expedition with Robert McKenzie. We pick Joanna Spring as the landing zone and from there drive 200 miles to the ruins. But we need to acquire our equipment from Concudgery. Jack knows the shop owner in Concudgery and knows that he is a cultist. So we decide to send Mitch and Rebecca to Concudgery as they are not very well known to the cultists, and we also give them a false story about where we're going, should they ask. Meanwhile, Hugo, Matteo, and Chai board the passenger plane, and Hugo's co-pilot, Raymond, seems to be a bit more experienced at starting the engine, but Hugo eventually takes off, and they make their way towards Derby, where they'll refuel. During the flight, Matteo meditates, and Chai continues reading her book. Recap! On the second attempt, Hugo lands the plane in Derby for a pit stop and refueling. And again, on the second attempt, takes off, but he appears to be flying in the wrong direction. Where will they end up? No one knows. Back in Port Hedland, Mitch and Rebecca board a train, only to learn it moves at five miles an hour. So they disembark. They think about taking a truck, but then they ask themselves, where does Concudgery get its supplies from? And they figure it would be here in Port Hedlands, so they decide to inquire with the harbour master instead about getting supplies. Walter, Eduardo and Jack are planning their route to the ruins and realise they need more trucks than expected and therefore more fuel and drivers. They decide to consult with Robert McKenzie for his advice. Back in the sky, Hugo is worried why he hasn't seen Darwin yet, only to discover he's travelling southeast. He corrects his course but they do not have enough fuel to reach Darwin and cannot see any landmarks nearby and is not able to get anyone on the radio. They decide to look out the windows for any homesteads in the hope of finding some fuel, while Matteo meditates in the hope of spiritual guidance. He finds himself with the searing llama on the steps of his castle. Follow the red light through the fog. Matteo repeats this message to Hugo. As they follow it, they all feel a bit dreary and almost sleepy. And as they shake off the feeling, they are coming into land amongst a snowy plain, flanked by snowy valley and mountains and a palace. People carrying torches from the nearby village come to greet them with alpaca ponchos to keep them warm. No one speaks the local language, but they are all led to the village. They are given food and rooms to sleep. Despite not knowing where they are, everyone is calm and apparently not bothered about the whole situation. Back in the real world, with Robert McKenzie's advice, we figure out how many trucks and food to take with us. And also, he advises that we set up a series of base camps so it becomes easier to get more supplies in. We notice we haven't heard from Hugo and company yet, so Walker telephones the hotel where they were due to stay. But he confirms they never arrived. Given how late it is, we can't do anything for them now and hope we hear something from them in the morning. Before we all go to bed, Jack talks with Walter and lets on that he knows that the ruins are crawling with cultists and that the Carlisle Expedition psychiatrist is leading the group. They agree to get more guns and to be more sneaky when we get there. Now, hopefully, we won't bumble into an obvious trap, assuming the others find their way out of Shangri-La. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. 
In Port Headland, Walter, Eduardo and Rebecca recheck the equipment needed for the expedition and wonder where Hugo, Chai and Matteo have vanished to in their plane. While they wait for any news, they finalise the last of the food and trucks necessary for the trip into the desert. Meanwhile, whilst drinking rancid tea, the missing party members in Tibet discuss their situation. Hugo thinks this is heaven. Chai tries dreaming to see if they are in the dreamlands, but it does not work. The Syrian Lama enters and greets them, claiming he guided them here and that they are not dead. He proclaims that they are meant to be here, but also not meant to be. I think the GM is enjoying his riddles again. He bestows a gift to Matteo, a smooth star of Manar, which will help protect him from dark creatures. Back in the real world, Eduardo and Rebecca secure some food and bluff that they are prospectors and suggest that they are not going to any ruins in case there are cultists stationed here. We also get the trucks required for the trip and they teach Eduardo how to drive so he can be a backup on the expedition. Back in Tibet, the Syrian Lama offers to answer any questions for Chai and Hugo. Chai inquires about why and how her parents were killed and Hugo about how he can live a happy and peaceful life. He is instructed to find the Elder One Kakatak in order to open the eye whilst they are in the city of the Great Grace. Chai's parents were murdered by order of Aubrey Penhu, who retrieved the Blade of Tsang from them. Eventually, they all reboard their plane and Hugo takes off on the first attempt. In a flash, they are now landing on an airstrip in Darwin, Australia, only two days behind schedule. They call Port Headland to inform them that they have arrived. We continue getting supplies. Mitch and Rebecca procure some explosives from the mining guild and Eduardo and Jack acquire fishing gear uh, so that they can fish uh, in the Percival Lakes on their expedition. Mitch completely charms the lady at the mining guild and uses cash to bypass the paperwork to secure dozens of sticks of dynamite. At the fishing emporium, the shopkeeper is quite hostile to Eduardo. He seems rather anti-religious. Jack then realises he is from the cult and we give chase before he can escape. Jack leaps and assaults him whilst Eduardo muffles his cry with his hat. They successfully render him unconscious and drag him into the shop. Eduardo goes to inform Walter to find a solution while Jack gathers fishing supplies and robs the till. We get him sedated and file a story that he has had a breakdown and have him shipped to Perth's Asylum. Recap. In the Victoria Hotel in Darwin, Chai and Matteo suggest Hugo scout out the Randolph shipping and make some bogus inquiries whilst they check the town records for blueprints of the structure before they sneak in at night. Hugo meets Toddy Randolph to arrange for his shipment and try to check out the facility as much as possible. He shares the shipping schedule to see if the timing could aid with when they will sneak in. Chai and Matteo go to the town hall, but there are no blueprints as it's not a major city. They try to investigate, but Chai sets fire to the records room by mistake and they are swiftly kicked out. It's all going according to plan. In Port Headland, we return to the fishing shop at night to check if there's anything we need to remove. Jack finds his the cult of the sandbat robes and insignia in the bedroom wardrobe and an etched sphere covered in runes sitting on an altar. It begins to drain Jack's energy, and as he drops it, a rune glows and a portal opens in the wardrobe. He reveals to us that he has set loose a hound of Tinderloss. 
It appears from the stairwell, and Jack attempts to bind it to Nyarlathotep, but falls unconscious in the process. But it does slow it down, and Eduardo drags Jack down the hallway towards a window as Mitch fires a shotgun. The hound lashes with its tongue and pierces Rebecca's chest, draining part of her soul. Jack comes around, and the hound whispers to him, promising to end him. As we barrel down the hall, the bindings fail, and it emerges between us and the window. As he stares at it, Jack exclaims, We need to go through the portal in order to escape it. We dash into the cupboard and vanish. In the dead of night, in Darwin, Matteo and Chai head to Randolph Shipping. They knock on the door, pretending to ask for directions. But as the door opens, Chai lunges at the security guard, but misses, allowing him to start sounding the alarm. Recap. As the Darwin duo attempt to intercept the security guard before he alerts anyone else, they cause him to drop his oil lamp, and a little fire begins. They are now serial arsonists. As they knock him unconscious, they hear a commotion, and the local constabulary are on their way. They scarper down the beach and lose the cops. Chai splits up and decides to hide at the plane hangar, but gets lost on the way. As she wanders around, she sees the fires around the docks are spreading. Mateo has successfully made it back to the hotel and wakes up Hugo and asks for the keys for the plane so he and Chai can hide, and Hugo will fly them out in the morning. Hugo, though, is questioning whether he should hand them over to the authorities, since he's only known them for a week and they've committed two arsons. (laughs) As Mateo rides a taxi, he passes Chai and picks her up on the way. Uh, Mean wenced somewhere in time and space, the others appear in an unknown black stone plaza in a snowy plain. It is very cold, but the Hound of Tindalos is nowhere to be seen. The city at the end of the earth in Antarctica. Eduardo recognises this from Antoine's memoirs. As the sun begins to set, we enter an abandoned building and huddle in a small room to keep warm. We venture underground to try and find some resources, start a fire and figure out a way home. Jack wants to study the strange runic stone that created the portal that got us here. Rebecca starts the fire while Eduardo leads Mitch back to the surface. Under the night star-filled sky, Eduardo calls forth an airy traveller, otherwise known as a star vampire. They sense a presence who listens to Eduardo's questions. It reveals that we are 346 years off our original time, and the lure stone Jack used is the, only, is the best chance to get home, for the city we are in is a million years dead, and its inhabitants are very deep underground. The star vampire is then released in order to hunt. As Jack sleeps by the fire, the stone feeds him knowledge and instructions on its use. We check the stars to determine that we are in 1579 and help Jack to charge the lure stone one at a time, causing Eduardo to fall unconscious. Jack activates the lure stone, focusing on his hotel room in Port Headland in 1925, and on the second attempt, it flashes with a light and a blue portal opens. Carrying Eduardo, they dash through before the Hound of Tindalos reappears and collapse on the hotel room bed. Back in Darwin the following morning, the police knock on Hugo's door to inquire where Chai and Matteo may be. He doesn't sell them out, but is taken to the hangar to check his plane. Uh, In the hangar, Chai and Matteo hear the police rummage around for a while, but they don't find them and they depart. Hugo arrives and reunites with the pair and they board the plane. They take off in the wrong direction and eventually head in the right direction and arrive in Port Headland later that evening. Recap. The following morning, we finally do the plot. 
Hugo flies Rebecca Mateo Chai and Eduardo to Joanna Spring in the desert, and they begin setting up the base camp. Eduardo checks on Rebecca as she has now been exposed to the wonderful world of Wibbly and warns her more stuff like this will happen. On the second trip, the left-wing engine fails, but Hugo calmly and skillfully flies with one engine and successfully lands without causing any further damage. Mitch cooks dinner for everyone, and we arrange to travel to Adverse Well and through the Percival Lakes, upon which our entry to the dig site will need to be a bit more cautious. Jack suggests Hugo fly the plane over the dig site and head south to act as a decoy to distract the cult. Mitch suggests we need to bring Hugo on board with more details of our goals and who the cult are, but Jack suggests delaying until he performs his aerial prank, also because his blood could be used for the Eye of Light and Darkness ritual. Mitch, Eduardo and Matteo offer to ride the plane to scout where the cult are based during the flyby. While we chat, we discover Chai also has no idea about who Nialthotep is either, despite having travelled with us previously. So Matteo gives her and Rebecca a Cult of the Bloody Tongue for Dummies guide and and recap of their goals. We shuffle Hugo away to the plane while we talk about it. When we finish, Walter raises the issue of keeping in contact with the plane at a distance given that we don't have any radios given the year. So we decide to drop the plane flyby idea and proceed by truck instead without drawing attention to ourselves. We now just need to convince Hugo, hired to only be our pilot, to join us on our expedition and cast the Eye of Light and Darkness and stop the export of magical artefacts from the Temple of Narcotus within the dig site of the City of the Great Race. Previamente mascado de Recap. Raymond and Walter remain with the plane while the rest of us and Mackenzie pack the cars and make way to Adverse Well. Hugo acts as navigator and, of course, gets north and south mixed up. After recreating the scene from Mad Max, we all storm off into the desert at breakneck speed. The return of the legendary Peruvian Death Adder spooks Jack as he drives and changes gear and he leaps out of the moving car. Rebecca at least avoids running him over. Chai tends to an unconscious Jack, while Rebecca and Eduardo remove the snake from the car. We all catch up with the others and set up camp. The next day, Mackenzie corrects Hugo's and Mitch's attempts to navigate again, and we all set off. On the way, we meet a traveller on a camel, Darby Dave, a renowned local prospector who actually helped Huston reach the dig site a few years ago. He identifies that Huston has two camps beyond the Percival Lakes for us so and uh, since he doesn't think very well of huston we part ways and head to adverse well mackenzie hugo mateo and mitch do some mechanical repair on the cars but hugo breaks one fortunately mackenzie has spare parts rebecca and jack attempt cooking but require the meal to be rescued by mitch chai and eduardo went up the hill to fetch a pail of water we agree to change course and head for the sahara well instead of the percival lakes At night, despite uh, lacking a silver key, uh, Chai successfully arrives in the dreamlands. She wanders and enters the cavern of Sargotha and meets one of the priests. They are confused how she got there, but while she dances for them, they determine there must be a silver key near her corporeal body. Meanwhile, as Jack sleeps, the spherical lure has taught him how to charge it up without it draining his life force. Recap. 
On the third day of driving, Hugo correctly uses a compass for the first time. It is extremely hot and Chai suffers from heat stroke. When we make camp, Rebecca finds Chai will not wake up and is very dry to the touch. Hugo applies first aid while Mitch plays his harmonica to summon Antarctic winds to help bring Chai's temperature down. At night, Jack charges his lure and Chai dreams and consents the silver key is amongst the group in the camp. She wants to rifle through everybody's gear to find it. The next day, we arrive at Sahara Well and set up camp, and Eduardo, Chai, Mitch and Jack go to the nearby lakes to do some fishing. Chai raises the presence of the silver key and requests some help in locating it and in whose possession it lies with. Whilst the boys fish, Chai scouts the area for any clues of the campsite, but is unable to spot anything. Back at the Sahara Well, Hugo spots on the horizon a storm is coming. Mackenzie orders everyone to batter down the hatches and fire a flare to alert the fishing group. The sandstorm sweeps in as the group drive back, so they stop and tie the truck down and huddle inside. As we try to sleep, Chai is unable to dream. The key is not among us. Eduardo, Mitch and Jack are not sus. Eventually, next morning, the storm dies out, but the fishing group is unable to start the truck, so Jack fires a flare to alert the camp. The Mackenzie group, however, are unable to find their toolkits, so they begin digging around the campsite, while Rebecca and Mateo trek to the fishing group's truck. Eduardo hands them the toolbox from their jeep and remains with Mitch while the rest take the toolbox back so the camp uh, can fix all the jeeps and unbury the tents. Whilst at it, Chai rummages through Rebecca's belongings but does not find a silver key. Rebecca is not sus. She also manages to rifle through Hugo's stuff. Hugo is not sus. She does, however, uh, remove his pawn stash. Finally, she checks Mackenzie's tent. Mackenzie is not sus. There is only the gear tent and the ladies' privacy area to investigate. When the others fetch Eduardo and Mitch, Chai figures the fishing group may have just not had the silver key on them, so she checks Jack and Eduardo's tent. They are not sus. When everyone has been reunited and the campsite has been unearthed, we relax with a nice meal. At night, Chai tries to use her dreaming to latch onto the source of the silver key but is unable to. Next morning, Jack pulls Chai and Eduardo aside to ask if we have any stone carving equipment for the Eye of Light and Darkness. Chai and Jack inspect some more tents while Eduardo makes conversation with everyone else to act as a distraction. Although they find the equipment, they keep searching for the silver key in the the lab and food tents. Recap! Trawling through the food and lab tents, there is still no sign of the mysterious silver key, until Chai digs through Hugo's tent again to find the book of the advent of the silver key, along with the key itself. They also find a strange lockbox in Rebecca's possessions. They pull Hugo to one side and show him the key to ask him about it, when suddenly they recall destroying it because it was corrupt. We take down camp and jump back in the jeeps. Eduardo asks about the key, but senses the answer he gets back doesn't add up, but he can't put his finger on it. By early afternoon, we begin to see the Maquia rock formation to signify the location of the dig site. Rebecca and Mateo also spot the tents of an abandoned campsite. As we step out of the jeeps, we step on barely buried human bones beneath the sand. We set up camp nearby. 
As we discuss our next actions, we see someone herding some huge dingoes muttering to Mackenzie. The man is wearing nothing except a pair of very nice boots. His name is Jeremy Grogan and is a little crazy and talking about going on a dream quest to rid us of our nightmares and demons. Either that or let the dingoes eat us. Jeremy is mostly concerned with Chai, Jack and Hugo, but Eduardo and Rebecca accompany them uh, to his camp. Jeremy summons a circle of stones around Hugo, but only Hugo is unaware of them. Jeremy claims the sands of Australia has a deeper connection to the dreamlands. Hugo has been grasped by the nightmare, whereas Jack and Chai have been touched by it. Jack reveals their knowledge of the Silver Key, and Jeremy restores their memories that they did not destroy it. However, the memory sends Chai into a sleep. The source of the darkness was found on the beach, but Hugo couldn't remember what he picked up. Jeremy decides the best way to pull is to pull Hugo's soul from his body and separate the darkness from it. We determine the book, the, the advent of the silver key, was tainted by Felix Walker when he joined Yogsatoth, and when Hugo found the book, the nightmare latched onto him. Once we awaken Chai, we begin chanting Felix's name to begin the spiritual sermon. The strain is too much for Eduardo, and he collapses unconscious, just as Hugo splits into two identical copies one evil, and one the true Hugo. There is no way to tell them apart, but Rebecca spots that their necklaces are different, one of a book and one of a key. A dingo launches into the air and it bites the one with the book necklace and devours it, and a beautiful light bathes an unconscious real Hugo. Chai and Jeremy celebrate with a little dance, and we head back to camp with some very good advice of what not to do in this realm so close to the god of the sandbat. He invites us back to when we are ready to head out. When we go to bed, Jack finds some snake eggs in his tent and gives them to Mitch, which he cooks amazing omelettes with the next morning. Now that Hugo's Cthulhu virginity has been taken and he is unusable for the Eye of Light and Darkness ritual, we explain some of our activities to him to provide context on the whole situation. Now only Mackenzie's blood is pure enough for the ritual. Recap. We convene at Jeremy's camp, who lets us know what happened at this dig site. He was signed up to a mining job for John Carver for some easy money. When the money ran out, they were preparing to leave, but Carver began acting strangely. An argument erupted, and he summoned a creature from the sky, the Sandbat and it ripped through many of the workers. Those that survived became loyal servants. Jeremy, Jeremy escaped and wandered the desert and discovered dreaming kept him alive, and he has lived here ever since. To reach the caverns, we either enter the shaft here, or we find another campsite, or one that is uh, southwest of our position. We decide before we leave we should look at the current site. Matteo and Hugo discover a dream fountain left behind by Jeremy and a series of very large three-foot-long footprints in the sand that vanish just as abruptly as they appear. Rebecca and Mitch find the elevator leading into the shaft and gather everyone before it. Mitch determines it is in good condition and just needs some fuel. We retrieve some, as well as torches and digging equipment, and head down the shaft, when it suddenly plummets uncontrollably and slams into the ground. Mateo, Hugo and Mitch are injured and unconscious. Chai botches a first aid, but in her panic, stabilises Mateo, 
while Rebecca expertly stops Mitch from dying, while Hugo is not in any lethal danger. Chai begins climbing back up the 200-foot shaft using the elevator cable and retrieves Mackenzie and Jack to rescue the injured. Mackenzie also fixes the elevator mechanism so we can use that to winch them up. Eduardo and Rebecca quickly check the tunnel down here, but there is nothing of any note. We take the injured back to camp and await for them to regain consciousness before we make our next move. Welcome back to the Masks of Nyarlathotep. They haven't defeated me yet. Recap. We drag the unconscious to camp, and the father administers a little more first aid. Chai, however, faints from her injuries, so we put her to bed. Eduardo and Jack search for Jeremy, the dingo man, to see if he can help the wounded. His dingoes circle us, and as they conjure a healing tonic, they also sever Jack's connection to unknowable Kadath. When they return, Hugo and Mitch have regained consciousness and received some painkillers. The tonic doesn't seem to help Jessica for some reason, so she goes to bed. Eduardo and Jack administer the tonic to Chai, and she seems to stabilise. She isn't dying anymore! The last of the tonic is used for Matteo, and next morning, everyone is awake again. We agree to head for the secret cave entrance the following day when everyone has recovered from their injuries. Everyone relaxes and has a nice day off. Chai gets a bingo. The following day, after Rebecca stalls the car and we set off after Mitch repairs it. After a day's driving, we spot the rock formation Jeremy described and reach the cave entrance with some kind of stone carving in the walls and a gentle breeze coming out from the cavern. We also spot some more large footprints, like the ones at the previous camp. A a massive storm is approaching, so we set up camp. Eduardo slips and drops something in the cave entrance. As we finish setting up camp, the clouds arrive and it begins to snow. Mitch's Southerly Winds song is still at work, it seems. Even Mackenzie is baffled. We set up extra heaters and park the jeeps in the cave entrance. Mateo and Jack identify the footprints belonging to flying polyps, ancient creatures which may be dwelling in the cavern. Before going to bed, Jack suggests we start charging up the lure so as to cast the Eye of Light and Darkness more easily in the future. Recap. Recap. Jack continues to pass the lure around to Chai. Before she touches it, she pulls out the crook and ank for protection which Jack identifies as belonging to the high priests of Nialathotep. He does not want them to interact with the lure in case bad things happen, but he begrudgingly allows it. Nothing bad seems to occur. When Hugo touches the lure, it absorbs more than he intended and he falls unconscious. The sight of it causes Jack to freak out and insists Hugo is going to betray us and plunges the lure into Hugo again. Eduardo, Rebecca and Mitch wrestle it out of his grasp and knock him unconscious. Hugo is moved to his bed, and Mitch awakens Jack, but he is insistent on getting the orb back. Eduardo attempts to wrestle Reason back into the group, which snaps Jack back to reality. He agrees to spend the night locked in the jeep, the equivalent of the naughty corner. The following morning, we gather our resources to enter the cavern and scout the region first. Jack makes apologetic cookies for the team, and Eduardo realises he has lost his Bible the previous day and it is now buried in the snow somewhere. We enter the cave and climb down very large stone blocks whilst the ceiling remains at the same height, the cavern now growing much larger. Chai uses her intellect to use pitons and rope effectively to lower ourselves down safely. 
At least that's the idea. But Jack and Eduardo slip, the latter of which is plummeting to his demise. But Jack manages to slow his descent enough to prevent his death. A large unnatural green crystal signals the direction we need to take. Jack and Rebecca take a sample of the crystal as we pass through into a room full of geometric symbols. Our torches flash off another crystal in the ceiling and doorways enshrined with hieroglyphs line the walls. Jack notices the writing may be a precursor for the languages spoken today on Earth. Chai gets excited that artefacts may be here and goes into Tomb Raider mode, quickly finding a metallic tablet in one of the metal racks filling the room. And she also notices a collapsed ramp leading deeper into the cave. Recap. Little tiny recap. We take the ramp which spirals round the outside of a circular tower. The centre descends into the abyss. There are landings every so often with collapsed archways. We decide to follow the path down, but Mackenzie notes the distance below is several kilometres and returning to camp will be challenging. So instead, we build a base camp where we are. We also try throwing a rock down the hole, but we never hear it reach the bottom. It's that deep. Mitch, Eduardo and Jack remain here while the others go and retrieve supplies. Hugo hurts himself while climbing back up, but successfully reaches the camp, and they gather food and supplies and bring it back down. During the night watch, Chai decides to do more tomb raiding and finds more metal tablets for her collection. As she explores, she notices the wall of the tower is clear and see-through. She sees the spire she is in, reaches up into the roof of the cavern, and a dimly lit building amongst the floor of the cavern itself. The following day, Chai informs us of the light she saw in the cavern below and leads us to the window. The great city of Nakotas lays before us, illuminated by strings of light, almost representing the streets. It's not clear if this is Huston's work or not. Using binoculars, Chai makes out a wooden structure in the city plaza. This is likely Huston. Suddenly, a purple flash of light appears in the middle of the city, and flying creatures are briefly illuminated, appearing to avoid the streetlights. We send Mackenzie back up to the jeeps to get the repeater for our radios to work down here, while we discuss how to keep him safe and get him to offer blood for the ritual. Some of us think he should be kept at camp, others think he should be knocked unconscious and left behind until we need him. Mitch and Chai make a secret backup plan to keep him unconscious, involving a heroin injection. Flashbacks to Larkin in Peru. We gather our supplies and start walking down the spire. Mitch tries to pry information out of Father Eduardo about heroin administration, but Eduardo isn't sure his concerns are genuine for medical emergencies. We bring our supplies together and set up our next base camp. Recap. When we reach the bottom of the shaft, the final ramp has collapsed and the city of the Great Race is on the other side of a chasm, with a metal grate trapdoor sitting to one side. We manage to drag it into place with a loud bang, hopefully not giving ourselves away. Once it locks into place, something from beneath slams into the underside and freaks us out, but not more than Jack, who slips into a bout of madness again and attempts to clout Hugo over the head, crying out, He told them! Hugo told them where we are! At the speed of a bullet, Chai uses her kung fu to send him to sleep, and we all wonder why he's acting so strange. We tie him up for the time being. Hugo, Chai, Mateo and Mitch briefly scout outside for an abandoned building we can safely make camp. 
When they find a spot, Hugo sees something, fl- some flying creatures heading for the tower. Chai breaks into a run without trying to be stealthy to alert the others. Mackenzie picks up the unconscious Jack, but some of the backpacks are left behind as we all flee the tower before the creatures arrive. Everyone follows Hugo's directions, except Eduardo, who slips and collapses under some rubble. As the flying polyps approach, Eduardo instinctively raises a barrier of Naktith to buy himself some time. Everyone has just made a run for it, including Hugo, who was the only one to witness Eduardo's plight and sees the polyps. Unlike Eduardo, he maintains his sanity, somewhat. The sight of the polyps, however, break the father. Yelling blue murder and invoking the Lord's name screams any incantation he can remember. A bright purple light and a crackling of lightning, followed by howling wails, then silence. As the dust settles, Mateo and Chai venture back outside while Rebecca unties an unconscious Jack. They witness the tower has been badly damaged and a star vampire with its tentacles sucking the blood and life from a bag of flesh, a dead polyp. It drops the corpse on the ground next to the catatonic body of the father and flies back over the city, snatching more flying creatures from the sky. The pair dash out and grab the father before fleeing back to safety. After some first aid, Eduardo awakens with a blank stare, slightly drooling. Jack has found Hugo in the corner, stunned into unconsciousness from the sight of the polyps. In Eduardo's stupor, he mutters something in Latin, which Chai understands. She goes white in the face, swears, and takes Matteo and Jack to one side. She tells them that Eduardo has ascended into the star vampire itself, currently flying through the city. Jack tries in vain to revive the now corpse of Father Eduardo. Everyone gathers in silence in the city of Narcotis as the polyps flee the cavern. Previously on Masks of Knee After the Tap. Recap. Deep underground in Australia, the surviving party members cower as the star vampire, nay, Father Eduardo, eats flying polyps. As they wait for the dust to settle, out of nowhere, a man out for a jog in Pittsburgh suddenly falls out from the sky and lands on Jack. The star vampire's time and space shenanigans has ripped him halfway across the world. Hugo, Matteo and Jack all recognise him as the successful Olympic athlete Thomas Kennedy. They notice that the noise outside has quietened down, so Mackenzie and Mitch look after Thomas while the others scout out and recover some supplies. We start exploring in groups, and Jack explains to Thomas we're in more danger than we appear to be, and they try to explain the situation somewhat, but it all sounds far-fetched to Thomas. So long as they lead him outside to safety, he doesn't care so much. Chai, Rebecca, and Hugo explore a crystal dome down the opposite street. They stealthily cross the glowing floor and continue along the lit street until they reach a junction and a small wooden building. But Hugo's gun goes off as they try to sneak in. Fortunately, the building is empty of people. There is a note regarding frustration from Huston that the cult have failed to locate someone, and Hugo discovers what looks like a very large compact camera, which instead of taking pictures, unleashes a massive bolt of lightning. The other group backtrack out of the library they discovered back to street level. We climb atop the rubble of a fallen building, and we can see further afield. The street lamps stop further ahead, but there are also side alleys that can reach other sections of the city, including a large crystal emerging from the ground. We continue to where the street lamps are darkened, where we find an archway etched with the races of all of Earth. 
but humans are not present on the arch. Recap! Chai, Hugo and Rebecca continue exploring and find another ramp similar to the tower we descended where the cultists fled out of. Chai inserts a stick of dynamite to destroy the entrance without discussing it with the others first. Mateo, Thomas and Jack hear this explosion and make their way over towards them. As the ringing in their ears quieten, Chai hears a flying polyp approaching. Rebecca grabs everyone into a building to hide. From a far distance, Mateo notices polyps approaching the source of the explosion. Hugo notices something is in their hiding place and leads the girls into a back alley. They get a bit lost and can hear more polyps. The others are approaching and also duck into a house as a polyp swoops by. When the coast is clear, Mateo, Jack and Thomas reach the rubble at the base of the tower with no sign of Hugo, Rebecca and Chai. With no plan and no sign of them, they start to head back to the base camp. Hugo leads Rebecca and Chai to what he thinks is a plaza, only to find it is actually a giant rock squashing and pinning a giant oozing creature. They walk away back down the main street again, finding a pit with a strange moans and cries emanating from it. Chai peers inside with her lantern to see a cacophony of tendrils, beasts and forms of Nyarthotep writhing amongst each other. In a panic, she throws her lamp in and the contents burst into flame and she flees north, forcing Hugo and Rebecca to follow after her. The other group can see the flames and climb some rubble to see further ahead. Jack and Shy are able to see each other across the city thanks to the enormous burning flame. They manage to indicate where to meet and each group make their way north. As we approach the plaza with the wooden house, members of each group stealthily approach as there appears to be people inside. They manage to bump into each other and arrange to meet in a nearby house. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you an important update. Man locks himself in his own porch. More at 11. Thomas declares he's not sneaking into the house, which could have someone inside who could kill us. And Hugo remains with an unconscious Jack while Chai, Mateo and Rebecca attempt to sneak in. Upon entering, Queen Nito Crease appears and finds Mateo and smiles, inviting him and Rebecca inside and alerts Huston. With a single gesture, she incapacitates Mateo. Rebecca attempts to carry Mateo away, but is soon incapacitated also. Chai has managed to sneak inside and steal some dynamite and manages to flee the building, leaving Rebecca and Mateo to be kidnapped. Recap Mateo and Rebecca awaken, tied up, with Queen Nuticrease and Hudson standing over them, and demand to know where Liza Vanderbilt and Felix Walker are. Although they are beyond reach, Matteo is uncooperative. Queen Nitocris threatens to set Rebecca to work digging up artifacts and have her soul and free will removed. The pair are then taken to the Temple of Nyarthotep, unable to untie themselves. Matteo attempts to meditate as he is carried away and connects his mind with Katakat, who claims to be a prisoner ripped out of their time. Matteo is gifted a boon from the being. Chai, Thomas and Hugo hear Matteo call for help and they move into position to get a surprise attack. Thomas takes Chai's dynamite, ready to use it as a distraction, as Hugo takes a gun for pot shots and Chai to get all up in their face. Thomas flings the dynamite stick and it explodes behind the party in the street, but Nito Crease appears to be not bothered. Chai rushes forward and lunges at Nito Crease, but she's entirely unfazed. Hugo aims his gun at a zombie carrying Mateo and misses.
Surprise attack, a complete failure. Nito Kreese jabs her very sharp fingernails into Chai. Using the moment, Thomas grabs Huston from behind and holds him hostage with a handgun. In the confusion, Matteo frees himself from the zombie. Huston glares at Thomas and dominates, commanding he drop the gun. Jack awakens and rushes for the street where the fighting is taking place, only to be blocked by a low wall. Huston gestures towards Thomas, instantly rendering him unconscious. Nito Kreese successfully disarms Chai of her pressure stick as Jack reunites with Hugo, who informs Jack who we are face who we are fighting. His face goes white as he mutters, We are going to die, and he begins casting a spell. Rebecca is continuing to hop away on the chair she is tied to as Huston begins to chant a spell at Matteo, but nothing happens. Jack notices Hugo take out a book and a silver key and groans as Matteo takes out a zombie and Thomas reawakens and shoots Huston in the back. Jack waves his hands and a portal opens underneath Queen Nitocris, plunging her 250 years into the future, along with the Hound of Tindalos it also summoned. In the confusion, Rebecca flings a zombie and Huston uses some kind of assassin's smoke bomb to vanish out of the fight. We survived! Recap. In the aftermath of the battle, the flying polyps return. We rush into a building and notice Chai is looking very frail from the poison she received. We carry her through the city to Mackenzie, who may have some antidotes. We scurry through a purple dome along the way, with rooms and a glowing light inside, and several peculiar statues. This is the temple of Nialathotep. Jack has to grab Matteo and Hugo from approaching the sacrificial statues. He and Rebecca manage to intercept them, and we leave hastily. We continue down the street and through the blue dome. This time, the floor glows, and Chai floats momentarily, before returning fully healed and conscious. Thomas cannot believe what just happened. She was magically healed. The group have lost their pure blood for the ritual of the Eye of Light and Darkness. They manage to return to their camp and eat the food Mitch has prepared, which helps calm everyone down a bit. As we brief Mitch and catch up on what we have discovered in the city, Jack accidentally mentions Nyarlathotep's name and he sees himself in unknowable Kadath. A slender man, the steward of Kadath, greets him with a bonjour and hands him a vial of red liquid and warns Jack, you haven't much time, he knows what you're doing. The rest of the party just stare at the space Jack was sitting in and wonder where he's gone. Chai and Hugo head back to the temple, guessing he may be there. And indeed he is, looking at the statue of Nyarlathotep. He is not alone, though. A strange, conical, floating, electrical creature with glowing red eyes floats inside. It takes the red vial and informs Jack the eye must now be made. This is Kakakatak, and he is now free since Haston has left the city. Uh, he is the great race, and this is his city, and he wishes to expunge the temple, but is wary that Jack has was part of the cult. It brings a sphere of lightning before Jack to judge his intentions and his sincerity, just as Chai and Hugo arrive. Kakakatak doesn't trust Jack, but he does trust Chai. They inform Chai they are, there are prisoners inside Huston's wooden shack that should be freed before they cast the Eye of Light and Darkness. They fetch everyone at the camp and bring everyone to the Blue Dome for the scribing of the eye. Kakakakat judges the sincerity of everyone in the group to ensure that we are not, do not have a connection to Nialathotep. 
Once the preparation is complete, the ritual is performed and Nyarlathotep's influence in the City of the Great Race is banished. We spend a day recovering until the eye is in full effect and Kakakakak teaches us how to use the lightning cannons we found earlier. And Jack takes some time to talk with Thomas to help him get to grips with his predicament. Once the presence of Nyarlathotep is expelled, the cavern feels much less oppressive. We rescue the prisoners from Huston's wooden house and find a chronometer the cults use around the world to ensure they all perform the ritual at the same time. There is also Huston's personal spell tome, the Gods of Reality. With that, Kakakatak opens a portal to take us back to our plane on the surface of the desert. One temple down, two to go. Last time on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. The party have returned to their plane at Joanna Springs in the Australia desert. We load up the plane, but Hugo faints in the cockpit from heat stroke, so Jack administers first aid. Once recovered, Hugo attempts to plot a course to Port Headland, but he isn't feeling well, and so Mackenzie and Raymond suggest delaying the trip till tomorrow. He is still unable to plot the course, but Raymond corrects it, and we take off and travel by red line to Port Headland. We part ways with Mackenzie and regather at the hotel. Our remaining leads are now Grey Dragon Island, Egypt and Kenya. Jack reveals going to Egypt is pointless because they were resurrecting Queen Nidocrease and the Dark Sphinx there. Mitch recalls that the Dark Sphinx is a physical form of Nyarlathotep and it commands an army of monsters. Jack explains there is a mountain in Kenya which contains another temple to Nyarlathotep and Grey Dragon Island is the location of the ritual which will end the world. Since it is nearer to our current position, the general consensus is to disrupt the ritual at Grey Dragon Island first, then prevent them from regrouping at Kenya. Recap. A decision is made to island hop via plane up to Shanghai with the cargo plane. Discussing these plans in in front of Thomas gives him the realisation just how in danger the world is in, and now he is involved, he would be targeted by the cult. So he volunteers to join the group for protection, but also to assist where possible. While preparing, Matteo consults the cats on Lady Bast's advice, who recommends he recover the black rites of Rive Carafe, stolen by Van Huvelden and taken to Shanghai. Rebecca seeks out Jack to assist her in reading her book. Not content with just writing it, Nal wants to read his own book as well. Jack learns the truth from the adventures of Naomi Trulot, and it also makes sense to Rebecca now too, and the pair fall into hysterics. Chai takes them to her room to recover as Thomas returns from sending a telegram. Mitch and Hugo, meanwhile, have been checking over the plane and stocking up on food and supplies, as well as arranging for a co-pilot for the long-haul flights ahead. Back at the hotel, Jack and Rebecca come back to their senses, and Matteo invites Chai to assist him in recovering the black rites of Louvet Carafe who suggests Thomas, Jack and Rebecca could assist them and potentially acquire anything else the Dutchman has stolen. To unwind that evening, Chai and Walker have dinner together while they witness Hugo and Mitch on a dinner date. Recap. The following morning, we board the plane to fly to Batavia in the Dutch East Indies. Hugo and the co-pilot George and engineer Raymond launch the plane successfully and Hugo navigates it too. It's a birthday miracle. En route, Chai T finishes the book The Cultist Manifacarum and instantly regrets it. 
Rebecca attempts to learn some spells too. Hugo continues to fly. Mitch becomes a stewardess and inquires with Hugo how one learns to fly a plane. Jack also learns spells. And Thomas exercises in the cargo bay and learns to meditate with Matteo. Rebecca notices Chai seems disturbed while reading her book, so she takes her to one side to calm her mind again. Later, Hugo attempts to land the plane, and we depart to a hotel. Folks learn more spells, practice with their handguns, enchant a knife, and acquire some coffee beans. The following day, we begin our trip to Kuala Lumpur, with the co-pilot George taking the helm. Thomas tries some more meditation and nearly drifts off to the dark creatures in the city of Narcosis, but Matteo manages to jerk him back to reality. Mitch joins in learning meditation skills, and Chai reminds Jack that we should begin refilling the lure of power in preparation for the next ritual. Later, Chai attempts to learn a new spell when we all begin to hear a chiming. Chai suddenly appears to be a divine creature of beauty. Even her voice is angelic. Fortunately, no one is completely dumbstruck and captivated by it, but it doesn't go unnoticed. Hugo continues to successfully fly and navigate the plane, and we all land safely in Kuala Lumpur. Recap! Before going to bed for the night, we begin charging the lure. It was going so well until Rebecca touched it and fainted. Thomas is reassured, however, that this is normal, so he touches it too. And literally 10% of his soul is drained from him. His eyes roll back in his head and he collapses. Matteo is not prepared to get involved tonight after witnessing this. The next morning, we start our journey to Hanoi. Hugo begins the takeoff when one of the propeller blades breaks and pierces the wing. Chai recommends that those who are not helping with the repairs stay nearby within range of the scrying device on Matteo's person so that we do not get detected by the cult. However, she only remembers this after we've made it back to the hotel. After returning to the plane, Hugo, Rebecca, Mitch and Matteo assist Raymond in fixing the damaged propeller. Repairs are finished the following morning after members of the party charge the lure, but Thomas refuses after his traumatic experience. We finally leave and avoid the inclement weather. During the trip, Jack learns and accidentally creates some coyote dust and nearly exposes the whole cabin to sleeping powder. Hugo gives Mitch a crash course on basic aeronautics and how planes fly, and we manage to fly through some turbulence and finally land in Hanoi. As we disembark, Hugo figures we can make it straight to Shanghai in one last single trip. Aboard our final flight, the weather suddenly turns and drifts us off course until George manages to correct course. Some people get violently ill from the shaking of the plane. The plane approaches Shanghai amid a storm. Will Hugo make it? He does. It lands successfully and skillfully against the cherry glow backdrop of the recently formed volcano in the Chinese district of Shanghai. Walter arranges lodgings at the Henshen Hotel where we rest up and make preparations to contact Jack Brady and raid Grey Dragon Island. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap. At the breakfast table in the Hengsheng Hotel, Matteo explains his lead on Van Huvelen and the text The Black Rites of Louvé Carafe, but we are not sure where to find them. Thomas suggests we ask Jack Brady, but in the meantime, we can investigate their expedition at the museum. Matteo and Thomas head to the museum, and Rebecca and Chai head to the newspaper printing because Chai won't be welcome at a museum. <laughs> <laughs> 
As we leave, Mitch, Hugo and Jack return from inspecting the plane and Jack receives a telegram with instructions from Captain Vanderbilt on how to contact Jack Brady. At the museum, Matteo inquires with Mr. Mao, the curator, for any recent Egyptian expeditions and Van Huvelen. Apparently, he's a drunk and is translating something from Egypt to English. We speak to Chang Ning, the librarian. While Matteo chats, Tom spots a rather pretty lady reading in the corner by the name of Narice, who is also an Olympic rower. However, as we chat, it becomes clear she's not being entirely truthful about her training regime. Meanwhile, Rebecca and Chai arrive at the Times offices and speak with Mr. Trevor to ask about Van Huvelen. He knows that a Dr. Henry Clive and Martin Winfield are looking for the Dutchman. They arrive on the Ivory Wind with a woman and an Omar al-Shakti and are staying in the Old City. At the hotel, Jack and Mitch have no money and need to go to a bank. Fortunately, however, the ever-valuable Walter is at hand and Jack hands the telegram to him. Mitch and Jack head out to meet Mr. Lung to begin making contact with Mr. Brady. Back at the museum, Matteo eventually gets Mr. Ning to say Van Huvelen has lodgings in the Zabai district but does not have the exact address. After Thomas gets a date with Norris tonight at the Sassoon building, Matteo and Thomas attempt to find Van Huvelen's address, but they are unable to, so they decide to later check the lodging houses in the area. Matteo suggests that someone secretly accompany Thomas on his date with Norris, since they doubt her sincerity. They then return to the hotel. At the Times building, Rebecca learns that Shakti and Dr. Clive travelled from an island in the South China Sea, possibly Grey Dragon Island. The cult is probably interested in Van Huvelen as well. As they head back to the hotel, they pass Jack and Mitch and instead decide to follow them. Fortunately, Jack realises it's them and doesn't start shooting them. Recap. At the hotel, Matteo and Thomas bring Hugo up to speed on our leads and why we are looking for the text taken by Van Huvelen and wait until the rest of the party return to the hotel. Outside Mr. Long's apartment, Rebecca, Chai, Jack and Mitch all meet up and Jack shares the details of the telegram he received. Rebecca notices the door to Mr. Long's apartment has charms and wards etched into it. As the door opens, Mr. Long appears with a shotgun since Jack set off all the charms. So he hands over the telegram to prove their sincerity. Apparently, the telegram would have incinerated anyone not destined to have received it. They are made to touch a truth sphere but it responds badly to Chai Ti, and she is flung across the room. Her pseudonym has set off the device. She reveals her name is actually Kiko, and the device releases her from its bindings. Mr. Lung contacts Jack, and hints he is a couple of days away and gives the group a tile to keep on their person so when they return, the wards and charms don't get set off again. Before they leave, he reads their horoscopes. He indicates that Chai is searching, what search is searching for is not far away. A man and a queen who serve a dark being are the key to what she seeks. Rebecca will have a darkness in her path and she will need to be cautious. However, Jack cannot be read because it would bring Neathotep into this sanctum. Learning this triggers a scream from Jack and he runs into the door. Jack cries, he's taken my eyes. Rebecca and Chai eventually use martial arts to send him to sleep. 
Mr. Lung informs Jack's connection to the cult and the Arthotep is not yet broken and summons a doctor and Jack is committed to an asylum. Before Chai calls Walter about Jack's episode, Matteo and Thomas spend the afternoon meditating and Hugo reads his book of the Silver Key, upon which he departs the lounge and returns to his room quietly. As the others return, minus Jack, Thomas fetches Hugo so they can all talk in a private dining room, but he refuses to join them. Matteo then goes up and knocks on the door and hears something going on inside. As it is quiet in the corridor, he decides to pick the lock, but botches it, so he simply decides to kick it in. But Hugo's nowhere to be seen. He's not on the fire escape, on the roof, or in the alleyway beside the hotel. As he returns to the entrance, Chai, Rebecca, Mitch all arrive and re-enter the hotel. In the asylum, bouncing off the padded walls, Jack is visited by Dr. Brown, but already is subjected to electroshock therapy in his madness and is quickly convulsed back into unconsciousness. Recap. Matteo announces that Hugo has vanished and we can't track him in Shanghai during the typhoon season. Rebecca regales what she learned about the other individuals searching for Van Hulen, and Matteo realises Dr. Clive and Mr. Winfield helped resurrect Queen Nitocris, and Al Shakti is the leader of the cult in Egypt. With all this information, we are very suspicious of Naris at the museum and are tempted not to meet up with her as an abundance of caution. We also consider moving hotel in case the cult just immediately tried to track us down in the nicest hotel in the city. We determined we should move to a private house in the Hongyu district. Meanwhile, in the back of the opium den, Hugo is hiding out, having some tea. His goal is simply to relax and get away from us horrible people. Still at the asylum, Jack is still a Fruit Loop and is administered drugs and more electricity. He plans to cast Shapeshift when the room is empty. When he becomes a jackal, he frees himself from the bed straps and waits until the door opens and bolts past the nurses. But he slides across the tiled floor and crashes into a medicine cart. They pick him up, thinking he's a stray, and toss him out on the streets, leaving behind his clothes and the enchanted Mayong tile. At the safe house, we decide to visit Jack in the asylum the next morning, and Matteo may recruit some cats to help search for Van Hulen. And we may also hire some goons to help us find... Hugo. Thomas and Matera attempt to meditate for some guidance, but receive nothing. Everyone sleeps. Out on the streets, Dog Jack finds a street vendor selling food and gives him puppy dog eyes and is shooed away until someone takes pity. He dries off under the cooking table and eventually turns back into a human asleep uh, out in the streets. Someone from the asylum finds him and drags him back to his padded cell. And nothing of value was achieved. The following morning, Thomas and Rebecca head to the asylum. Matteo looks for a cat and Chai heads out to find her contact. At the asylum, the doctors want to increase Jack's treatment plan, but Jack sounds better, so we agree to postpone the treatment. We do at least get his possessions and the enchanted Mayong tile. Matteo acquires some fish from the market and makes his way towards the monastery on the lookout for some cats. On his way, he finds a cat, but it is clearly not interested in helping Eventually, he finds another more helpful cat and bribes it with the fish and is told to talk to the priestess not far from the monastery to prove he is sent from Lady Bast. The cat does at least let slip that Van Hulen isn't at his house. Chai visits a bank to open a safety deposit box and places one of her excavated metal tablets into and leaves the other in the house. 
She then heads to Lin Yen Yu's residence and reports she has some of those tablets from the City of the Great Brace. Chai also offers up the one in the London security box and is offered three million British pounds. Whilst there, Chai learns that the Dutchman no longer owns the black rights of Rivekraft. Lin Yen Yu has them and will not part with it. He does give Van Hulen's address and also informs that he has been handed over to the Royal Asiatic Society. Recap. Rebecca, while in the rickshaw, accidentally touches the lure while rifling through Jack's stuff. She falls unconscious. Jack has a session with Dr. Brown. He's a lot more lucid and tries spinning a yarn for him. After he hears them knowing he was lying, even if he seems better. Meanwhile, uh, Chai has headed back to the house. Matteo arrives at the Royal Asiatic Society. He's told by reception Von Huvelin is not here. He goes to the monastery instead. At the monastery, Brother Tyne recognises him and they chat. Hugo is going somewhere. To the far side of the moon? He gasps for air. There is none. Above him is a small moon? No, it has eyes. He can feel its terrifying presence above him. He somehow dreams a bubble of oxygen around himself. Now he sees the thing above him doesn't have eyes, but it's big, round, and very red. There's also a stepped pyramid ahead. Something starts talking in his head. It asks if he's there to worship it. Hugo is confused. He tries to run away, but can't. He is demanded to kneel and accept the voice's blessings. It's the messenger of Azavoth. He denies it, and it's now very angry. He manages to dream himself away to the shores of a twilight sea, but the voice echoes in his mind. Solve it, solve it, solve it. Chai sees Rebecca and Thomas returning. Uh, Rebecca is still unconscious. She realises it was the lure after looking through Jack's stuff. She bags it in one of Jack's gloves, then ties it up. Then goes to check if any messages have been left at the hotel. After telling Matteo and refusing to be the party to stealing from Mrs. Yu about the facts she has discovered, which were that Neris is at the Asiatic Society and that the doctor has asked for someone to go see Jack. Jack has more therapy. He sticks to his story. Afterwards, Jack feels drowsy. He's been drugged to avoid the escapades of the night before. Rebecca comes around. She finds Tom and Matteo with Walter in the dining room. They chat. Chai gets the messages. Uh, Dr. Brown is certain that Jack is quite insane. There is that Royal Asiatic Society. She is going back to the house to inform the others, but will be going to see Jack that evening too. Hugo is about a day away from Illich Vlad. He decides to wake up. He's back in the opium den. He goes back to the hotel. The party are not there, of course. Jack is dreaming. A stone bench, a stone pot, a teapot, a man in a black suit. It's not in the alphabet, though. He warns Jack he does not have long. 
the device is almost ready. They have the plans and prototypes we left in England. The device can be completed again. To delay them, we must seal Grey Dragon Island, and to stop them, we must stop the birth and seal the Temple of the Wind in Kenya. He warns him he will end up like Aidan and Carlisle, but then he wakes up. Chai arrives at the house and hands the letter from Nerys to Matteo. She lets them know she's going to the asylum. Matteo and Rebecca go to the society. They get across and Nerys is actively happy to see them. She has already dealt with the scrolls. Yen Yu has a copy? Even though we didn't manage to help, Nerys gives Matteo a copy of the Black Rites. She also tells us that the cult intend to rip open the veil at the eclipse, whatever that means. Also, now cats will aid them. Chai arrives at the asylum and is greeted. She's shown into the cell and speaks with Jack. But afterwards, the doctor jumps Chai with the orderlies. She manages to dominate him and tries to give the order to release them both in next morning before passing out from an injection he slipped her. Recap. In Shanghai, Matteo has met with Nerys and has a copy of the Black Rites book, and that Van Huvelen is now in her custody. The cats also declare that Bast is happy with Matteo and they will aid him. Matteo requests one of them to search the city for the missing Hugo. Talking to cats is apparently normal now. Walter suggests Rebecca and Thomas both learn the spell of Iron Light and Darkness. In the asylum, Jack and Chai overhear Dr. Brown arguing that they'd be let free, but he is restrained by his colleagues. Dr. Carmichael checks on Jack to get a point of contact for him. He gives Walter's name, but he doesn't know that they've moved from the hotel. Chai complains about the room service and gets a sedative. Hugo arrives at the Henshen Hotel and receives the message from the asylum and learns Walter has checked out. In his absence, Hugo is asked to go to the asylum in the morning. Meanwhile, he spends the evening in the spa. The following morning at the house, the house wonder why Chai never came home. We agree to visit the asylum after meeting Jack Grady and meet Mr. Lung. Meanwhile, Hugo visits the asylum and Dr. Carmichael. Having been separated from the group, Hugo is fairly powerless to free them, but he is permitted to visit them. Given both Jack and Chai also don't know about the moving uh, from the hotel, their confusion is further adding to Dr. Carmichael's diagnosis of psychosis and electroshock therapy. Mitch, Thomas, Rebecca and Matteo arrive at Mr. Long's house and meet Jack Brady and get an update on Grey Dragon Island. Uh, he has been collecting a force, but thinks we will need to invade the island. The cult have some allies, but their identity is unknown, but the surviving reconnaissance went insane at the sight of them. There is a cave within the island where they are constructing their device. We think perhaps flying in will at least evade the sea creatures, perhaps with a seaplane to land on the beach and then take off again from the sea. Jack also suggests boarding the new ship ferrying from the island and the mainland. We reveal Jack, Katie and Chai T and Hugo Dawson are missing, so Mr. Long a seance to determine where they are. Thomas remembers that they have an anti-scrying device, so they get that out so as not to interfere with the seance. We locate Hugo in the city library, but when searching for Chai, a sort of portal opens and we briefly see Aubrey Penhew, the pale viper, for a moment before he vanishes. 
He was aware of our scrying, but he doesn't know where we are. We determine Chai is also in the asylum with Jack. In the asylum, Chai is taken to Dr. Carmichael's office and she convinces the doctor she was playing along with Jack's insane claims to keep him calm. She visits Jack and is told he is not receiving any further electroshock therapy. During his next session, Dr. Carmichael is happy to release Jack into Chai's care and Dr. Brown's notes uh, are considered a misdiagnosis. The pair finally return to the house and Chai is reminded she can use her newfound riches rather than mind-bending magic spells on everything. Jack acknowledges that there are lots of cats at the house. The others arrive at the library, which, cat, which a cat confirms Hugo is inside learning mathematics. We take him back to the house and find everyone is all back together again. Hooray! Recap! Hugo worked out he can glide a plane with the engine switched off in order to be covert as possible when approaching Drake, Grey Dragon Island. We also determined we need a little more power to cast the Eye of Light and Darkness, but also the blood of the innocent. We travel back to Mr. Lung's house and convince Jack Brady that our ex-cultist is trustworthy. He has managed to identify the sea creatures aligned to the cult and shows us a photograph, which Rebecca recognises from Cat's Spellbook, and Matteo recalls them as the Deep Ones. They are aligned to another cult and potentially rendering the Eye of Light and Darkness less effective against them. Chai reckons Penhu struck a deal with the Deep Ones and that we could potentially strike one with them ourselves if we summon one. Thomas and Jack Brady feel this is risky as it may blow our cover, but we can provide a soldier to us to provide innocent blood. Chai also recalls we don't need the full moon so long as we have a different belief such as Lady Bast's blessing. We arrange to uh, land our offensive in a week to get a new, to get a new plane, practice flying said plane, acquire food and supplies, and Matteo to contact the cats for assistance. Before we leave, Jack recalls we need to start the ritual at sunset, so if we fly under the cover of darkness, we need to fly in the night beforehand and camp out for a day. Matteo consults Rebecca and suggests they talk to Norris at the Royal Asiatic Society. Higo is about to go to the airport, but Chai recommends no one leave the house protected by cats without the anti-scrying device currently on Matteo's person. In the meantime, Walter can make phone calls to get most of the equipment, so Mitch and Hugo assist him, while Chai and Thomas read books and Jack has a bath. After consulting Narice, she gives Rebecca a statue for the ritual and to take at least six cats along with them too. We must carve the Eye of Light and Darkness, place the statue, and then cast the ritual in that order. Narice also blesses Rebecca to be able to read Egyptian hieroglyphs uh, in the Black Rites. On Thomas's first instance of reading a book, it goes horribly wrong, and a large flash of light saps his body and mind and hurls him into the garden pond as Dr. Huston appears, extremely pissed off to see the man who shot him in Australia. Recap. Thomas scrambles out of the pond and demands everyone get outside to face off with Dr. Huston. Jack emerges from the bath in his towel, creeps past the door and sends a mind blast at him as the cats begin to swarm. Huston attempts to draw out the blood from Thomas, but he resists. However, the cats are not immune and they explode, erecting some kind of magical field around Huston. Walter, Mitch and Hugo discuss scurrying around the outside of the building to get the guns, while Chai and Thomas get into position. As Jack tries to follow, a cat paws at him and restores his magic, as Huston gestures at Thomas. Hugo has not gone for his gun, but is instead preparing a spell as Chai unleashes Kung Fu. 
Jack attempts another mind blast, but it blows up in his face as Rebecca and Matea arrive back from visiting Nerys, blissfully unaware of the chaos, but quickly realise what is going on. Hugo launches his spell and shatters the shield and immolates Huston. This is followed up by Chai using the same spell used against her and drains Huston of his power, as Thomas bumbles up to a cat and breaks its neck. He has been dominated. The sight of the spell by Chai almost triggers Jack to attack her, but he restrains himself, focuses his mind, and fizzles his spell again, and definitely didn't roll a 100. The cats continue distributing MP amongst the party, whilst Huston, absolutely livid, uses the blood-draining spell on Chai, while Matteo stealthily approaches. Chai staggers, but successfully lands a blow on Huston, just as Thomas snaps out of his mind control and also launches an attack at Huston. The sphere of blood is still gathering and pulsating above Huston, and all the cats are running away, so Rebecca follows them. Huston is dying, so he condenses the blood ball and grabs a hold of Thomas and Chai. Matteo realises what is happening and demands everyone flee as if a bomb were about to go off. He, Mitch and Walter hightail it while Hugo attempts to dream him and someone else away, but it fails, so he simply flees on foot. Chai utters the curse of Azazloth. The sphere of blood turns black and opens briefly and reveals that which was named. Thomas and Chai fling Huston into the sphere, spaghettifying him as the sphere implodes and vanishes. The high priest of Nyarlathotep has vanished. Thomas and Chai are very fragile, having looked into the epicentre of everything. They need a psychiatrist and a doctor. Recap. That evening, Walter has summoned a doctor to see Chai, who is rather pale and cold from blood loss. The doctor says she needs urgent hospital treatment or she will not survive the night. As Rebecca informs the others, she wonders if we all need to go to hospital or some of us can stay here so that we are not scried on. But Matteo wasn't aware the house was warded. But the cats confirm those aligned with evil cannot see or enter the house. Everyone convenes in the courtyard while Jack enters Chai's room. She is already in a coma, courtesy of the unteenth critical failed role of the day. Mitch pulls down a driver who can't speak English, and we get Chai into the van. Jack and Mitch jump in with the doctor with the anti-scrying device while the rest of us anxiously wait. Chai arrives at hospital clinging to life and is taken into theatre. She's given a myriad of drugs and fluids. She's given a chance to survive the night. By midnight, she is still breathing, so Mitch calls the house to give them an update. All but Thomas are able to get some sleep. While Whilst holding vigil over Chai, her breathing almost stops. Mitch plays as a last-ditch effort a song in the hope of providing Chai some hope and luck, and in doing so summons Lady Bast herself. Her mere presence is calming to the room, and she pats Jack on the shoulder, casting out the remnants of Nyarlathotep from him. She sits by Chai's bed and holds her hand for a moment, and then declares that she would live, but warns that had she died, the other would have also. Huston's essence was absorbed by Chai and Thomas, and they are now soul-linked. If one dies, so does the other. Bast offers this service for free, but further requests will come at a cost. She departs, informing Mitch that when they reach Kenya, they must reach the House of Isis in central Mombasa, where Nyarlathotep's child will be born. If this happens, it will certainly be the end of days. In the morning, Chai awakens, as if nothing had happened to her. She is revitalised. And ready for the day. Previously on Masks... Uh, no, I've forgotten the title. Hold on. 
so many times. Recap. After Chai's miraculous recovery, Hugo needs to go and select a seaplane and practice flying and gliding one in preparation for raiding Grey Dragon Island. He takes Rebecca and Mateo with him and the all-important anti-scrying device and meets up with his co-pilot, Raymond. Mitch and Jack have remained at the hospital to keep an eye on Chai and she is discharged with a clean bill of health. Hugo identifies a seaplane, but some reconfiguring for seating space and cargo capacity is required. Raymond expresses grave concern for an unpowered gliding landing. This particular plane was poorly designed for landing on the sea. Hugo quickly comes up with a modified design to strengthen the hull during landing at the cost of cargo capacity. Back at the house, Chai finds a very shell-shocked Thomas in the garden, petting a cat and looking at the point where the portal to Azathoth once formed. She proceeds to inform them that they are now soul-linked together and scions of Bast, and perhaps his vacant expression and shell-shocked mind allows Thomas to absorb this information without snapping his mind in two. As it is their best interest to look out for one another, Chai begins teaching Thomas her spells in order to prepare himself for survival. Meanwhile, Mitch has been preparing food for the trip and begins learning the music for another harmonica song. Jack checks in on Chai and Thomas, and all the cats take an interest in him. Having received a boon from Lady Bast, the cats are less hostile towards him, but they insist on receiving some fish. But Mitch has already cooked all the available fish, forcing Jack to offer the leftover fish heads and tails while he orders more fresh fish. Back at the airport, Matteo and Rebecca board the seaplane and Hugo takes off to begin the test flight. It goes rather smoothly, so Rebecca continues reading her scrolls. The plane is now slower than previously and can't fly quite as high, but Hugo determines the correct altitude to fly at and when to begin gliding into landing. But the only way to make it work is to take much less cargo for the trip to Grey Dragon Island than originally planned. Hugo then takes the plane out to some open water to practice the sea landing and successfully pulls it off. But he knows that when fully loaded, it will be harder to perform next time. Recap. After the cats have been fed, Mitch comes through to inform us Hugo's test flight was a success, but there are weight restrictions for the cargo. The main idea is to leave behind the heavy heating units and power generators and batteries and rely mostly on clothing to keep warm and dry. Mitch and Jack decide to buy more waterproof gear from the docks, while Chai and Thomas help Walter repack for light travelling. In the taxi on the way back from the airport, Rebecca and Matteo are concerned about Hugo. He may be thinking or distracted by something else other than flying the plane to Grey Dragon Island. He seems to be enjoying some complex mathematics in his head. Scrutinising him further, Rebecca snatches his mathematic notebooks from Hugo and instructs she will talk with him later and expresses grave concern to Matteo. Everyone reconvenes at the house where Rebecca and Matteo enforce a group meeting. Hugo is compulsively trying to solve a mythos equation to enable one to understand the foundations of everything achieved by inviting a god into his mind. Jack looks at, the, at Hugo's notebook and then begins working out the mathematics alongside him. Rebecca identifies this as the Crucia equation, which Chai and Matteo are aware of. Chai immediately tries to dominate Hugo to stop him from working on the equation, but his eyes turn black and deflect the spell. Something or someone is preventing Chai from breaking Hugo's compulsion. 
Chai is able to bring Jack to his senses, who has identified it is our good old buddy Nyarthotep driving Hugo's compulsion. And this is confirmed by Rebecca having read the Black Rites of Louvet Caraf. We asked Walter to call Kat Vanderbilt to give an update, but also to ask for some advice on the Hugo situation, while Rebecca and Matteo just chat with Hugo to keep him from thinking about mathematics. Mitch continues cooking, and Jack double-checks the gear is all in order. Walter hands Jack the phone to speak to Kat. She advises that the best solution is just to keep him distracted until we cast the Eye of Light and Darkness, but Jack is concerned this will not be enough. So Kat agrees to be in Shanghai the next day. Chai takes Thomas to Miss Lin Yu and asks her if she knows of any techniques to whisk ourselves away from imminent danger. She is unable to teach us these techniques, but either Etienne or Kat are probably the only options available to us who could teach us these. She does provide Etienne's phone number and address. Lin Yu then invites Thomas to a night of whining and dining. Hopefully Thomas will not remember the sex. The following morning, back at the house, Walter brings Hugo several maps and instructs him to navigate a route to Grey Dragon Island, and this serves as a good distraction technique. Matteo attempts to recruit some cat volunteers for our journey, but none are forthcoming, so they point him to the train station and to ask the cats that live there. Mitch and Jack perform some handgun practice, and Rebecca reads her book when Mitch enters, requesting some assistance understanding his songs. Instead, the pair learn a spell from Rebecca's book, which Mitch can cast from his harmonica. Chai learns and teaches Thomas how to communicate with Lady Bast, who is also unable to teach us how to whisk ourselves away from danger. Just when they finish speaking, Cat Vanderbilt walks through the door. Recap. Recap. Cat introduces herself to the members of the party she has not met before and explains the ritual she needs to perform on Hugo. He has temporarily taken himself to a bedroom, so we recover him and prepare the room with pentagrams. It takes time to convince him that the ritual is for his benefit. As Cat begins chanting the Latin phrases, Thomas begins to panic, but his linked chai manages to calm his mind so as not to interrupt the ritual. Matteo is now utterly convinced to never ever again partake in a ritual. Suddenly, Hugo's eyes go black and roll back in his head as he begins to babble nonsense, shrieking out numbers incoherently. Until finally, he falls silent again. The compulsion has been removed. In the aftermath, Matteo meditates in the garden as Mitch cooks up a meal. Jack approaches Kat and reveals the lure device he has charged for the ritual of the Eye of Light and Darkness, hoping she could make a donation. She successfully charges it up safely though it does spark and crackle and a piercing beam of light shoots out and nearly causes Jack to drop the lure. It creates a time gate in the garden, so the pair focus on the gate to close it, resulting in Jack to fall unconscious. Once he's been taken to bed, Chai and Thomas approach Cat for a spell to whisk them away out of danger, but again, there is nothing that can be prepared in an instant. So Chai asks if Cat can contact Etienne. She picks up the phone and he just suddenly immediately walks through the door. How are these people just suddenly appearing in our house? In his meditative state, Matteo speaks to the Searing Lama with his concerns about all the rituals he is asked to do. The holy man advises that when his quest is over, he comes to the Silver City to leave behind the world of rituals. When he awakens from his meditative state, he greets Etienne and we gather round for dinner, including Jack, who has regained consciousness. During dinner, we discuss our plan with Etienne and ask once again if we can whisk ourselves away from imminent danger. 
and again he cannot. But says Liza and Felix did know of a spell that could achieve this. Etienne shares his knowledge with Chai so she can summon Felix, returning his writing case as part of the ritual and learn the spell. They, along with Thomas and Kat, leave for Etienne's time clock, leaving the dinner party behind. They successfully learn the spell to summon Yogg-Sothoth come Felix. During the night, Hugo dreams and creates a plane to recreate the scenario he will be flying in a few days to get additional practice. It takes several attempts, but he is able not to crash. Recap. The following morning, Chai determines we need a tall building or tower to summon Yogg-Sothoth Felix, and Jack determines the British naval port is the best place. They and Thomas and Rebecca take the anti-scrying device, leaving Hugo to continue attempting to navigate and plot his course. Matteo also leaves to find some extra cats at the train station. Before Chai's group leave, she realises the weather will not allow them to complete the ritual. Rebecca recalls Mitch was capable of affecting the weather. Mitch plays the Song of the Summer Skies and banishes the clouds from the sky. Matteo successfully finds a group of homeless kittens to recruit, and Hugo figures out the necessary route to take. Chai's group then drive over to the river and cross over to the Navy port, but notice the flags are at half-mast. Jack remembers from the morning papers that the British Commandant has died, complicating the situation somewhat, but we continue under the guise of taking photographs. We bribe the sergeant and we are allowed into the tower. Jai, Thomas and Jack perform the ritual to summon Felix Walker, while Rebecca looks on. The outside world begins to flicker. Shanghai is replaced by fields, then sky, then brick buildings, then back to fields. Chai offers up the sacrifice required, Felix's unfinished writing notes. The sky changes colours and begins to boil and bubble, each one of us appearing young and old simultaneously. Finally, Shanghai is completely replaced by a star-filled sky, with Felix Walker standing, greeting us, somewhat confused. Chai makes the request to learn the necessary spell to increase our chances for survival. Felix offers up the knowledge for a price. He wishes to assume our bodies from time to time in order to continue writing his unpublished works. There is a bit of bargaining as to how frequently Felix is permitted to inhabit us. We agree on 12 hours per month per person, instructing us what to write, but never physically taking over our bodies with the opportunity to renegotiate later. While the negotiations take place, Hugo continues improving his plotted course, but the right weather conditions will be the key ingredient. Matteo is also successfully located all the cats required for our trip. Back at Deal or No Deal, Felix agrees to offer more knowledge at an extra cost, seeing as we've already summoned him. They pay Chai's wealth, Jack's lure, and Thomas's gold medal. Felix grants them the knowledge of the universe and it pours into their minds. Even Rebecca, despite not personally accepting the deal, one does not meet Yoxatos and leave unscathed. Suddenly, the universe feels as if it's shattering all around them, the four shrieking in pain as we suddenly collapse in a heap in the safe house garden. As we gather ourselves, we create our own safety escape boxes to enable the spell to work. Chai also makes one for Hugo, but everyone else declines, but are made aware that if the going gets tough and we need to flee, they will be left behind. Previously on M's of N. Recap! Walter bids us farewell as we leave the safe house in Shanghai for the airport to fly to Grey Dragon Island. Raymond has finished preparing the plane and bids us good luck. He's not joining this mission. Matteo joins Hugo in the cockpit to assist in navigation. 
Hugo starts the engines and brings us into the air and over the East China Sea, straight into a heavy rain cloud. Yet there is no turbines or wind. This makes navigating more challenging, but Matteo makes the necessary corrections. The in-flight entertainment includes stargazing, napping, playing with kittens, and reading dark scrolls. Hugo eventually turns off the engines and begins the gliding phase of our approach. Underneath the clouds, it is virtually pitch black. Mitch is asked to play one of his harmonica spells to move the clouds aside. Soon, the moonlight splits the clouds and Hugo realigns the plane towards the island. He lowers the plane towards the surface of the sea, when suddenly a rock beneath the waves rips a hole in the hull, hurtling into the reef and flipping the plane up and shattering into pieces. Mitch lands more gracefully than the cats do, whilst everyone is spread eagle amongst the reef, except for Rebecca, who has sunk beneath the waves with a broken leg. Chai spots her floundering, so Mitch dives in to save her, and Thomas tosses a rope to pull them in. Hugo straps some broken wooden planks to her leg, but the first aid kit has been emptied from the crash. There are no bandages or painkillers available, so Chai puts her into a state of bliss to calm her down. Mitch paddles out into the sea to retrieve some supply crates and finding our tents and sodden rations of food, but Mitch wrapped them well enough to keep most of it dry. Thomas and Matteo keep Rebecca as comfortable as possible while Hugo searches for the statue of Bass and discovers it broken into pieces. Chai and Jack find very wet blankets and some kerosene lamps. Matteo checks in with the cats and discovers one is missing. He searches around and discovers Jack has found it and is keeping it warm in his coat pocket. Matteo retrieves, Matteo retrieves the broken bass statue to the cats to see if it can be repaired, but there is still a piece missing. Despite her injuries, Rebecca has stabilised and is not dying. Phase one of best plan ever complete. Recap. Jack and Shai find no more debris in the direction along the reef, so they turn back, bumping into Thomas and Matteo, looking for the remaining piece of the statue of Bast. The cat wishes to remain warm in Jack's pocket, so he and Matteo continue searching with the cat, whilst Chai and Thomas look for the missing carving tools for the Eye of Light and Darkness ritual. Rebecca and Mitch discuss what supplies they have and need, including drinking water. They need to find either their own or some fuel to boil seawater. Re- Rebecca recalls that treading into the water is the opposite of what we want to do because of the deep ones, and we should be careful when wading out to sea. Thomas and Chai's spot out at sea is the crate with the carving tools. With little time to spare, Chai dives in to retrieve it, but is not strong enough to drag it back. As she has swam out, Thomas has lost sight of her and isn't a strong swimmer either and runs back to find Mitch. He grabs him and Matteo and Jack accompany while Hugo continues looking for the first aid equipment, successfully finding the painkillers and offering them to Rebecca, who immediately begins tripping balls. Back in the water, the crate Chai is holding plunges under the waves. Only the cat in Jack's pocket sees Chai go under and dives into the sea. Mitch, Matteo and Jack swim after it, and Mitch expertly grabs Chai, and the rest save the crate from sinking and drag everyone back to shore. Everyone returns to the camp. All but Matteo manage to get some sleep, and awake the next morning to see Grey Dragon Island in all its volcanic glory. Rebecca is in some mild pain, but is coping well for now, and we all eat. We give Rebecca and Jack the carving equipment to begin preparations for the rituals, whilst the rest search for water and the missing statue piece. Matteo and Mitch both find separate pieces which combine together and will eventually complete the statue. 
While out there, we spot a rowboat of four cultists approaching from the island. Mateo sneaks back to the camp to inform Jack and Rebecca about the situation. Jack determines we need to hide so that we can convince them we didn't survive the crash and proceeds to cover the campsite with our camouflage tents. The rest of the group sneak back to camp and we all hunker down. Unfortunately, the cats give away our location of the tent, but Chai casts Dominate on the cultist who investigates and convinces him that we are not here. It works, and the cultists leave without raising the alarm. After they leave, Hugo remembers we still haven't found the blood for the ritual, nor the flares to alert Jack Brady that when the ritual has been completed. We all venture back out again, except Rebecca, who finishes carving the Eye of Light and Darkness. Mitch finds a water barrel and rescues it, and Chai discovers the vial of blood required for the ritual. We regather, and Chai wonders if one of her healing spells can be used on the statue, to which Rebecca questions why she's been left with a broken leg for the last 24 hours. As practice, Chai uses the healing spell on Rebecca before trying it on the statue. Rebecca is healed and can walk again. Thomas wonders if communicating directly with Lady Bass to consult how to fix the statue uh, would be better than simply using this healing spell first. Recap. Thomas communicates with Bast, who confirms the statue is now useless to us. We can still cast the Eye of Light and Darkness the normal way, but it only casts out Nyarlathotep. Any other sources of magic, such as the Deep Ones, will still be present. It also means that Bast herself cannot come and manifest by our side. Since Mateo is not partaking in the ritual... He will be on lookout during the ritual whilst the rest of us get a few hours sleep. We form a circle around the carving and begin chanting and pouring blood every hour. The moon rises over our carving and we funnel the power stored in the lure into the eye of light and darkness. As we finalise the spell, the lure gives out and it disintegrates into ash and is no more, revealing a small green crystal which fades into darkness. In our exhausted state, we get Matteo to set back up the tents to give our camp a camouflage appearance, and we collapse for a well-deserved rest. The next evening, we watch the eye open, and a shimmering aura swallows the island, and an enormous roar erupts from within the temple. Then everything falls silent. We discuss possibly evacuating the camp in case the cultists search the plane wreck again, when Thomas hears a ship entering the reef. Jack Brady has begun his assault on Grey Dragon Island, despite the Deep Ones clambering on deck. We watch the spectacle until a launch boat arrives to pick us up. We're taken to the dock on the island, seized from the cultists. Retrieving our weapons, we begin marching into the mountain to hunt down Aubrey Penhew. We enter the main chamber of the volcano and see a literal space rocket in the centre of the cavern, the Silver Bird which we believe must be some kind of mythos-powered firework. There is also an enormous statue of the bloated woman on the far side, while Brady's men fight cultists in front of us. We begin making our way round the Silver Bird in two groups, taking out cultists and deep ones as we go. Some of the deep ones begin chanting and summon large, oozing, tendril beasts, and they lumber out of the pools at the edge of the cavern. The, the mere sight of them causes Mitch and Chai to faint. Shoggoths tend to do that. We collectively pick off cultists, and Rebecca's lightning gun is super effective against the Deep Ones. The Shoggoths approach, but Mitch awakens and declares we need to kill the controllers. Armed with his harmonica, he plays the Wrath of Pazuzu and launches lightning at one of them. The battle rages on. Recap. As we continue battling, Jack Brady tosses some kind of grenade at a Shoggoth and yells to get away from it. 
while the other Shoggoth oozes over some of the mercenaries. Mitch's harmonica bolts one of the controllers again and kills it, causing the Shoggoth to glow and disappear. Jack's grenade explodes and decimates the other temporarily. Uh, Getting in on the explosive action, Thomas tosses a grenade at the silver bird, destroying part of the scaffolding. Chai awakens and drains the power out of some of the deep ones, and Rebecca tries taking out the other controller. She misses, but is able to distract it long enough for it to lose control of its own spell and dissolves in a pile of goo. The Shoggoth is still alive and still floating around. The rocket is beginning to hiss as Penhu and his companions try to launch it. Jack Brady casts a spell on one of the last group of the Deep Ones to save Hugo from being eaten. Thomas tosses another grenade and takes out more scaffolding, the silver bird now leaning as the supports are giving way. As Penhu finalises the launch sequence and the rocket begins to lift, Jack riddles the cockpit with machine gun bullets, taking out Penhu's minions and seriously injuring Penhu himself, but the rocket is still firing its engines. Without its controller to command it, the Shoggoth takes itself out of the equation and unsummons itself. Mitch looks at the state of the rocket taking off and yells at everyone to run out of the cave. The rocket will collide with the volcano walls if it tries to take off. Everyone begins hightailing out of the exit, and Thomas yells out to make sure everyone heard the message. As the clamps disconnect from the rocket, Matteo, Rebecca and Jack sprint as fast as possible to the stairs, up and out of the tunnel. We all get outside just in time for the entire volcano peak to erupt as the rocket collides with the cavern and explodes. In a cacophony of fire, brimstone and lightning, half the mountain collapses into the ocean as the survivors stagger down what remains of Grey Dragon Island back to Jack Brady's boat. The cults in China have been heavily handicapped, but the cult of the Bloody Tongue are still planning their ritual in Kenya. Previously, hunting the masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap! Aboard Jack Brady's cargo boat, we watched the splendour of lava oozing out of Grey Dragon Island. Jack explains the Kenya group of the cult is still at large, but also the Eye of Light and Darkness on the Red Pyramid in Egypt was also broken, which needs restoring. We can either restore it with the missing broken piece, or make a new one. Although we have destroyed the Silver Bird, we still think the cult in Kenya will still enact the ritual during the January Eclipse. The remaining big bad people, including the Dark Sphinx and Nyarlathotep's Queen, will be waiting for us, however. Also, Hypatia Masters is pregnant with Nyarlathotep's Childspawn, who will be used for the ultimate dark ritual in January. Given the urgency, we need to put a stop to the ritual in Kenya first before heading to Dashir. Digging out Jackson Elias' notes, we can retrace the Carlisle expedition and make contact with the following people. John Stone Kenyatta, Lieutenant Mark Selkirk, Mark Nelson, Sam Mariga, Dr. Starrett, Neville Germain, Colonel Undercott, and Ajir Singh. We can also investigate into our tomes for information on the ritual and the figures about to cast the dark ritual. Jack and Rebecca begin reading through these to learn anything and also any fast travel spells, given we also need to either plan and fly a plane to Mombasa or ride a long, slow boat. Thomas and Chai also make preparations to summon Bass for any advice she may be able to lend us. Recap. Chai and Thomas summon Lady Bast, who reveals lots of useful information. The Mountain of the Black Wind, where the cult is gathering, needs an Eye of Light and Darkness placed within it. 
Failing that, killing the child spawn will be enough to disrupt their goals. The Black Sphinx will likely have brought its army of the sands with it, and Queen Nitocris is catching up from her banishment into the past. Bast advises slipping in amongst the crowd and also to visit her temple in Alexandria before we enter Kenya. Finally, the Eye of Light and Darkness on the Red Pyramid can be restored simply by replacing the broken capstone at Moonrise. She also strongly recommends contacting any and all allies on Earth and in the Dreamlands. As he is a dreamer, Hugo will investigate how he can communicate with the steward of Kadath, Antoine de la Mer. As we dine and eat delicious fish, Bast notices a ripple in time. Queen Nito Kreese has arrived in 1897, the birth year of Jack Cady. Suspecting something may happen to him, all of a sudden she appears in the garden of the house before vanishing again to her Kenyan stronghold. With our safe house exposed, we make haste to leave for Hong Kong, but not before Chai and Thomas go and, and visit Miss Lin, Lin Yu. She can offer a way to banish lesser Cthulhu mythos beings, the Prince Crux Unsata, in exchange for the location of the city of the great race in Australia. With a little haggling, a deal is struck. Hugo acquires yet another plane and with his engineer prepares it for takeoff. With everything and everyone on board, we settle in for a six-hour flight, continuing to read our tomes and look after our feline companions until we land and arrive in Hong Kong. Recap! The following morning in sunny Hong Kong, Thomas and Matteo and Jack go out to town to find materials for the Prince Crux Unsata Anks, as well as a visit to Roger Carlyle in the asylum. Chai, Hugo and Rebecca remain in the hotel to reach the dreamlands. They successfully find themselves in a field of flowers, and since Rebecca has never been here before, they walk the steps of slumber and meet one of the priests at the Flame of Sagotha, who advises Rebecca how to proceed further down the steps safely. As they descend, however, Rebecca's nightmares plague her constantly and successfully drags all three of them away, surrounded by large monolith structures all around them. Back in Hong Kong, at the asylum, Matteo, Jack and Thomas are escorted to Roger Carlyle's cell. We are briefly in contact with Nialathotep, who almost fires off a spell at Matteo, but Thomas and Jack hold him back. Roger comes to, and we manage to get information on the events at the Red Pyramid in Dashir. Roger casts the Eye of Light and Darkness in reverse in order to break the seal, and then casts the broken pieces aside. Nuri of Elwaster may know where the, piece, the missing piece is, and a man called Warren Besart in Cairo may know his whereabouts. Back in the Dreamlands, Chai recognises that they are in the vault of Zin outside the Tower of Koth, in the literal heart of Nightmare. As they flee, a black oozing tendril wraps itself around Hugo, but he successfully dreams up a sword and cuts himself free. They reach the doorway of the tower but cannot open it. Dreaming up a way to do so, Hugo chants out the required incantations and mathematical equations, and they are drawn inside the tower. But Rebecca quickly realises Hugo is now re-attempting to solve the Crucia equation, so she snaps him out of it. Back in the real world, Jack leads the group to the bookshop he is looking for, but Matteo spots another shop and escorts us inside to reveal that it is Madal's shop, and he welcomes us and offers some tea. 
We explain we are looking for the mountain of the black wind in Kenya. Medal knows of a holy man by the name of Bandari in Nairobi who can direct us to the mountain. Whilst explaining this to us, Medal notices Jack's Hound of Tindalos and Queen Nitocris are surrounding the shop. We have a second cup of tea while we think of how to deal with this. Climbing back up the seemingly endless stairwell, Hugo leads Rebecca and Chai to the mystical slab that keeps all of the creatures in nightmare from invading the dreamlands. Using his silver key, he wills it to move aside, allowing them to escape nightmare, and successfully closes the slab behind him. Now that they are safe, they begin looking for the dream library, to which Chai is able to do. Inside, they meet the librarian in the form of a fluffy white dragon, and they inquire about the hearts of dreams in order to safely summon the steward of Kadath. Recap. In the library, Hugo, Rebecca and Chai follow the librarian's directions, and yet they discover a room with no books and a small pool of water with a harp playing a song. All but Chai become entranced by it, so she removes them from the room with a little jujitsu. They search again and find where they're supposed to be and search for books on the hearts of the dreams. Trapped in the bookshop, we ask Medell to make contact with Lady Bast again, but she merely reiterates to reach Alexandria and doesn't help with our plight with the Hound of Tindalos. We ask for Etienne de Marigny, who immediately pulls us into his clock. Given his involvement now, he will be giving more assistance in the future. He starts to return us back to the hotel and advises we have to deal with the Hound soon. Within the Dreamlands, Hugo is informed in order to summon the steward, he needs to speak to one of the Keeper of the Keys and is pointed to Fizz, Keeper of Fire, in Illigvlad. Hugo attempts to take them there, but they appear inside a castle with stars outside and a yellow ziggurat, and a figure dressed in lemon yellow appears to greet them. Nido rolled a 100. This is Hastur. He simply reveals his mask, and the three visitors of the dreamland stare into his face. Mitch, however, has been putting his feet up with a pina colada. Within the mystical clock, however, the clock chimes and the mist parts and Thomas, Jack and Mateo and Etienne appear in the hotel in time for Mitch to hand over a cocktail each. Etienne recommends the uh, Prince Crux and Sata, which Thomas has started to learn. He fetches the scroll and he, Jack and Mitch get busy reading it. Meanwhile, in the presence of Hastur, he is attempting to claim his visitors. They each try to dream themselves away or wake up, but his claim on them within his own realm is already too strong. Hugo brandishes his silver key and screams mathematical incantations in defiance. And the girls awaken in a cold sweat in the real world. Kai immediately runs to Hugo's room but only grey mould and a single yellow carnation are found in the bed. The boys downstairs congratulate their progress in the spell when they hear Chai screech in rage and despair. They race up to the room and witness Hugo's fate. Thomas takes Rebecca and Chai out of the room as the group realise they need a new pilot or else, or a boat to travel onward. Everyone looks around and discusses if there is a way to save Hugo without losing Etienne as an ally in order to save his soul with wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey shenanigans. But in the end, it is collectively believed that there is nothing they can do. Previously on Masks of Nyarlathep. 
Recap. With the loss of Hugo, the remainder of the party discuss ultimate strategies to get to Egypt. We also consider contacting allies in England to meet us there, whilst Etienne travels to New Orleans to fetch an ally of his. Walter arranges for Dr. Vanderbilt's steam yacht, the Fair Dinkum, to arrive in a couple of days. In the meantime, we need to make some anks for the Prince Crux on Sata. Mitch and Chai head to the local markets to stock up on supplies for the boat, but given they can't speak Mandarin, they go to the harbour to grab a translator to accompany them. Matteo, Thomas and Rebecca search for a smithy in order to make the anks for the protection wards. Matteo successfully convinces someone to cast several pairs of silver anks by tomorrow evening for a tall but very fair price. We celebrate with a nice lunch. Everyone reunites at the hotel where Walter has been sending telegrams to our allies and arranging for safe lodgings. That evening, Thomas and Chai attempt to teach the others how to use the anks should they ever need to. The following morning, as it rains, we all attend a church service for Hugo, complete with urn full of his mouldy ashes. Mitch is completely inconsolable. Afterwards, we visit the captain on the Fair Dinkum and inspect the ship for supplies, and Mitch discovers there are very few munitions, which concerns him. Chai recommends the captain hire a doctor for the trip, whom Chai proceeds to vet. Rebecca remembers she is a reporter and sends a telegram to the Times to let them know that she is still alive, and they put her in contact with Nigel Wasif in Cairo, as well as John Stone Kenyatta and Natalie Smith-Forbes in Kenya and Nairobi. Matteo and Thomas go and collect the eight silver anks commissioned by the smithy and return to the boat. Recap. Jack is unpacking in his stateroom when he witnesses Etienne's time travel clock appear before him, bringing with him Peggy LeBlanc, an occult specialist, and has been briefed on our adventures. She and Etienne will be joining us to Egypt. Peggy is introduced to everyone, but she has heard of all of us besides Jack and Mitch. Chai requests that our escape boxes be brought on board, but Hugo's should be burnt. We don't want a mouldy minion of Hastur arriving on board. Walter asks Chai about a box of green tea she supposedly ordered, but they have no knowledge of this. They go and investigate the tea box, armed with shotguns. Jack and Rebecca explore the ship and meet one of the engine hands, Robert Greenwood. Matteo, Thomas and Mitch greet Peggy in the lounge and ask her to introduce herself and her expertise whilst trying to express the severity of the situation to her. Chai and Walter recruit them to come and investigate the inventory. We find a box labelled Gunpowder Green with Chai's name on it. Thomas and Mitch carry the box off the ship and recruit some harbour hands to open the box. It is indeed full of green tea with a message from Miss Lin Yen Yu, a gift to Chai and definitely not a bomb. We carry the tea back on board, but we leave the box behind in case it's another unknown escape box. Thomas, Rebecca and Chai begin making their Prince Crux and Sata which will take approximately a week. While Matteo meditates and checks on the cats that they that have joined us on board. Meanwhile, in the privacy of her own room, Peggy enchants a blade, and Mitch finds some deckhands and plays cards with them, whilst Rebecca pets a cat. Recap. The following morning, the third Dinkum has begun its voyage to Egypt. At breakfast, Peggy and Matea suggest we need to make a more thorough inspection of the ship, given the unusual boxes encountered on board. 
We split into two groups and explore the decks while Mateo reads through the inventory ledgers. Jack, Chai and Mitch end up getting a tour from the engineer Robert Greenwood. Mitch is concerned the circuit board, which controls which parts of the ship receive power, is fully accessible to anyone. And Chai asks if there are any new crew members on board. Thomas does not find anything in the luggage room, but a cat requests it be carried. Peggy finds a half-used pad of telegram paper in the front deck, and she heads to the wireless room to check any messages that have been sent. Rebecca joins Thomas in the writing room as he also finds a stack of telegram paper, but Rebecca recalls she was using this yesterday. Peggy finds the log of telegrams to and from the ship, but nothing seems out of place, so she sits down to scour through the ledger. In the engine room, Mitch, Jack and Chai inspect the engines and boiler room, trying to find anything suspicious or out of sort, but everything seems in order. Matteo learns of a golden flute that belonged to Dr. Vanderbilt, which is apparently stored in Thomas's room. He also learns Antoine Delamere's effects are in cargo hold too. As they check each room, Thomas and Rebecca find the golden flute. Thomas picks it up and takes it with him to show the others later. Matteo checks the wireless room only to find Peggy has checked the place. Matteo fetches the captain and asks about the communications to Nairobi or Kenya but there is no record of a message going out. But there is a record of a charge for one being sent. He suggests they check the magnetic record for proof if the message was sent. The other group finish in the engine rooms and head up to the forward cargo hold. In Jack's room, Thomas discovers on the wall behind the curtains a golden mirror or some kind of mask, which definitely doesn't look like the mirror of Mendoza. In Mitch's room, there are lots of movie posters of Aidan Pike's roles on the walls. And in Chai's room, there is a small box labelled Antoine Delamere in the wardrobe. Back in the chart room, Peggy checks the route the ship reportedly took, and there is nothing untoward about it. Matteo searches the ship for Thomas, while Rebecca searches the lower decks for the other members of the party. They are checking the forward cargo hold with all the guns inside but Chai finds a large supply of newspapers with Rebecca's name on it, which she thinks is unusual. They open the box and Jack reaches in and pulls out a goddamned soapstone statue of Cthulhu. Jack immediately throws it back in the box and shuts it. The trio agree they need to interrogate Rebecca about this. For just a moment, the door appears to vanish, but Chai refuses and grabs its handle and allows them to escape. They immediately find Rebecca who has no knowledge of this crate in the cargo hold. Meanwhile, in the wireless room, Matteo explains to Thomas he fears there is a security breach. Telegrams have been paid for, but the records have been erased. Thomas leaves him to investigate when Chai comes up and fetches him and Peggy to address the situation downstairs. Recap Thomas informs Matteo of the emergency downstairs regarding the Cthulhu statue discovered, and he decides to remain investigating the magnetic record of the telegrams and avoid what is going on downstairs. He slowly makes progress while Thomas goes back downstairs to help the others figure out how the statue got on board and how to deal with it. As we discuss, Chai spots the mirror of Mendoza on Rebecca's possession. Panic begins to set in and we start thinking either returning to port or throwing the statue through a gate. During the chit-chat, Walter pokes his head out of his room and confirms the golden flute was Dr. Vanderbilt's, so we at least believe this is safe and return it to its case in Thomas's room. 
Walter then accuses Jack of having a box of ritual tools in the cargo hold, Thomas a crate of exercise equipment, Matteo a box of llama ponchos, and Chai several boxes of archaeology tools. As we investigate, Chai decides to stand guard with the statue with one of Mitch's turret-mounted machine guns, and Rebecca expresses her concern that our conversations may be overheard by the crew if one or some of them are responsible for these mysterious boxes. Chai tests to see if her escape box works and activates the spell. As she gets out of the box, she believes someone saw her use the spell. She tries to check the rooms and notices some of the portholes are open and lead to the crew quarters below. She alerts Matteo as he leaves the wireless room, who's trying to find someone with the initials AT, only for them to discover all of the escape boxes have been destroyed by someone. We all get back together and Mitch tries to recall the names of the new crew members he has met. Sim in engineering, Adam the cook and Jim the deckhand. Matteo has gone to fetch the captain who is looking confused at their heading. The compass has been tampered with. Matteo receives a list of the crew and identifies the culprit. He and the captain return to the lounge and reveal Adam Turnbuckle, the cook, is our man. We check Walter is safe and Thomas and Shai check the flute hasn't been taken while Mitch sets up his turret machine gun again and the captain returns to the bridge. Mateo, Jack, Peggy and Rebecca head to the engine room whilst Mitch hears something in the bathroom and discovers Adam with the golden flute and the mirror of Mendoza. Mitch is forced to look at the mirror and witnesses multiple horrific images and is frozen in place. In the engine room, the group realises the boiler is overloading. Thomas and Chai come back downstairs to see Mitch's machine gun is unmanned and Mitch and Walter are being bathed in a strange golden aura in the hallway. Peggy identifies the boiler has been rigged with a booby trap and she and Jack trace a wire to a grenade stuck in the heat exchange. Mitch snaps out of his daze and tackles Adam. Their fall crunches and the golden flute beneath them. Uh, Rebecca removes the grenade and Matteo releases the emergency pressure from the boiler while Chai applies her jiu-jitsu to render Adam unconscious. Disaster is averted. Adam is handcuffed and everyone gathers on the rear deck. Matteo and Rebecca are invited to interrogate the prisoner. Chai, Jack and Peggy re-enter the front cargo hold with Mitch on the gun outside. Thomas hands over the cursed artifacts to Walter who needs to repair the vault. The prisoner reveals that he has revealed our location to Maweru and an ambush is waiting for us at Suez. He alone brought on board the items of our destruction and that a sleeper stirs in one of us. Matteo feels we need to send a fake telegram to try and confuse the cult and also change our destination. Jack proceeds to open his box to reveal a statue of Vendenev with a message saying to hold this statue aloft in the final confrontation. It sort of feels like wandering into an obvious trap, but at least we aren't in danger with this box. Matteo's box only contains llama ponchos. Within Chai's box is a statue of the God of the Bloody Tongue, but she is quick enough and shuts the box before it activates or anyone else is able to see it. She needs to study how to properly dispose of it and not accidentally desecrate it. Jack reaches inside Thomas's box to reveal a golden statue of Hester. We reconvene at the lounge and discuss the telegrams Matteo discovered, sent by Adam. We try to take advantage of the information Adam has given the cult. 
Since they are expecting us to arrive at a dock in Suez or Cairo, we can instead dock in a completely different country and sail up the Nile undetected by the cult. We still have time to decide on an updated plan as we approach Hanoi to regroup and mend the damage caused to the ship. Previously on Master of Nyalfatep. Recap? As we approach Hanoi, the party just discusses what to do with our cultist prisoner, including possibly killing him. But instead, we decide to dump him in an asylum once we make port. We try intimidating him, but it doesn't work. He declares he is protected and that Jack has been named as traitor. When we arrive in Hanoi, he is carted away in a private ambulance. Peggy, meanwhile, scours her books and figures out how to cast a ward spell, which will be good to cast on the cursed statues. Matteo thinks he can just smash them into pieces because he remembers Antoine doing so back in London, but everyone is sceptical, so we decide to dump them in a security deposit box. As we do this, Mitch says that he has the headdress of eyes, which belongs to Queen Nitocrease, which he got in Australia. We deposit this as well as the golden flute from the boat, but we keep the mirror of Mendoza. We then ask Peggy to cast a ward on the security door with help from Chai. We decide that to avoid the Suez Canal, we will make dock at Berenice in the Red Sea and head over to the Nile and travel to Cairo and Alexandria that way. Just in case there are other cultists on board, we give the impression that we will get to the Nile by train in Safarka, but actually we will get there by truck from Berenice. Recap. On the journey, Mitch is inspired to cook French cuisine, but delivers nothing for dinner. Everyone is hungry and grumpy. He is plagued by strange dreams. He makes up for it the next day with lobster. But Rebecca can sense something is odd with Mitch's behaviour as we eat, as he storms out disgruntled when we don't appreciate the art he has cooked up. As we finish eating, suddenly Chai is possessed by the spirit of Felix Walker as part of our bargain. Clumsily, Felix portrays himself as Chai and makes his way to the writing room. Thomas checks she is okay and confirms with Felix that when we are in Egypt, he won't possess us at a bad time. Whilst possessing Chai, Felix informs us one of us is Cthulhu's sleeper and will awaken soon, and that there is a presence on board who is furious at Captain Liza. With that, Felix departs. Meanwhile, Jack and Rebecca are concerned for Mitch, and they need to calm him down and check his belongings and possibly sedate him. This soon appears necessary when Mitch tosses Rebecca out of the kitchen, but Matteo insists not to sedate him or he will sink deeper into the dreams of Cthulhu. Matteo is forced to kick the galley door in and everyone piles in to restrain him. Jack is knocked unconscious and the doctor injects Mitch, but nothing happens. Chai and Thomas arrive to see a brawl and witness Mitch knocking himself unconscious when he bangs his head. Matteo insists he be woken immediately, but the doctor refuses and takes him to be observed. He at least awakens Jack and keeps him under observation for a concussion. Thomas has a revelation that Mitch is under the call of Cthulhu and it must run its course for up to 20 days. The less he is unconscious, the better, but the doctor insists he sleeps for at least 12 hours. Chai visits Jack and suggests she bestow Bast's blessing to heal him. The goddess checks he is still on team good and then bestows her blessing, healing Jack. In his dreams, Mitch is wandering a mystical city and is continuing his cooking compulsion and narrowly avoids exploring any further or beginning any type of ritual. 
Peggy leads a research group with all the books we have, while Thomas and Matteo tidy up the kitchen and galley. Mitch's dreams broth is drawing in the children of Cthulhu, and it is extremely disturbing, but he remains focused on his clam chowder. Jack has a moment of inspiration and determines that Mitch must have secretly taken the Cthulhu soapstone from the security deposit box when they were storing it. This is confirmed when Thomas finds it in the flower cupboard in the kitchen. We then make a request to the captain to stop at Kuala Lumpur to dispose of it. Meanwhile, the research group discover more about the core of Cthulhu and that it can spread to others who sleep nearby the afflicted one. Killing the afflicted one appears to be the most efficient way to stop the curse. Recap We will arrive in Kuala Lumpur in the morning, so most of us try to stay awake to prevent the spread of the call of Cthulhu. Peggy goes to sleep, however, and she witnesses a green city with giant spires all around her. The sights overwhelm her, and she approaches the temple where it sleeps. Mitch notices her and guides her over to his cooking pot to keep her relatively safe. She hears the voices urging her to sing the unearthly tune. She cannot resist. She begins to sing when Mitch's fist slams into her. This causes her to awaken, screaming irrationally that Cthulhu is waking up and we must awaken Mitch immediately. Walter is woken up to tell the doctor to bring Mitch around, but nothing seems to work. Within his dream, Mitch is making a four-course meal. He is resisting the call of Cthulhu, but his mythos is steadily rising. When suddenly, he is awoken by Jack slapping him around the face. Mitch tells us Cthulhu is awakening and the temple is opening. Thomas runs to Chai's room and wakes her up, urgently suggesting they contact Lady Bass for help, while Rebecca and Matteo get the soapstone statue ready to be removed from the ship, being careful not to directly touch it. Lady Bast is summoned and calms Chai and Thomas down, confirming that now that the afflicted are awake again, the dream sequence has been interrupted. She teaches them a song which could remove the call of Cthulhu from them or damn their souls to the city of Raleigh. Uh, Bast also tells us Hastur is on board, probably to try and stop Nyarlathotep's plan, but he doesn't seem to be bothering us at the moment. Chai and Thomas invite Peggy and Mitch to take part in the Song of Sundering to sever their connection to the Call of Cthulhu, or risk being banished to the city of Raleigh. The pair begin to chant and sing, and the pentagram illuminates beneath Peggy and Mitch, and the Call of Cthulhu is successfully severed. A few hours later, we arrive in Kuala Lumpur and dispose of the soapstone statue for a second time. We grab a few more boxes to reconstruct the ones that were destroyed, and take a few days to recover as we sail across the Indian Ocean. Once we feel rested, Mitch gathers us together to go over our preparations. Bast will give us more information on how to seal Nyarlathotep's throne room when we reach her in Alexandria. Nuri of Elwasa knows where Warren Bissart is, who has part of the seal required for this ritual. And the holy man Mondari in Nairobi knows where the Mountain of the Black Wind is. Walter also reminds us that he will be staying on the boat when we make port in Egypt, but he will leave us £6,000 for us to use and make arrangements with. Recap. After three weeks at sea, we arrive in the Red Sea and pile into a rowboat to reach the shore at Berenice. Under the cover of darkness, we head into the port and find lodgings in a nearby hotel. The following morning, we start locating resources such as cars, fuel, camp tents, water and food. 
We soon change for desert survival clothing and hop in the jeeps and start the three-day journey to Lake Nessa and the city of Aswan. The journey is relatively uneventful, save for Chai and Thomas learning a new spell, and Jack asks Mateo how to meditate effectively. We try to set up camp despite Peggy's attempts to help and have a sleep. Mateo's meditation lessons do not go well. The following day is equally as hot and the road is a bit more uneven, but again, it is an uneventful day until it is time to set up camp again when Peggy causes damage and drops all the food directly onto the fire. It leaves us hungry and grumpy and the next day we are in a foul mood and make little progress, which doesn't help our mood any further. Thankfully, on the fourth day, the train is smoother and we burn rubber and arrive in the tourist town of Aswan and make a beeline for a fancy hotel and restaurant. The following day, Peggy makes up for things by booking passage on a steamboat up the Nile while the rest of us enjoy a day in the bars and sightseeing destinations. Jack and Rebecca also send telegrams ahead of time to our contacts which we need to meet up with. Previously on Murder on the Nile. Recap. We board the luxury boat, the Memphis, and Rebecca and Jack make sure nothing has been added to our luggage, and Matteo is mistaken for a luggage boy. Then he is actually recognised by one of the other passengers, but Matteo tries to feign ignorance, and insists he be called Adrian. The boat launches and leads heads up the Nile, and we explore the decks and get comfortable. Rebecca and Peggy meet Lady Regina Carmichael, whose family owned the Aswan Imperial, and then Professor Williams, Egyptologist. His reputation is somewhat snobbish and a bit of a racist, but he takes a shine to the ladies and invites them to show them a temple at the next boat stop. Colonel Feywild and his wife introduce themselves to Thomas and invite him to join them in Luxor for a few days. It seems the boat company is open to extending the trip at the request of the guests, which could easily delay us. Before long, we arrive at Kualambor, the first stop on this trip, and take a wander looking at the Egyptian calendars. At dinner, Matteo and Jack pull the short straw and are sat next to Professor Williams. After dinner, some of us do some stargazing, and Jack notices the Pharaoh and Sphinx constellations are in ascendance. He decides to get another drink. The next morning, we arrive at Edfu, where the captain informs us that we will be taking an extended stay at Luxor. Colonel Feywild has used Thomas's name to convince the captain multiple people want to stay there longer. Despite the extra days, the trip is rather relaxing. We keep travelling halfway up the Nile to the town of Aknim. Jack takes time to visit the bazaar and browses the shops and finds the travelling merchant Madal. He informs us that Hasser did not leave us when we jumped ship, and he still lingers, and that he and Nialathotep's presences will clash, and he will notice Hastur is travelling up the Nile before we reach Cairo. Madar then suggests we make boxes and ship them to our next destination, so that when we are done in Cairo, we can instantly arrive there. Jack also inquires about how to open gates in order to transport ourselves via another means, just in case. Recap! As we leave Akmin... Jack invites everyone to his room and regales what Madal told us about Hastur. Peggy wonders if Hastur is impersonating someone on the boat. We scour through our books to see if there is a banishing spell or ritual to remove Hastur from the boat. Unfortunately, there is nothing of any use and most of us retreat to the saloon. Only Rebecca is able to keep reading in her room until she is able to find potentially something useful. She gets a drink from the bar, passing a drunk chai and Jack. 
In his slumber, Jack staggers up a sandy dune and is met with the faceless god-beast and stares into infinity, praising his lord. Nyarlathotep is summoned within his dream in the land of Egypt. Jack will be forgiven if he returns home. Jack shakes himself awake and discovers a cult of the bloody tongue ritual dagger on his chest. The He has a little scream and disturbs Mateo and Rebecca, who try to open his door. Startled, Jack kicks the door down on them and lunges at Rebecca with his dagger, which she barely dodges, and she is able to knock the blade out of his possession temporarily. As everyone steps out into the corridor, Jack expels a cloud of fog to fill the, the deck, rendering everybody blind. Thomas reaches for his enchanted ank, and Rebecca transforms herself into a cat. In the chaos, Jack retrieves the knife and grabs the cat Rebecca and plunges the knife into her. A flash of orange light erupts, dispelling the fog, and we witness Rebecca's body undergo a Thanos snap. She crumbles to dust and fades away. The avatar of Hastur has been removed. Matteo launches a sucker punch, and Chai casts Bliss on Jack, which doesn't work and only strengthens his resolve. Thomas swings his ankh and smashes the dagger away again, and Jack slumps against the wall, allowing Chai to render him unconscious. Peggy distracts the crew while Jack is put back in his room, and the captain arrives, and we spin a tale that Jack was violently drunk and overreacted. Jack is kept under observation until morning. Outside in the corridor, Peggy finds the ritual dagger and picks it up without thinking. She wanders to Chai's room and immediately attempts to plunge the knife into Thomas as he opens the door. With cat-like reflexes, he dodges, but she is just as quick and strikes again. They land on the floor in a heap, the knife wedged in Thomas's chest. Chai clutches her chest, the psychic link between her and Thomas also starting to kill her. In her dying breath, Chai casts Bast's blessing. In an almost frozen moment of time, Bast appears and touches Thomas, now a cat, and declares that there is not a thing she can do. Chai reluctantly takes her hand and all three of them leave the land of the living. By this point, Mateo staggers out of Jack's room and investigates. He and the sailor keeping watch on Jack witness the corpses and scream, alerting the entire crew to the apparent murder on the Nile. Recap. After the bodies were found, all remaining crew were confined to their rooms for questioning until they made it to Cairo. Jack has not regained consciousness in all this time and Peggy LeBlanc has been arrested for the murders. After the investigation several days later, Jack finally awakens in a hotel room with a nurse tending to him, having been diagnosed with a bit of poisoning and no memory of the night's events. Downstairs at the breakfast table, everyone has been informed of the investigation results that Peggy had committed premeditated murder due to the jealousy of Thomas and Chai's relationship and has been summarily executed by firing squad. Matteo goes to visit Jack and informs him of their friends' deaths and it rekindles Jack's memory that Rebecca was the avatar of Hastur, and he put an end to her. Meanwhile, all the way in New York, Kat Vanderbilt is safe in her apartment with her maid Penny, psychiatrist Gregory, and special agent Oliver when the phone rings. Matteo reaches Kat and informs her of the deaths of the, most of the investigation party. With the end of the world looming, Kat decides to come herself with her personal entourage. She summons Etienne's clock to appear in her study, basically requesting a ride to Cairo. Given he gave us Peggy, he does owe us one. He, lent, he leads us into the clock, our focus on Etienne almost drifting, but we safely arrive in the hotel in Egypt. The penthouse is rented out and the two parties meet and greet. Oliver and Gregory get 
carted off to a local tailor's to get some more appropriate clothing. Then Oliver arranges for some additional security, and Jack requests a private session with Gregory. While Matteo and Kat catch up, and he turns over several uh, scrolls and dark tomes. During Jack's private session, he briefly explains the type of work that they do, and they go back over what Jack remembers. And he slowly starts to recall his dream, and hears Nyarlathotep's voice. His debt is repaid. Gregory calms Jack by reminding him a dream is but a dream, and the contents may be scary, but can't hurt him, and the details of the dream are unimportant and are not worth remembering. Jack begins to calm down a little. The rest of the group make contact with their leads and begin to pin down where Nigel Wasif and Warren Besert can be located within the city. Right. Next month we will resume in Kyoho, where we must investigate the Clive expedition by speaking to Dr. Ali Kafur at the Egyptian Museum. We must track down Warren Bassat, the uh, expedition uh, quartermaster for the Carlisle expedition, to see what dark mysteries he can tell us. And we must speak to Nigel Wasif, the proprietor of the Cairo Bulletin, to see if we can track down the elusively named Nuri and, hopefully, the missing path of the capstone of the Red Pyramid. Previously on Masks of the Alpha Tap. Recap. Two and a half months before the end of the world, the Vanderbilt team coordinate their leads and intention to visit Lady Bass in Alexandria. Except for Jack, who is on her is in her bad books. Matteo, Gregory and Oliver will investigate Juan Bassart at his favourite cafe, while Kat, Mitch and Penny head to the Egyptian Museum to find Dr. Kafur. Before leaving, Matteo reveals his anti-scrying device to the two groups, and we decide Matteo's group need it in their possession for now. At the museum, Kate, Kat's group blend in as tourists for a bit. They learn Dr. Kafur is still a curator at the museum, and he will give a lecture in the Armana Hall later in the afternoon. On the streets of Cairo, Gregory spots the door to the Hashish Cafe disguised as a clothes shop. The shopkeeper is resistant to let us through after Oliver's poor Arabic skills, but Matea bribes her to let us through. We avoid the opium, but Oliver still gets a lungful of the good stuff, while Matteo and Gregory lightly puff on the hashish. The pair of them spot Warren Bassart in another booth and approach him. He is on edge and believes there is no hope in stopping the cult, but he will answer our questions. After Dr. Kafour's lecture, Cat approaches him and asks him about the Clive expedition. He informs them of the disaster in the pyramid that caused a cave in the burial chamber of Queen Metacris. He also gives a bit of a history lesson that Nephron Carr, an ancient pharaoh, worshipped the Dark One with Queen Nitocris. Someone called Nefaru rose up and fought these two and buried Nephron Carr in the Bent Pyramid, while he himself buried in the Red Pyramid to watch over them to ensure they never were restored to life. Queen Nitocris, however, was buried in another pyramid and removed from history. He advises contacting the Penhue Foundation or Dr. Clive if we want to possibly resume their expedition. In the Hookah Lounge, Bessart has just, was just hired to work for Carlisle and ship artifacts to the Penhue Foundation. When the expe- expedition arrived in Cairo, he was invited to travel to Dashur with them. During the expedition, Jack Brady informed him that several members had vanished inside the Bent Pyramid. But then the following morning, they reappeared, exclaiming a discovery that they would not share. The following night, he learned the diggers fled because Carlisle had made a pact with, a dark, with the dark wind. 
He went to the collapsed pyramid in Medan and found the Carlisle group performing a ritual with hundreds of people. Creatures crawled out, out of the sand and killed all save for Carlisle and a, a caped figure. A five-headed creature also loomed above. One thing he also remembered is Jack Brady saw Carlisle scramble up the Red Pyramid a few days before and broke something which started all of this. Gregory asked about Nuri, the foreman of the diggers, who could be found in Alexandria. Dragging a very high Oliver back to the hotel, we all meet up again after Cat went on a small shopping trip. Mitch and Gregory decide to visit the Cairo Bulletin to get some more information on Nuri in Alexandria while everyone else prepares for transportation to the city. Gregory and Mitch arrive at the Cairo Bulletin, but as we arrive late, Mr. Wasif has left on vacation and is unlikely to return any time soon. And so instead, the party board a train and check in to the Lighthouse Hotel in Alexandria in the evening. Mateo meditates and see a vision of Thomas and Chai gesturing towards him to the temple at moonrise. Mitch has wandered into town to find some books and meets with Ithaqua and a Madal. The Ice Mistress is on her way to meet Queen Nitocrease in Cairo and is considering which side to ally herself to. After she departs, Madal offers a book, The History of Cleopatra, and the Rosetta Stone translation for Egyptian language. After he delivers the news of Ithaqua, we all decide to make haste to the Temple of Bast tonight before heading back to Cairo. After flooding the engine of the first car, we soon arrive. The site is closed, but the guards seem to wave us in regardless. We enter the temple and meet Nurith, the high priestess to Bast. As she leads us to the sanctuary, many cats adorn the temple. Lady Bast welcomes us and warns us we have less time than we think. The cult's plan B is underway. Hypatia Masters of the Carlisle Expedition carries Nyarlathotep's child, and upon its birth it will anchor the Prince of Darkness to this world. Only slaying the mother before it happens will stop him. We are strongly advised not to go directly to the the Temple of the Black Wind, but instead to repair the seal on the Red Pyramid, as it is not just a seal of light and darkness, it is far greater than that. Unfortunately, Nuri of Elwasta was cursed and died four months ago. The missing piece of the seal is lost. But if we can reach Nuri's spirit and locate the seal, then we can still accomplish this feat. But in order to do so, one must be inside the Bent Pyramid, distracting the Arthotep, and be sealed within it with him. We must speak to... Uh, the Sheikh uh, Al-Raf in Cairo Zoological Gardens in order to gain access to the Durat. We should take incense, food and barley as tribute to Anubis to gain access to Nuri's spirit. Once the seal is recovered, we can pray to Bass to gain her powers to help charge up the seal. We may ask questions to advance, advance our knowledge. Bass points us towards the Mirror of Mendoza, our books, the anti-scrying glass and the silver city in the mountain to aid us on our quest. Recap. The following morning, we decide to explore the bazaar for some blue lotuses to offer to the Sikh Al-Raf. Mitch attempts to take us to the bookstore to find a book on identifying flowers, but the shop is gone. Madal has left. We return to the bazaar and Gregory finds a street full of florists, so we, re- so we venture down there. Meanwhile, Matteo undergoes some meditation to consult the Searing Lama in Shangri-La, acquiring a charm to protect his dreams and mind from Nyarlathotep. Kat inquires about the blue lotuses, 
and that it is a rare flower. But a vendor points us to another shop. The owner shows us a picture of one, and they can be found in the high market florist in Cairo or in the aristocrat gardens. With this knowledge, we pick up Mateo and go back to the train station. In Cairo, we split into a reading team and a shopping team to get the blue lotuses, amongst other things, including a bell for Mateo. But the flowers remain elusive. Mitch tries to use his primer to read the black rites, but it just isn't advanced enough, so he decides to take it to Dr. Kafour for a quicker translation. Meanwhile, Cat and Penny read and translate the Necronomicon together in which Penny has a flash of inspiration, and it feels like the words fly off the page and drill into her mind. She lashes out at Cat and smashes a chair to pieces. Gregory grabs her from behind and sedates her. Mitch makes it to the museum and speaks to Dr. Kafour, who is uh, setting up a new exhibition on funeral mark. Mitch presents the Black Rite scroll, and he believes it to be a ritual to summon Lady Bast. Dr. Kafour is in awe of the artifact and declares that given Egyptian law, he can't return the scroll, but he will translate the whole thing for us. By chance, Mitch inquires about blue lotuses and the doctor gestures to the fountain just outside, which has loads blooming around it. He brings some of them back to the hotel just as Penny awakens from her sedation. Recap! The next day, Mitch tries to make breakfast, but is told no. We're going to go see the Sheik today at the Zoological Gardens. We arrive and introduce ourselves. He tells us there are multiple places to enter the US. See where we must return when the moon is in the sky and Oliver must look into a well. We are dismissed for the day. We enjoy a day at the Zoological Society, except Mitch manages to ruin lunch. That evening, Oliver and Penny head back to the Sheik with the gifts. The others have a night in, basically, studying and meditating. Matteo sees the llama again, then uses his bell spell for the first time, protecting himself till morning. Cat has a drink, then does some writing. Penny and Oliver get back to the gardens. It's dark. The sheik is blinged up. Penny helps get the lid off. It turns out she is now being involved too. It's the temple of Hathor in Quenna. That is where we must go. Down the river, opposite the town of Dendara. There's an oasis with a stone, and a sudden moment later, we are in each other's bodies. The Sheik does something which fixes this, but not before both of them are traumatized. We must drink the red ale in the sacred aisle near the Pool of Tears in the Temple of Hathor and Quenna. We both must go. We can take others, but not Matteo or Cat, the Sheik tells us. Then suddenly, he is gone. They return. We go to bed. We have a continental breakfast courtesy of Mitch this morning. Cat tells us a bit about the duet. If there are things we want there, they should be placed next to us. Also, we have to be wrapped in bandages. Previously on Masks of Nyarthotep. Recap.
In sunny and hot Cairo, Jack has been hiding in the hotel working on his Prince Crux Unsata for banishing evil entities. He's brought up to speed on our plan to enter the Duat to speak to Nuri's spirit to find the lost capstone for the Red Pyramid. We need to head to the town of Quena to have a vision quest to enter the afterlife, but some of us must remain behind in case the cult attack us. Oliver and Penny head off to arrange transport to Quena and pick up the required supplies for the trip. Kat delegates and goes to the spa with Matteo. He, at least, meditates and learns skills from the Searing Llama. Mitch and Jack return to Dr. Kafur's office for the translation of the Black Rites, whereby Jack learns Mitch has accepted a large cash reward which he kept to himself. While there, Jack inquires about the ruins of Didera, where we need to go, and we are expected to meet the goddess Tewerat, the guide of the Duat. They return and share the scrolls with Gregory, who begins reading them. Jack inquires with Kat and about Tawera, but she doesn't have a clue about them, so she instead seeks the advice of Dr. Armitage via mystical communications. He confirms Tawerat and Lord Ra have not been taken by Nyarthotep, but Lord Osiris and Isis have been, so we must be wary about invoking them. Recap. The following morning, Gregory and even Matteo learn some new spells, whilst Oliver writes up a telegram, and Cat and Penny discuss how much red mead and bandages they have for the ritual, and who will be going into the duet. Except for Cat and Matteo, who are spiritually barred from entering the underworld. Furthermore, we haven't worked out how to return from the duet. We study our terms some more, including the Necronomicon. We learn that the living may enter the duet, but should not accept the invitation to step through the final resting place, or else they will not be able to return to the land of the living. During the night, Jack is sleepwalking into Cat's room towards the Necronomicon. Gregory is fetched, and he injects Jack with stimulants to wake him. Jack is clearly very disturbed, so they have a private session addressing his phobia of dogs. The following day, we board our hired plane and fly towards Quenna. During the flight, Jack looks out the window and realises we are off course. Inquiring with the pilot, he suddenly pulls out a gun and cries, Fornidocris! Between Mitch and Jack, they subdue him and fly the plane steady. Suspecting low fuel in the tank, Oliver suggests we land in a nearby lake. Mitch, Matteo and Oliver attempt to lower the plane, whilst Cat manages to cast Levitate on the whole plane. It immediately halts our momentum and Cat slams into the bulkhead. The plane drops into the water and begins to sink. Everyone scrambles out and grabs a hold of the broken wings to stay afloat while we wait for local fishermen to rescue us. When we regroup on the shore, we figure we should head to the port town of Zafora near the Suez Gulf. The locals here kindly house us amongst their homes. Recap! In the morning, we hire a local fisherman to sail us down the river to the town of Zafnafa, near the Suez Gulf. From there, we can get a train to Cairo, or go down the gulf, and then land to cross to Quena. Jack, Mitch's, and Mateo's desert, desert survival skills do not impress Cat, but Penny suggests hiring a local, as it will, is unlikely the cult has anyone stationed here. We board a train south towards Zavaka, which will take three days, and from there we will drive to Quena. Several of us take a rest, Cat picks a spell to teach Penny to learn, and Gregory continues treating Jack's phobias. In the night, Jack is again sleepwalking and has broken into Penny's room and searching for the Necronomicon. Peggy screams and awakens most of the group. 
As he raises the book, Jack awakens and the book launches itself at Penny, purple light engulfing her and her eyes fade to starlight. She manages to shake it off and surrounds the book in blankets, as everyone, except a sleeping cat, bundles into the room. Mateo attempts to remove the book wrapped in blankets. The book flashes again and Mateo and Penny witness a horrifying vision. It causes Mateo to throw the book down and he nopes his way out of the room. Cat finally awakens and attempts to bring the book under control, but is unable. She becomes very purple and floats, uh, floats into the air, very Scarlet Witch style. As Gregory fetches his medical bag, the Necronomicon opens and a star map begins to lift itself out of the pages. Penny attempts to communicate with Cat via telepathy in order to reach her. However, instead, she peers into the mind of the Necronomicon. She screams and her eyes glow bright gold as she attempts to break the psychic connection. A glowing silver trapezohedron begins to form amongst the stars in the middle of the room. Oliver pulls out his gun and shoots the Necronomicon, but the star map warps the path of the bullets and they miss their target. Jack grabs a lampshade and clobbers Cat over the head with it and knocks her unconscious, but the book is still floating and the trapezohedron is drawing in the light from Penny's glowing eyes. Penny feels something is moving through her to manifest within the room. As awful as it feels, she tries to contain it with her, within herself rather than transferring it to the trapezohedron. Matteo picks himself back up and returns to the room and casts the mantra of tranquility on Penny. It severs her connection to whatever was moving through her, but the trapezohedron crystal absorbs it and fully manifests as a crystal and falls onto the floor next to the Necronomicon and a unconscious cat. Recap. After the commotion, Matteo and Mitch take Penny to another room while Gregory tends to Cat and puts her to bed. Jack inspects the trapezohedron but isn't able to identify it. After she has calmed down, Penny demands privacy and tries to get some sleep in Jack's room. Jack, Mitch and Oliver all stare at the crystal and manage to store it inside a suitcase. Gregory diagnoses Cat with a potential concussion and brings her around. He then checks on Penny and calms her down from her shocking experience. The following morning, we sleep in longer than usual. Penny is feeling well and resumes duties tending to Cat and informs her of what happened last night. We discuss at length how to keep the book under lock and key so that it is more secure, but also still accessible when it is safe to do so. We then present the crystal to Cat, who also cannot identify it. She notices, however, Jack and Gregory are staring transfixed at it. So she covers it up again and researches into her books. Everyone disperses, but Jack remains and confesses to her that he has suspicions of the party and that he should keep hold of the crystal. She resists, however, and keeps a hold of it, and Jack departs. She studies it and finally discovers what it is. She takes it in a bundle of blankets and gives it to Matteo for safekeeping and returns to her room to delve into her books even further. Jack peeks out into the corridor and just as Matteo to come to his room, where he then unexpectedly clobbers him with the door. He fails to knock out Matteo, and Matteo knocks him to one side. The commotion alerts everyone except Kat, who is compulsively checking all of her books for information on the crystal, and Gregory, who is in the saloon. Jack manages to deflect Matteo's attack and successfully grabs the crystal. Wasting no time, Mitch pulls out his gun and wounds Jack in the leg. Meanwhile, Kat is going through her books, each one telling her the same horrifying truth, and it, she is screaming insanities, which alerts Penny to return and demand that the doctor come to her cabin. 
Jack is getting desperate and literally bites a chunk out of Mateo's arm, causing Oliver to come right up to Jack with a gun pointed at his face, while Mitch tells them that the crystal is in Jack's coat. Penny tries to calm Kat down, but she just pulls her in close and says, He's here. The books must be wrong. And Kat continues flicking through the pages. Mateo and Jack continue to struggle until Jack finally falls unconscious from blood loss. Mitch and Oliver attempt to stem the blood flow amidst Kat's psychotic episode in the room next door. All the while, the Doctor is having lunch. Previously on Masks of Recap. Unlike the tranquillity of the saloon car, Jack is unconscious and bleeding out while Matteo and Oliver attempt to stop the blood flow, and Kat has decided to disprove her horrifying revelations by reading the Necronomicon. Mitch and Penny are frantically fetching the doctor. He redresses Jack's bandages while Mitch grabs a hold of Kat and Penny shuffles the evil books into a separate room. Kat has calmed down enough to explain we need to keep the trapezohedron relatively dark and that it is linked to Nyarlathotep. Therefore, our plans may have been compromised. We will deal with it when we reach Quenna. Gregory takes the trapezohedron while Penny keeps the books apart from Kat. Eventually, Jack comes around and appears to behave normally and apologises to Matteo for eating part of his arm. He's also aware of what the trapezohedron is, and it is urgent that we put distance between it and ourselves. Matea goes to visit Kat about this uh, revelation. She goes against Doctor's orders and the pair discuss directly with Jack. They discuss. Their discussion reveals the Haunter of the Dark resides inside it and it can pull itself free near anyone dreaming and it is best placed in the possession of someone with little Cthulhu Mythos knowledge for the time being. We arrive at our destination and move into an overnight hotel. Kat makes contact with Professor Armitage to discuss how to store the trapezohedron. He is accompanied by Etienne, and they are extremely concerned because they also have the supposed only trapezohedron in existence. We either have to kill the one it is linked to, put it in a safe box, or simply break it, assuming it hasn't linked to anyone yet. Cat takes the latter option and asks Penny to fetch a hammer, who offers to smash it for her. As it crumbles, Penny and Jack let out a little scream as they feel tugs on their souls. But all is well. The following morning, Matteo, Gregory, Mitch and Penny gather supplies for our trip across the desert to Quenna, and some new clothes since our last wardrobe sank into a lake. Back at the hotel, Kat declares she will open a portal to Quenna so we can get there far quicker and beat the cultists to it. Jack offers to assist while Oliver stands guard. She succeeds in stabilising the portal and protecting us for when we walk through it. Recap Kat shows us the gate she has drawn on the wall, which looks like a chalk outline. Penny walks through to demonstrate, and shortly afterwards we drive our jeeps through to Dendarum, outside the Temple of Hathor. Kat closes the portal, and we set up camp and gather at the sacred pools, ready to enter the Duat underworld. Oliver recounts how to initiate the ritual as Kat begins to gather the necessary bandages to wrap us in, which no one questions. She, Matteo and Kat begin wrapping Gregory, Penny, Oliver and Jack up comfortably enough to still move and walk around. We drink the mead as the night descends and awaken in a boat sailing across the sands underneath the stars. A large Egyptian scales is at the stern and Tawerap, the great guide, meets us 
somewhat surprised as we are not dead. Oliver requests passage to the Field of Breeds and Jack clarifies we do not intend to remain in the Underworld. Tawera informs us they can take us to Anubis but we still need to be judged and face the necessary challenges as if we were dead. Gregory's heart is removed from his chest and placed on the scales and he passes the test of intelligence. Oliver and Jack hearts balance as well but Penny must face the guardians of the snake. Jack immediately offers to assist her. In the real world, Oliver takes watch while Cat does some writing and Matteo casts a protection ward on himself and Cat. Penny and Jack are brought to a large cobra brandishing a kopash sword. Jack is warned his quest to atone is soon at its end and he may fall into darkness. Both are permitted to continue and they return to their companions. We are all suddenly taken to a valley and must pass the test of character. Our souls will be permanently affected and expelled from the duet should we fail. Jack is made to face himself and he struggles, but Penny yells to his defence, thus enabling them both to pass. Gregory and Oliver are asked why they remained silent, but they answer sincerely and we all pass the test. We peer at the next set of scales together. Gregory's heart is not in balance and he is filled with dread that he acts only after he has listened to all that should be said. He awakens in the real world screaming and ripping his bandages off and suddenly fire erupts from his hands and he attempts to burn the trees. Mitch clobbers Gregory over the head to, to stop him igniting the branches but Cat and Matteo have to put out the fire by throwing sand all over the trees so that Jack, Penny and Oliver don't die. In the duet, the remaining three face one more challenge and resist their greatest desires. Oliver sees himself as the chief of the FBI and eventually president of the USA, but he cannot resist it and he is banished to the living world. Along, uh, Jack witnesses a life he never had where he avoided the cult and had a fulfilling life with a wife and three children. Jack knows this is not real and is only an illusion and he can resist it. Penny also witnesses a life similar to what she has before she was dragged on this journey and is able to resist as well. They walk into a cold room with a throne, with a jackal sitting in it, Lord Anubis. He offers them to pass the final gate, but they decline and re- request audience with Nuri Awasta. Jack offers to begin a- to build a temple in Anubis's name, and Penny her services as a maid. But he instead demands that the two of them be the ones to enter the bent pyramid when we face the final confrontation with the Arthurtem. In agreement, Nuri appears and reveals his capstone has been moved to the Temple of the Black Sphinx within the catacombs of the Masernius Pyramid. As they bid farewell, Penny is granted knowledge of the catacombs layout. They then awaken alongside their friends. Recap. Following morning in the breakfast tent, we discuss how to get into the tunnels beneath the Temple of the Black Sphinx. We also realise we need some support and fresh blood for the final ritual of Eye of Light and Darkness. We decide to break camp in case the cult reach us. We drive off into the desert, and en route we begin communicating with our allies in order to begin organising the final siege. Oliver reminds us of Mendoza's mirror, and Bast recommended using it for contacting allies. We check over our terms to determine how to use it. Whilst Oliver and Jack do find the correct instructions, Cat and Gregory have accidentally each summoned something dark on the horizon. Cat demands we all get in the jeeps immediately as the faceless god beast begins to materialise. 
Jack and Penny's jeep hits a sand dune and flips, so Mateo turns his jeep around and scoops them up without stopping. Amidst the storm, Nyarlathotep declares he will await us at Dashir, and Gregory catches a large stone that is hurled through the window. Separated, we sleep out the night, and in the morning, Cat learns the stone Gregory picked up is the missing capstone we've been searching for. Nyarlathotep is fully aware of our position and game plan, and is so confident that he can beat us, he has simply given it to us. We look around the sand dunes, alone, separated, whilst Jack tries to use the mirror to locate us. Recap. Jack focuses on the mirror of Mendoza and is able to communicate with Cat. We need Starlight to locate each other, but Jack will call Walter and Jack Brady to coordinate their movements in the meantime, and Cat will call Etienne's clock without Etienne inside. So she calls Professor Armitage instead. Mateo meditates to the Syrian Lama who agrees to meet us at the Great Library later that day. Walter informs Jack that a lot of our allies' boats have suddenly appeared at Alexandria. They were meant to arrive here on this day. Also during the call, Reginald Buckingham suddenly appears next to Jack, who offers to whisk them away back to the Fair Dinkum. He then goes back for the others. On arrival, Etienne berates Cat for stealing his clock, fearing that Nyarlathotep had taken it. After we all freshen up, we meet with our allies to determine the plan. Penny and Jack will engage Nyarlathotep in a battle of wits on his throne in the Bent Pyramid, whilst protected by Mateo's protection bell. Kat, Reginald, Oliver and Neris will join the ritual team to restore the Red Pyramid's capstone, while Anya Gardner, Gregory and Mateo will join the fighting and protecting team. The night of November the 4th is optimal for the ritual as it will only require two hours to guard the pyramid. We have a day to prepare for the final battle and to save the world. Previously, and finally, on Masks of Nyarlathotep. Recap! On the fair Dinkum, we go over the plan to seal Nyarlathotep away. Penny and Jack will distract him inside the Bent Pyramid under Mateo's protection ward. Cat Oliver and our allies, the Syrian Lama, the High Priestess Nerys of Bast, and Lord Buckingham and the Order of Merlin will perform the Ritual of Iron Light and Darkness at the Red Pyramid. And finally, Gregory, Mateo and Mitch, accompanied by Anya Gardner, Jack Brady and Etienne, will form the Protection Party. Many people take the opportunity to meet with the psychiatrist prior to the final battle, including a light steak dinner between Gregory and Mitch. Penny runs her last bath for her mistress, and Oliver practices how to lay cement to repair the capstone. Oliver then decides to also visit Gregory to ease his tense mind. However, Gregory diagnoses him as insane and sedates him while he goes to locate Anya Gardner for assistance. She offers to help by dominating. Both Oliver and Gregory fall under her spell, and when they awaken, they feel lighter, and she bestows them each an enchanted dagger, though God help them if they critically lose any further sanity. Meanwhile, Mitch visits Jack and learns a spell from him, while Kat visits Etienne to ask about whether summoning Yoxotothkam Liza at Dashir is a good idea. He agrees that getting Liza's help is a good idea, but performing it at Dashir is an awful an idea, so he suggests that they go to one of the towered ruins in Alexandria. She recruits Jack, Mitch and Penny to assist her. Offering Liza's shotgun, Bubbles 2, they summon her 
who then offers them ways to light their path in ways that cannot be interfered, a power source for the ritual, and a wooden scepter for battle. Jack Brady takes some time to teach Oliver and Gregory how to wield their daggers, of which Oliver may use his even when participating in the ritual. Finally, Matteo meditates with the Searing Lama and creates his own Horcrux to save his mortal soul should he perish. Mitch cooks an underwhelming last meal, and the fair Dinkum begins sailing to Dashur, and we all sleep relatively roughly, the faceless god tormenting and plaguing our dreams. Recap! We arrive and set up camp at the Red Pyramid. Penny inquires with the Searing Lama about the terms and conditions Nyarthotep must follow whilst within his throne room. He lacks the knowledge, but advises that she and Jack keep their minds calm to prevent Nyarthotep from peering in. He blesses Penny with a reed. Gregory speaks with Penny and Jack to try and instill them with hope, oblivious to the figure of Queen Nitocris standing at the base of the pyramid. Creatures of the sand rise out of the ground and several dark sphinxes land on the pyramid. The battle begins. We begin to take our positions while Penny, Jack and Matteo make a dash for the jeep. Guns are powerless, but the enchanted blades amongst the group and the lunar scepter are effective, as well as Anya Gardner's dominate ability. Large cats are summoned and Lord Buckingham buffs up party members. Nita Crease attempts her spells, but is sufficiently uh, but is sufficiently delayed long enough to remove most of the sphinxes, until at last she obliterates the searing llama. This at least gives Etienne the, the chance to skewer the queen with his walking stick and for Mitch to slice her head off with the scepter. With all the sphinxes taken care of, the jeep is able to reach the bent pyramid. Matteo bestows his protection ward upon Jack and Penny and they enter the pyramid while Matteo drives back to the red pyramid. The pair illuminate the dark tunnels with the silver orbs gifted from Liza and they reach the burial chamber and climb the stairs to the, th- to the throne room. The Dark Sparrow himself, flanked by two sphinxes, await. They enter the chamber, and Nyarthotep shows them what is happening at the Red Pyramid. The death of the Avatar of Nyarthotep has released the God of the Bloody Tongue upon the Pyramid. All but Matteo, Jack and Penny, who lay eyes upon it, scream, flail, scramble, fall to their knees and claw out their eyes, even shooting their own brains out. Nyarthotep offers a deal. To undo time in exchange for Jack. Penny steps in and threatens to kill Jack here and now before Nyarthotep can get his hands on him. This surprises the god, and he instead accepts her for Jack. The deal is sealed upon the shooting of her gun at Jack's head. The party at the Red Pyramid celebrate their successful sealing of Nyarthotep by restoring the capstone at the top of the pyramid. Jubilant cheers drown out the cries of Nyarthotep's banishment from the world. Only Matteo looks upon the scene with suspicion. One minute there was a scene of utter chaos. Next, partying and celebration. Was it just an illusion? It seems to be. Checking the bent pyramid, there is no sign of the Dark Pharaoh or Penny or Jack. The journey is over and the world is saved. For now. <laughs>